This Pride, everyone's coming through for the Trevor Project on YouTube Shorts. Join us! Create a short showing how you're stepping up for Pride using the hashtag YouTube Pride Challenge. Come through for Pride on YouTube Shorts. Visit youtube.com backslash pride. There's something scary hiding in the back of your closet. Your bathing suits and summer clothes thing you're pretty sure don't fit anymore. What if there was a way to get into summer shape in one visit? Here's Dr. Brian Strand for Sonobello to explain. It really is quite remarkable. Sonobello doctors use a technology called microlaser fat removal, and the results are amazing. We customize your procedure to accomplish your goals. Just share with us the problem areas where you'd like the fat in inches removed. And in one visit, they're gone, permanently. I can't tell you how often I hear clients say how many years they've been trying to diet and exercise those inches away. And we did it in one comfortable visit. It's time to get your summer on. Visit any of our Sonobella locations across the U.S. And right now, you can save $250. Visit sonobello.com slash save. sonobello.com slash save. That's sonobello.com slash save. You have to speak to me like that again. Gotta be wearing a cup. Big Welcome to Dave and Dave Unchained, a Van Halen podcast. I'm Dave. And I am sequestered, isolated Dave. Oh boy, I think we're all sequestered, isolated Dave this month. Wow. <laughs> I think so. Social distancing has taken over. My God, unbelievable how things have changed in one podcast. <laughs> right. Tell me about it. Wow, well, we have lots to get to. This is episode number 50. So one of our uh, listeners actually said we should do 51 episode first and then do our 50th episode, so it would be 5150. Yeah, very clever. (laughs) Exactly. We got lots of Van Halen news to get to, so let's take off. Van Halen News. Well, Dave, David Lee Roth had an interview with the Star Tribune, and there were some interesting things that came out of this interview. He really was very forthright in addressing a lot of different issues. Or I skimmed through it just to get out the jewels, you know what I'm saying? Addressing whether this was his last tour or not. He said, it's the last tour unless it isn't. At my age, everything's a possible farewell tour, (laughs) which is, I think, the best response to that question to an aging rock star I've ever heard. Everybody in their right mind is on a farewell tour right now, and the farewell tour lasts forever. It is absolutely hysterical. Deep Purple said they're on a farewell tour like three years ago, 
and now they're releasing a new album. Unbelievable. Look who Dave is opening up for. I mean, the king of the farewell oh, tours, please. right? Absolutely. I mean, Kiss is celebrating the 20th anniversary of their farewell tour. <laughs> <laughs> but I do agree with you that his answer is a very fair answer. It is the best response I've ever heard to that question because every aging rock star or older band has experienced this question. All of them. And Mick gets it every time the Stones come out. Is this the last tour? And I don't think the Stones will ever announce a last tour. I personally think that they will just end when they end and you won't even know what the last show was. Whereas, you know, Kiss is now in their second year of their farewell tour, their second farewell tour, which was 20 years after their first farewell tour. It's unbelievable. But that was the best response, which is great. Another thing he addressed, which I have never heard him address, is his voice. Now, we all know Dave has got a lot of criticisms about his voice, the quality of his voice, the quality of his voice on the Van Halen 2015 live album, Live for the Tokyo Dome. We've gotten criticism from that tour, from all the past Van Halen tours, the Vegas shows, everybody's ripping this guy's ass about his voice. And he addressed it right here. And another frank response, I've never had any delusions about my voice. It sounds like four miles of flat road with knobby tires. Mom used to say that. In fact, she said it last week. <laughs> he doesn't care, this guy. Then he goes on, and he says, However, some people's definition of perfect vocals might be pristine and pretty, like Adam Lambert. My definition of absolutely the best vocal in the last 20 years is, You, you got what I need. When you say she's just a friend, and you say she's just a friend, Oh, baby, you! Which is Bismarcky. And he actually sang that song for the reporter, which I think is hysterical. I mean, it's unbelievable. This guy's like Teflon Don over here. Nothing can penetrate this guy. It's nice to see he's setting the bar low. Absolutely. Then he said they came even deeper about the Van Halen reunion. He said, we waited five years and now it's time to shine, which is pretty frank and then when they asked him directly about eddie he said you know what i know and when the guy pressed a little more and i give him a lot of credit for doing so he said ed god bless him may have a fair amount of time ahead of him but going on the road is an unforgiving task it kills people now i'm gonna stop here for a second before we go on i think that comment says it all in the sense that i think ed probably will live and be fine but i don't think he can tour anymore all of these little pieces all these little crumbs have led me to believe that ed can't tour anymore i mean touring i mean i've never toured so i wouldn't know but from everything i've read a national tour i mean it's very unforgiving it's a young person's game and if you're not up to it then you shouldn't do it he, he could just be going to 5150 and playing there every day and be perfectly happy doing that Agreed, but don't you think you'd even hear a little bit about that? No. I don't know. No, he's very private. I mean, from all accounts, it was all anyone could do to get him to go on the last tour. And he was physically fine to do the last tour. He just really didn't want to. So maybe now that, you know, he's got better things to live for, he's like, you know what? 
I'm not busting my ass. That's not how I'm spending the rest of my life touring. Been there, done that, I'm done. Now, when they asked him about Van Halen, he basically put it to bed. He says, it's been a long, great trip, a long, great run. But this kind of music requires the kind of energy that people in their 20s bring. You know what NFL stands for? Not for long. It's similar in rock. Another unbelievable quote. This guy's unbelievable. Now, I give this writer credit because he kept pounding away on him. All these questions that like we would ask, you know, like interesting stuff here. Then he asked him about the 1985 breakup, which I thought was great. And Dave brushed it off. He said, that's passe. I'm past that. It's like antique battles ringing off my ears. Van Halen reformed since then, and we had ourselves a glorious time, and I wish Ed the best now. As far as old feuds, is Trump still fighting with Rosie O'Donnell? That was a colorful one. I dug that. <laughs> he's unreal. I tell you, he's always he's, entertaining. He's starting to go into Bozy Bozy Bop land. I don't think that's Bozy Bozy Bop land. I think that's, that's a little Bozy Bozy. All right. Little All right. Little Bozy. All right. So what, do you, what did you make of these comments, Dave? What, what, you didn't think there was some truth in there? Like you said, I give the writer a lot of credit for asking the right question. More than usual, Dave gave enough of the truth with memorable quotes. Right. And didn't go off a tangent too much. Right. Right. Which is pretty good for him. No, <laughs> no, uh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I, I thought you got some meat on that bone w- without too much of the, the outside icing, for sure. Yeah, no, I agree with you. There. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we alluded to this in our last Van Halen news because it was sort of late in the process, but I figured I'd bring it up again because we haven't talked about it, which is obviously Wolf has signed a record deal. Wolfgang Van Halen, the bassist for the band, has signed a record deal with Explorer One Music for his solo album. And there was a picture of him with the CEO, Paul Woolenoy. I think that's how he pronounced his last name. Interesting enough, I reached out to this guy. I tried to get him to come on the pod. Wasn't successful. Possibly in the future. He just said, not right now. Now, they're apparently, he said, in the final stages of recording with producer Michael Elvis Biscuit at 5150 Studios. Apparently, it's diverse material from haunting ballads to stomping rock classics. And all the vocals and all the instruments are done by Wolfie. He wrote everything. And there's no title. And there's no date. So, who knows? But I give you full credit because I think it was on the last podcast or maybe the one before that. You had said he's still recording or he's re-recording. No, what I said was, yeah. Well, originally we reported that Wolf had said himself that the record was done, it was mastered, and it was ready to go. That was a while ago. That was like in, in the summer of... I don't know, when was that? The summer of... That, uh, that was almost like two years ago or something I, like it was that, like, right? I, Dave, I think it was July of 2018. I think so. I don't remember. Yeah, we're, we're going on two years. And then the last time we discussed it, I said, I bet you this guy started writing new songs at this point because, I mean, you know, he's been working on this thing for eons. I mean, a really long time, which is... You know, it's his debut, and I get it, but, like, it, I mean, this is... I bet you he started recording again or something. It's unbelievable. So, well, I just wanted to give you credit, because I know you don't hear me say 
Dave, you were right too often. Well, I appreciate that. We'll have to save that and laminate it. So anyway, speaking of Wolf, Mr. Wolf turned 29. Happy birthday to Wolfgang Van Halen. He's the only man who can be in Van Halen for 13 years and still be in his 20s. That is magical, if you think about it. Eddie Van Halen tweeted a picture of Wolf who came right out of the wound. It was like a picture, a birthing picture. And he said, the best day of my life. Happy birthday, Wolf. I love you so much. You're pop. And Wolf responded, hot damn, I am fresh in this pic. Ha ha, love you so much, pop. So obviously they have a nice relationship that's obviously very clear. Wolfie's 29, Dave, if you can believe it. And you remember when he was born? Yeah, March 16th, 1991. 316. I want to make sure somebody knows that we're saying 316. Okay. We'll leave it at that. <laughs> okay, so we all know about the coronavirus. We're all fucking quarantined and all the shit that's been going down. Well, what did this cause? Well, David Lee Roth on the KISS tour has been postponed. Okay? And David Lee Roth's residency at the house of blues at mandalay bay postponed so wow what can i say their last date that they did was the 10th of march at lubbock texas and our poor friend greg renoff dave was all ready to go see him and the night they canceled the tour it's the night greg was gone so I feel bad for Greg. We reach out to him and say, sorry, buddy, That's how, that must have sucked real hard. And ready for this, they canceled the show hours before it was going to go on. Like yeah. six yeah. hours before it was going to go on. Unreal. I know. I remember I was reading on VH Links and people who were supposed to be going to that show were asking if it was still on or not. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Yeah. So yeah. now, interesting thing enough here, I just wanted to give you a little update on the tour. So, they've been doing a solid 11-song set list. Okay. The last time we talked about this, I reported on going to see them in Pennsylvania. And I reported the set list, everything. It's all the same, except you did one change, and it wasn't Yankee Rose. Yankee Rose never appeared. Amazing. He took out California Girls and put in Beautiful Girls. Interesting enough. I was actually surprised that was one that he would take out because that technically, charting-wise, is his biggest hit. That is uh, a surprise yeah, that he took that out. It's a big song. That's an anthem. Everybody in the world knows that song. It's actually an easy song to sing. And for some reason, he decided to put in Beautiful Girls instead. But he switched that out. Every, other than that, everything was normal. It was You Really Got Me, Jamie's Crying, and Talk About Love, Jump, Panama, Just a Gigolo, Just Like Paradise, Panama, uh, Tobacco Road, and Running with the Devil. So another thing I thought that was kind of interesting was Forbes, which is more of a financial political magazine, did a review of the show and gave Dave a glowing review. He says here, Roth, with his trademark high kick still going at 65, showed why he is still one of Rock's all-time great frontmen. When was the last time you saw the entire arena on their feet for the whole set for the opening act? Exactly. Dave has been getting rave reviews from the Kiss set. Unbelievable. It's amazing. Some people even said he was better than Kiss. I mean, unreal. Wow. Unreal. And he seems to be having a ball on that tour. I mean, unfortunately, it's stopped now. But he looked like he was having a blast. He had about like a solid month run with Kiss. 
and I'm sure they'll pick back up. And you know who came to the show, Dave? Steve Vai went to see David Lee Roth at the Staples Center. And he gave like almost like a mini review online. And he said it was great to see Dave Roth and his band. Did a powerful set. He said the band was exceptionally tight. Dave looked and sounded great. And then he, he noted that it was better than the Vegas videos, he said. And he, he said that it was kind of unfair to, to judge those videos, that they're not a good judge of the sound. And he said he delivered like a boss. And the audience loved it. And then he also raved about Kiss and how nostalgic it was to go. So, Steve Vai, man, what do you say about going to see the old boss, huh? At the Staples Center. He should have jumped on stage. That's when they should have done Yankee Rose, right? I that's, mean, that's right. That's yep, the move. The line. That's the right move there. right there. So now, mm-hmm. as, as we mentioned, Dave's House of Blues residency has been postponed. And he sent out a note. And it said here, H-O-B, Las Vegas, postponed. There's something scary hiding in the back of your closet. Your bathing suits and summer clothes, they you're pretty sure don't fit anymore. What if there was a way to get into summer shape in one visit? Here's Dr. Brian Strand for Sonabello to explain. It really is quite remarkable. Sonabello doctors use a technology called microlaser fat removal, and the results are amazing. We customize your procedure to accomplish your goals. Just share with us the problem areas where you'd like the fat in inches removed. And in one visit, they're gone, permanently. I can't tell you how often I hear clients say how many years they've been trying to diet and exercise those inches away. And we did it in one comfortable visit. It's time to get your summer on. Visit any of our Sonabella locations across the U.S. And right now, you can save $250. Visit sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save. That's sonobello.com slash save. There's something scary hiding in the back of your closet. Your bathing suits and summer clothes, they you're pretty sure don't fit anymore. What if there was a way to get into summer shape in one visit? Here's Dr. Brian Strand for Sonobello to explain. It really is quite remarkable. Sonabello doctors use a technology called microlaser fat removal, and the results are amazing. We customize your procedure to accomplish your goals. Just share with us the problem areas where you'd like the fat in inches removed. And in one visit, they're gone, permanently. I can't tell you how often I hear clients say how many years they've been trying to diet and exercise those inches away. And we did it in one comfortable visit. It's time to get your summer on. Visit any of our Sonabella locations across the U.S. And right now you can save $250. Visit sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save. That's sonobello.com slash save. And now a word from Dave. Somebody get me a doctor. Just kidding. Take your whiskey home. Not kidding. Love Dave. And he sent that out over social media, which I thought was hysterical. I mean, the guy's entertaining even in a little note. What do you think, Dave? Classic Dave. Classic Dave. Classic Dave. Unfortunately, Mr. Hagar got his tour halted, too. I mean, everybody's tour is halted, but he had a pull out of the South American tour for the circle. And I know these guys were really working hard and looking forward to this. But unfortunately, he is not going to be going to South America anytime soon. However, Sammy 
is continuing to follow in David Lee Roth's footsteps, because why? He's getting his own Vegas residency. Well, you know, when you buy a toy for one kid, you gotta buy a toy for the other kid. So, (laughs) (laughs) you know how that old saying goes. Back to uh, Vegas we go. Oh, yeah, unbelievable. So, at the Strats... Celestia Tent is going to start up in June, apparently, if things are still rolling. It's going to be a warm-up for the summer tour, which kicks off July 9th in West Palm Beach, Florida. And this is a quote from Sam. He says, I want to create the ultimate environment where I can throw the ultimate party, like I have done in Cabo for 30 years on my birthday, but another time of year in Las Vegas, which is the real party capital of the world. And he's opening it up in invitation like he does in Cabo for all kinds of different musicians who are in town to stop down and jam and play a song or two. What do you think of this, Dave? Hagar in Vegas. You know, it doesn't really surprise me all that much. I mean, he's always looking to try something new. Right. He's got his restaurant in Vegas. Right. So this just seems a natural extension. I don't know if Ross had anything to do with it, but there's a lot of artists doing residencies out in Vegas. So he's just hopping on the bandwagon at this point. I mean, look, more power to him. He could do live shows regularly, and he doesn't have to pack his bags and play here and then play there and then play somewhere else. Right. It's a sweet deal if you can get it. Yeah, that's the truth. That's the truth. And he could always swing in and swing out. I mean, you never know. So we'll see what comes of that. And speaking of Mr. Hagar, the Red Rocker showed up at the Eddie Money Tribute Show, which took place on February 20th at the Sabon Theater. And that was in Beverly Hills, California. And Sammy Hagar came on and sang Shaken. And guess who joined him on stage, Dave, to sing and play tambourine? Who joined? Take a guess. Take a guess. Very special guest. Rick Springfield. Well... That would be a good guess, because Rick was on the bill. But it was an even more special guest than that. It was the one and only Mrs. Money. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> she joined him on stage, and she was shaking on stage with Sammy. And then she actually asked Sam if he would consider making a rock and roll road trip episode out of the show. And Sammy had such a great time. It's going to be a two-parter. That's really kind of cool. And the big nice. new, big news that came out of this show, in addition to Sammy singing Shaken, which I thought was a great song for Sammy, James Hetfield, who just got out of rehab from Metallica, did an acoustic version of Baby Hold On, if you could actually picture that, but it was good. James came up and did that and and wowed everybody and got a lot of clicks on YouTube. Sammy said everybody was there for the right reasons and there were no egos. Backstage was like a big family reunion. I'm sure Eddie would have approved. So what do you make of that, Dave? Sammy on stage with Mrs. Money. That's awesome. That's awesome that Sammy, because Sammy helped put that together, right? He, I think he had something to do with it. There was a bunch of people on that bill. It was like Sammy. It was like you said before. It was Rick Springfield, John Waite, Mickey Thomas of Starship. George Thorogood was on the bill. Like I said, James Headfield of Metallica joined in and Louis Anderson hosted and it was supposedly a really nice night. I would have loved to have seen it. Uh, unfortunately, it was only on Access TV, which you could only get in Nebraska. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I wonder what Mr. Money would think about this. What do you think? Oh, uh, here we go. 
What? What? Oh, I, I thought there was going to be an Eddie Money impersonation and shtick going on. Oh, why would I do something like that? All right, come uh, on. No, but seriously, he totally would have, would have, <laughs> absolutely. I mean, you know, it was a nice, yeah. you know, they came to celebrate his music yeah. and his memory, and I mean, what more could you ask, right? That actually would be a cool, cool live album. You know what I mean? Because I know Eddie Money used to do a lot of charity work. So if they like threw a live album together and had that like sold for the charity that Eddie does, you know, he used to do a lot of like children's hospital stuff. Uh, that would be great. That that's a that's a good idea. Yeah, that's absolutely, a good absolutely. It must be tougher to do things like that with streaming media and stuff like that, unless you can convince the streaming entity to give a portion of the money to charity. I don't know. Maybe. You never know. I don't, I don't know how it works. But that that is a very cool idea. Yeah, it would be. I think about it. What a nice CD that would be. That's cool. So now, also, this was sort of a strange piece of Van Halen news. This came out of nowhere. So Nuno Betancourt, the guitarist for Extreme, obviously Extreme, fronted by Gary Sharon, third singer of Van Halen. All right. So Nuno, who is inspired up the wazoo by Eddie Van Halen, like Eddie, like this is like his god, right? So he was on with Eddie Trunk on Eddie's show, and they got around to talking about Gary being in Van Halen. And this was sort of really revealing. So Nuno says, listen to what he says, Gary was not the biggest Van Halen fan. He was a Who guy, Zeppelin, Queen, me and Pat, meaning Pat Badger, the bassist for Extreme, were obsessed with Van Halen stuff. We used to play it at soundcheck, and Gary wouldn't know it, and he'd walk off the stage. Pat would take the lead vocals, and we'd jam. It was kind of ironic that Gary ended up in Van Halen. And then he went on to talk about how he went to visit 5150 while they were recording Van Halen 3, and it was all good. And then he talked about meeting Eddie back in 1992 when he was producing Dweezil Zappa's Confessions album, and Dweezil said he had to make a quick stop uh, on the way to the studio to pick up a guitar at a rehearsal studio, and then he walked in, and Van Halen was playing. So Eddie came over, and he said, kissed Nuno on the lips, which I thought was... Very bizarre. He says, we always used to reference Van Halen 1 and Van Halen 2 for sound. He says, that's what we strived for. He used to look at Eddie's rig with, like, absolute amazement and how does he get the sound? How does he get the sound? So when he walked into the rehearsal studio and Dweezil sort of did this as a nice surprise for Nuno because he knew he was such a big fan, Eddie took his guitar and he put it on Nuno and he says, hey, play something. I want to check out this pedal. So he's on the ground fiddling with the pedal. He said Nuno said he was so frozen because he had Eddie's guitar on him and he was in front of Eddie Van Halen and then Eddie was asking him to play so he didn't know what to do so he just started playing the solo for Get the Funk Out the extreme song and then when he started doing the tapping like Eddie he says none of that silly stuff here the funny reference to that was in that month's like guitar world Nuno had said that he feels silly tapping because it's such an Eddie Van Halen move that when he does it, he actually feels silly. So Eddie had read that article and made reference by saying none of silly stuff here, which is kind of funny. And then he also sort of mentioned that Gary was over his house and Eddie stopped by and another reference about Gary hanging out with Eddie. So I don't know what the hell is going on there, but something is brewing. I'm telling you, something is brewing. Those were some cool stories from Nuno. I yeah. hadn't heard a lot of those before. Yeah. I did know that Gary was not 
the Van Halen fan right. in the band. The other that guys was, are like obsessed with Van Halen. Well, that was Nuno. I, yeah. I read before that Nuno was the Van Halen. Nuno fan. and Gary, Pat, yeah, both. Gary them. was not, and that, yeah, it was the ultimate irony that Gary was the guy who got the gig in the band. Right, exactly, exactly. So now, if you guys remember, we had a podcast guest who was a film director by the name of Branford Thompson, and he had the Lost Weekend short film, well, that is now out and free to watch on YouTube. And it's a 14-minute documentary about the Lost Weekend MTV contest from 1984. Kurt Jeffries, the uh, winner, and his best friend there were featured in the documentary. And there's a bit of a drama that surrounds it. So this is spoilers here, so if you want to go watch, it's not that big a deal, to be honest. They were just saying that years earlier that Kurt had had a sort of an accident where he fell and he had a blood clot in his brain and he really injured himself bad and he almost died. But he recovered from that, but they said that the kind of drinking he was doing with the MTV thing, he could have really thrown himself back into a coma. He said, I thought I was indestructible and I was a kid and this and that. And it, got, it gets like a little dramatic there for a while, which is interesting. I didn't expect that. But I have to say, one thing I thought that was a little surprising was everything that you see in here is pretty much what you've already seen on MTV. There wasn't any real extra stuff, right, Dave? No, there wasn't, but it was yeah. in the best quality yes, I've ever seen. Yes, it was, and it was put all together. Yeah. Right. Right. I, I, I wish it had been a little longer. Yeah. The whole thing was yeah. like, what, 14 minutes or yeah, something it, like it, that? And I, it was well filmed, and Bradford did a really nice job. Uh, yeah, I do wish it was longer. I wish there was more to it. Yeah, there was definitely uh, some stuff I, I would have loved to have seen, but I think, you know... There must be so much extra tape lying around. I'm sure he didn't have access to it, but... Well, I think he went looking, and he did find some MTV people right. who had the original tapes, which is why the quality is where it is. Yeah, yeah. But if there's anything extra on that, I mean, who the heck knows where it is? Yeah. You know, I have to say, Eddie Trunk has mentioned this. This really, really, really shocks me in the digital world that we live in. I cannot believe that with all the streaming services we have, that MTV hasn't opened up a channel that just plays all of their archival material. They have so much stuff. It's unbelievable. I can't believe that they haven't done it yet. I mean, Viacom owns, like, concerts and unplugged and interviews and documentaries and videos. Like... It's such an easy thing to do, to put it up and have it all up there. And, oh, my God. And Ed well, maybe they feel there's no market for it. Oh, I mean, otherwise, they would still have a cable channel. They, you know what? There is a total market for it. Do you have any idea how popular that would be? It would be unbelievable. The nostalgia is so hot right now, and people would love that shit. Please. I, I literally almost cry when I see it, because it reminds me of a simpler time in our world. So now listen to this. Earlier today, actually, or last night, or I think it was today, Janie came out on social media and announced her favorite Van Halen song, because people have been asking her. She said, for those who have asked, this is my favorite Van Halen song. Who knew you could swing dance to it? She plays the song, and she starts swing dancing with her partner to DOA, of all Van Halen songs. So I give her to have good taste in Van Halen songs, because that's one of my favorites. But holy crap, there she is swing dancing with a partner to DOA, if you could believe that. 
that's impressive. I yeah. gotta give her props for that. I know. I, you know, you don't see that every day. Very true. Very true. Now, this last piece of news is, I don't know, I'm so hesitant to even say this because I don't know where the hell we're going to be in this world. So we're supposed to announce Van Halen Bash, which would be the fourth Van Halen Bash, and it was set for May 16th at the Monk Hunk Opera House with Romeo Delight, the ultimate Van Halen tribute band. And they were going to do a special for us where we are going to have our listeners vote five of the top Van Halen songs they want to hear them play. And the five that win are the ones they're going to add to their set list, which I thought was a fun little thing for this year. But I don't know what's going to happen, because as everybody knows who is listening to this, all concerts and everything has been halted. So May 16th, although it's, you know, almost uh, two months away, a little less than two months away, who the hell knows where the hell we're going to be? So I don't know. We'll figure it out. We'll have it at some point, but we might have to reschedule that date. We've actually been working on getting this venue for years, and Buddy finally got it. We were all excited because it's a really nice venue with really good sound and good seating and everything. And I don't know where we're going to be, so I feel a little like wah, wah, wah about announcing that. But what am I going to do? I mean, like, the, everything's on goddamn lockdown. Well, let's see where we are next month, and we'll take it from there. Yeah, that's exactly. And that wraps up Van Halen News. And that's the way it is. Good night. And boy, do we have a big entree for you this month. We are celebrating the 25th anniversary of Van Halen's 1995 album, Balance. And ooh, we got some good stuff here. We got some good stuff. So, what do we have? Well, Dave and I are going to do a real deep dive into the Balance album in total. We get deep into the album and all the intricacies about it and all the little deets. And then we talk to... Mike Frazier, who was the mixer on the album, and we are also doing an interview with the gentleman who did the cover art for Balance, Glenn Wexler. Everything's going to be a nice Balance package, so it's going to be all Balance, all Van Hagar era this time out. We got some really good stuff there, so we're excited about that, but before we do that, Dave... We got massive mailbag, so that is coming your way next. Take a listen. My enthusiasm for this kind of thing goes way beyond my abilities, and I don't think it's so much that I do so much. It's that you get very used to a lot of uh, performers in any kind of music joining the Elvis fan club, you know. <laughs> you don't want to end up like Elvis and die face down poisoned by a banana split, you know. If you need a dose of VH, get a taste of the closest thing. Romeo Delight, the ultimate Van Halen tribute band, playing all the hits from the David Lee Roth era, first classic six albums plus deep cuts, some of which have never been played live before by the band. They even throw in popular tracks from the Sammy Hagar era and solo hits. The most viewed Van Halen tribute band on YouTube, Romeo Delight. Doing customized recreations of staging instruments and costumes from the classic Van Halen era. 
They even perform entire Van Halen albums in sequence. Romeo Delight plays theaters, casinos, summer indoor and outdoor festivals, and special events. They're also available for private parties. To contact them, call Bud Blanche at 215-704-5144. That's 215-704-5144. Or via email at sonicparade1 at yahoo.com. Romeo Delight, the ultimate Van Halen tribute band. Hey, everybody. This is Robert Romanus, a.k.a. Mike DeMone from Fast Times of Ridgemont High. And you're listening to the Dave and Dave Unchained podcast. Oh, and by the way, I do have some Van Halen tickets for sale if you're interested. Check out the new podcast, The Rock Quarry, your place to hear in-depth interviews with some of Rock's most colorful characters, with your host, entertainment journalist, David J. Criblay. The Rock Quarry is available for free on Spreaker and iTunes. You can check us out on Facebook at The Rock Quarry Podcast, on Twitter at Rock Quarry Pod, on Instagram at The Rock Quarry Podcast, or email us at Podcast at gmail.com. A lot of what Los Angeles is is, honey, baby, sweetie, doll, you look amazing. The hell I do. I haven't been to sleep since 1979. All right, Dave, you know what time it is. Sometimes life can feel like a pressure cooker. From our work life to our personal lives and relationships, there's so much to balance. It's easy to feel weighed down when you're experiencing anxiety, stress, or sadness. Guess what? You are not alone. Support is all around you. No matter where you are, all you need to do is ask. Let us help you find a community at churchescare.com. Churches are communities of care. Go to c-h-u-r-c-h-e-s-care.com to explore the possibilities. Churchescare.com. Sometimes life can feel like a pressure cooker. From our work life to our personal lives and relationships, there's so much to balance. It's easy to feel weighed down when you're experiencing anxiety, stress, or sadness. But guess what? You're not alone. You may not know it now, but support is all around you. No matter where you are, all you need to do is ask. Let us help find you a community at churchescare.com. Churches are communities of care. Go to C-H-U-R-C-H-E-S-Care.com to explore the possibilities. Hello? I'm trying. Yeah, no, I'm trying to think of something creative and my mind drew a blank. I got all this time on my hands, and I can't come up with a creative intro to wow. the mailbag. That is disappointing. I know. I had a whole month to think about it, and I got I got nothing. <laughs> I'm gonna I got step nothing. in there. I'm gonna step here and do it. Ready? Yeah, go for it. <laughs> Welcome to the mailbag. Bring it on. All right, there you go. All right. That's right, it's mailbag time again. And our first letter comes from Aaron of Appleton. He says, Dear Dave and Dave, I'm a long-time listener, first-time caller, or should I say emailer. Thank you for keeping the Van Halen flag flying high. This year marks the 25th anniversary of the Balance album. While 5150 was always my favorite Van Hagar album due to the time of my life it was released, repeated listings have led me to believe that the Balance album is arguably the best album they did with Sammy. I realize that's a minority opinion, but damn it, I'm throwing down the gauntlet. Eddie's guitar playing is lean and mean, unlike Unfuck, where four to five of the songs are overstuffed. 
Not enough is their best power ballad, and Sammy is actually trying lyrically. Well, except for Wham Bam Amsterdam. If you replace the three instrumentals with the bonus track crossing over, then Balance would be regarded as the classic that it is. Do you agree? Like the Mike Myers, as Linda Richmond character used to say on Saturday Night Live, Discuss amongst yourselves. Sincerely, Aaron of Appleton. Well, Aaron, this is a perfect letter to be sending in for this episode because we are focusing on balance. Do I think it's their best album with Sammy? No, I don't. But I do think it's their best sounding album and the best produced, for sure. Not enough, their best power ballad. No, I would disagree with that. I mean, look, you're entitled to your opinion. That's fine. I prefer Love Walks In to uh, Not Enough. Replacing the three instrumentals with Crossing Over. Well, I love that idea with the exception of I Am Not Giving Up Balookatherium. No effing way. I love Balookatherium. You can have doing Time. You can have Strung Out for sure. But Balookatherium, I love that song. But I do agree that Crossing Over should be on the album and would really make it a full and better album. Now, Ed's guitar work is overlooked on this album. I will tell you that. There's some real masterful stuff here. We're going to get into all the details on it later on, but what do you think, Dave? I think the album is underrated after we had listened to it and analyzed it, which is coming up. I do agree with you about which instrumentals should be off and how Crossing Over should be on. That right. song is criminally underrated. Right. I myself, I mean, I think Sam's best album, I alternate sometimes. I usually go with 5150. Right. Sometimes I go with for un unlawful carnal knowledge. Right. I think Balance just has one too many weak spots for it to be their best. But hey, you're entitled to your opinion, and like I said, it's definitely underrated, and it does have some high points in it that are worth listening to, which we're going to get to in a little while. Absolutely. Letter number two comes from Tom Jones of Gilbert, Arizona. It's not so unusual to be Tom Jones in Gilbert, Arizona. <laughs> so, dear Dave and Dave, if you won a contest and the prize was Van Halen could play a backyard concert for you and your friends, and you got to pick two five-song set lists, which songs would you pick? Here's my list. Number one, Cradle Rock. Number two, Everybody Wants Them. Number three, Hear About It Later. Number four, Stay Frosty with Wolfie. Number five, Hot for Teacher. Then he'd have a beer-soaked intermission, followed by number one, Summer Nights. Number two, Black and Blue. Number three, AFU. Number four, Cabo Wabo. Number five, Man on a Mission. Tom Jones of Gilbert, Arizona. Well, Tom, it looks like we are going into another episode of What If? Now it's time for What If with Dave and Dave. Shit, what if? What if? Dave Marconi's favorite segment, What If? What if, motherfucker? I don't do what ifs. All right, Tom. Well, I am going to entertain your little fantasy here. My set would look like this. Set number, first of all, we go all original Van Halen. That's for sure. Dave, Mike, Ed, and Al. Okay. Set number one starts with Light Up the Sky, followed by Feel Your Love Tonight. Excited for a road trip? Start it off right with auto coverage from American Family Insurance. J.D. Power ranked us number one in customer satisfaction with the auto insurance shopping experience among mid-size insurers. Get a quote at AmFam.com. American Family Insurance. 
For J.D. Power 2021 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. You have a vision for your business. Your priority might be to expand facilities or bring in the best talent. At Century Insurance, we listen, learn, and work to understand your business and your plans to help protect your new locations. As your business evolves and your vision comes true, Century, right by you. Property and casualty coverages are underwritten and safety services are provided by a member of the Century Insurance Group, Stevens Point, Wisconsin. For a complete listing of companies, visit Century.com. Policies, coverages, benefits, and discounts are not available in all states. See policy for complete coverage details. Romeo Delight, I'm the one, and DOA. Set number two opens with Unchained. He moves right into the full bug, followed by Top Jimmy, Sinner Swing, and we close out with Drop Dead Legs. What about you, Dave? They're playing in my backyard. They're doing fair warning from beginning to end. Woo-hoo-hoo-hoo! What a good Side choice. one, take a break, then side two. Wow. Bam! You'd have to throw in secrets there for an encore. <laughs> okay, that's true. I'll give you but that. You, actually, yeah. I think you could get away with it because I don't think Fair Warning is ten songs. I think it's nine. I think it's nine. So you might be able to get away with that. Throw in secrets there and you got a nice power-packed evening. Very right, nice. there you go. Well, there you go. That's all, folks. Letter number three goes to Southeast Nice Guy Kurt Lancios, and he says, Dear Dave and Dave, happy February, guys. I wanted to let you know that I was a guest co-host on the most recent episode of the Ridiculous Rock Record Reviews podcast, started by Aaron Martell. And on this episode, Aaron, Chris Cordes, and myself discussed the 1984 Sammy Hagar album, VOA. So here's the link to check it out. Have you ever, too, considered discussing any of Sammy Hagar's solo material like VOA? Also, on the last episode, you mentioned of how great a guitar player Sammy is and how in recent years he has opted to let someone else play guitar for him most of the time. I agree that Sammy is very underrated. Check out his solo on Heavy Metal. He says, keep up the good work. As always, your pal, Southeast, nice guy, Kurt Lancios. Well, I think we will at some point get to some Sammy solo stuff. We have to figure out in what format and how we're going to do it. We have done some already. However, it all depends on, you know, what we get to and it'll happen at some point in the future. Do we think Sammy Hagar is highly underrated as a guitarist? Absolutely. We talk about that all the time. It was definitely a mistake not to use him more. Obviously, Everybody wants to hear Ed play guitar, but there are areas where Sammy could have come in and it really would have opened up the dynamic of the band. What about you, Dave? Yes, Sam is criminally underrated as a guitarist, including by himself. Right. He definitely undercuts himself and underrates himself a lot. And yeah, I don't want to hear Van Halen without Ed playing, of course. Of course. But you could have totally had some dual stuff going on, Sam doing rhythm or anything like that. So, yeah, if you've ever listened to the podcast, we've always been a big proponent of Sam's playing. Sure. As far as rating his albums, I mean, we've done that before. We did his Never Say Goodbye album. Mm-hmm. Uh, the problem with a lot of Sam's albums, though, to be honest, is yeah. he'll have, like, maybe three or four decent songs. Right, right. That's and then the rest move. are like, yeah, Meh. Yeah, I know. You know? And, and I really think his... 1984 album, VOA, is one of those albums. Right. I mean, you've got right. I Can't Drive 55 on it. Right. There's 
a few other songs. Two Sides of Love. There you go. That's a good one. Yeah, and then Stan usually has a hidden gem, but yeah. I, I don't know. I, his albums are really touch or go or hit or miss. Yeah, that's so true. The, that's uh, my yeah. really only hesitation yeah. of doing uh, whole albums by Sam. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I definitely have an idea of, of how to do it. We'll probably do something. It won't be just a flat album. There'll be some sort of fun theme to it. But in terms of VOA, I like, obviously, Can't Try 55. I love Two Sides of Love. I think that song is fantastic. I'm also a big fan of the song song dick in the dirt which i love i love that song and then voa is sort of funny because it's like a really over-the-top stallone movie you know what i mean like it's like so charged up against the russians and this and that yeah it's kind of funny and it's a whole sammy hagar you know we don't like it we can make it stop, let it rock. I mean, there's so, so many funny things on that. Yeah, it's fun, you know, it, but, you know, that's cool. We'll we'll get to some stuff at some point. Just to tack on one more thing, yeah, it, it yeah. is one of his better album covers, the VOA. Oh, yeah, I always la- yeah. I always laugh yeah. when I see it. Oh, I mean, my God. Oh, You're right, talk, it's over the top. It's talk totally- about photoshopping. Oh, before there was photoshopping. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. Exactly. Absolutely. Absolutely. Letter number four comes from Minnesota Mark Vadnas. Vadnice. Something like that. So uh, he says, what I want to know is if Bertinelli, but I think he means Wolf, for example, wrote all the music and lyrics by himself. The press release for Explorer One Music Group says that he recorded all the instruments and vocals himself. I think he had massive help from Pops and other outside contributors. Great podcast. So, no, I totally disagree with you, Mark. I don't think Eddie's playing on the album. I don't think Eddie wrote anything on the album. And I think that Wolf did it all by himself. He's totally capable of doing so. So what do you think, then? Yeah, I think this is a solo album. Oh, yeah. In every intent of the word, aside from the production, which was done by Elvis What's his name? Biscuit. Thank you, Elvis Biscuit. I was going to say Elvis Duran, but that's a that, <laughs> that's well, a radio DJ. He is so. a, he, Elvis Duran's a big Elvis, actually. Yeah. Right, right. So I really think uh, I'm not going to sell Wolf short on on this one. I really think he did practically everything on the album, and I'm looking forward to hearing it. Absolutely. Hopefully, it'll be this year. And letter number five is a tiny short one, but I, he got right to the point. Steve Kennett says, Michael McDonald helped write I'll Wait. Now, what he's referring to is one of our best moves is from the last podcast is that Van Halen never used outside writers. And he said, Michael McDonald helped write I'll Wait. But that is not what I'm talking about. Yeah, I understand Michael McDonald got a credit on I'll Wait because he helped like a little bit there. But that was sort of a freak thing. I'm talking about bringing in outside writers who are, like, helping make an album. Like, the Michael McDonald thing, I have still have to get the backstory on that. But he sort of, like, did, like, a couple of things to fix the song. He obviously is friends with Ted Templeman because he produced the Doobie Brothers. But it wasn't like... They hired an outside writer to come in to help them write a song. That that was sort of a freak thing where that happened. But I'm talking about like like a Desmond Child guy who comes in and writes half the album with the band type of thing. What do you think, Dave? I think the Michael McDonald thing was that the 1984 album was coming out soon. And Dave was struggling with lyrics on that song. So Ted brought... Michael McDonald in and yeah, helped him with a few things. Yeah. So yes, technically Van Halen did have an outside writer on that song with the lyrics. 
totally right. agree with that. Mm-hmm. But as a rule, yeah, it's not like Desmond Child with Bon Jovi came in and helped write half the songs. That wasn't happening. Right. Letter number six comes from Matthew Booz. And Matthew says, love the podcast. It drives me crazy how Eddie gets a pass for being such an ass. Dave, even when he's out of the band, gave credit where credit was due. Eddie's talented. Mike's got a great voice. Has Eddie ever given Mikey credit for singing? Don't think so. Did he ever give Dave credit for his creative lyrics, videos, t-shirts? Yes, Eddie's guitar playing is amazing. But without Dave's creating the image of Van Halen, Van Halen isn't Van Halen. Plus, Dave suggested the name Van Halen. Dave and Mikey were both crapped on by Eddie, yet they waved the banner more than anyone, certainly more than Eddie ever did. There are even more examples I could give, but it would just piss me off. Your thoughts. Thank you, Matthew Booz. Well, yes, you're right. Absolutely. Eddie gets away with murder. And it's because of what he brings to the table. You know, what can I tell you? He's the Michael Jordan of rock guitar. So the guy is a genius. There's no Van Halen without Eddie Van Halen. You know, he's the guy who creates the music for sure. It's always the brothers versus everyone else, whether it's Sam or Mike or Dave. There's always some sort of issue. The band name caused too much possession obsession for sure, to quote Hall and Oates. But it is really an ego thing. The fact that the band is named after Eddie and Al is unfair. If the band was named Mammoth, it would be a totally different scenario. But I don't know. It's a strange situation. But you're right. You're absolutely right. You know, Dave doesn't really crap on Ed and and, and Mike doesn't crap on Ed and Ed craps on everybody else. So what do you think, Dave? Look, Ed tells it like it is. Okay. A lot of people don't like that. Uh Uh-huh. He's not a take-the-high-road guy. No, that's Mike. Like Mike, who, you know, keeps his mouth shut most of the time. Yeah. And there's probably a reason why Dave was doing most of the press back in the day and not Ed. I mean, look, that's just the way it is. I mean, he said once, you know, I let my fingers do the talking. I let my music do the talking. Yeah. Which he does. Right. If you want the unvarnished, harsh truth, Ed will give it to you. He'll give it to you hard. He, he he will give it to you. So does that make him come off like an ass? Well, yeah, sometimes <laughs> it does. But th- there's never any confusion about where he stands with things when he does say something. That's true. That's true. So we are on to letter number seven and strap in because Air Force J from Half Moon Bay is back and he's got a lot to say. So what does he say? He says, Dave and Dave. Oh, my God, you guys are all class. You just listed your 50th, happy 50th on all fronts, by the way. And I know it's been talked about a thousand times, but the way you guys honored all of the Van Halen singers was impressive. There are a lot of Van Halen fans who would have taken that moment to badmouth Dave, badmouth Sam, throw shade on Gary, etc. The fact that you did none of that here was so amazingly impressive. And yes, I know you are fans of the whole band, but to include moments such as when the band dogged Sam for wanting to be present for the birth of his child versus recording new music to Dave's performance at the VMAs in 1996 to screwing with Mitch to be successfully switched singers to the height of their popularity, the whole list was full of class. Huge applause to you both. And oh man, when you hit number one on the worst moves, the hair on my arm stood up and I remained pissed 
at a lot of what this band has done over the years, but the way the brothers have unleashed the Hershey squirts on Mike is horrendous. And when the big moment I was waiting for, will they mention the website? Somebody please mention the website. When Dave went off on how Van Halen tried to erase Mike from the history, I started cheering, yes, they nailed it. That's the stamp on the whole thing. By the way, another dick move is when they erase Mike from the Guitar Hero video game during the same time as the website fiasco. If it were possible, and I'm sure others will write in too, I'd like to put in a few additional honorable mentions on your list. Three worst moves. Number one, not capitalizing on the momentum from A Different Kind of Truth and pushing for a performance in a Super Bowl halftime show. That year after A Different Kind of Truth came out would have been perfect for Van Halen to rock the house. Number two, not utilizing Sam on guitar during the Van Halen era. Please go into this if you read my letter during the podcast. I know you've mentioned this before, but your comments can't be overstated. The band missed a huge opportunity there. Number three, not doing anything to promote the band during the off years. There are so many ways they could keep the Van Halen name current. Release some new music on Rocksmith. Research that if you don't know about it. Have Ed and Al do something at Clapton's Crossroads Guitar Festivals. Or do more collaborations like Ed did with LL Cool J. Four best moves. Number one, not pushing Dave to sing Sam era songs. I love those songs, but as a parent might tell a child, Dave, that's not for you. Number two, in recent years, hearing Dave, Mike, and at some time, Sam choose not to comment negatively about the band members. Mike takes the lead on that one. Number three, Sam clearing the calendar for Mike to rejoin Van Halen and Van Halen at least attempting to do a tour with the full original band. And number four, allowing Dave and Dave to have a podcast on all things Van Halen without doing a whole bunch of foolishness to shut it down. Seems like, (laughs) that's crazy, seems like the brothers do all they can to keep the information from getting out to the fans. Thank you, Dave and Dave, for doing what you do. It is both safe and sad to say that over the last few years, you are all working harder on Van Halen than Van Halen is. Air Force J and Hat Moon Bay. Well, that is a really nice letter from you, Jay, and I appreciate all your wonderful comments. It is very sweet of you. In terms of the worst moves, I would have to say one of the things I would have added was the under-promotion of A Different Kind of Truth. That was for sure. I thought that album was under-promoted. And I also thought, yes, obviously not having Sam do more guitar work live, I thought it definitely was a big miss. Uh, Best move, Dave not singing the Sammy Hagar songs. Well, basically he can't. So it's like, you know, I don't know what, you know, also he would never would either. You said here as the best moves, the recent years about, you know, the Dave and, and Mike not and Sam not slagging it. Well, you can't count Sam there if you read his book. Dave and Mike definitely were classy about it. In terms of the number third best move, Sammy clearing his calendar for Mike, I don't know if that would be considered a best move because Sammy went out of his way there and he got screwed. I mean, that was... I feel bad for Sam on that one and Mike, of course, but... Yeah, that's not a Van Halen move, though. That's a Sam move. Yeah, that's a Sam Sam move. Yeah, that's true. And allowing Dave and Dave to do the podcast, I... I don't even know what to say about that. I mean, it's like, well, I mean, don't give him, don't give him any ideas. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to skip that on. Letter number eight comes from Keith Sousa in Colorado. Well, hey guys, great show. You're all working hard is appreciated and thank you. I just listening to Van Halen live with Gary in Australia and remembered how good the show was. I saw the, at the garden. 
We know Van Halen 3 was panned, but where do those live performances fit into the Van Halen legacy? I personally wouldn't put them last. Your thoughts, Keith Sosa in Colorado. Well, I agree with you, Keith. I love the Van Halen 3 tour. I thought it was excellent. The set list was phenomenal. I thought Gary performed beautifully. He's the only one who could pull off both halves of Van Halen. Absolute masterfully uh, done, that's for sure. Was it my favorite tour? No, it wasn't my favorite, but it, I have no complaints about it. Where does it rank? It's hard to say, but I can tell you this. It was better than the 2004 tour with Sam, that's for sure. What do you have to say, Dave? If he's talking about the Madison Square Garden show when he says the garden, that was a great show. It was a great show. They did a double encore at the end, which, I mean, they almost never do, which was fantastic. I thought it was a good show from the standpoint that they did both eras of the band, which doesn't usually happen. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's better than 2004, but that's not not saying much. I I don't... I, I don't know. Maybe maybe one day we'll have to we'll have to rank the tours. Yeah, you're right. Although, we might have to do that. Although that I mean that's tough because I haven't seen all the tours. Right. And just go from bootlegs and, yeah, and stuff like that. That is hard. Yeah. It was a really good tour, and I wish the album was as good as the tour. Yeah. But anybody who didn't see it because they were like, well, it's not Dave, it's not Sam, I'm not going to see it. Really mm-hmm. missed out because yeah. the band was playing really well. Yeah. And Gary sang well. Yeah. I love the show when we went there, when we went to the garden to see yeah, it. Yeah, absolutely. And I would definitely urge anybody to go out and find the Unchained Monsters boot from that tour because that is the unreleased live album that would have been coming out from the Gary era, and they just canned it. So right, or a boot of the uh, Australia show. Austra- Australia is good too. Yeah. Letter number nine comes from. Ralph Krugler, and he says, hey guys, just a request, I'm sure you've tried, but can you possibly get Mike or Al's text on for an interview? If not them specifically, maybe do something to focus on each for a show more than just some random mention in a news segment. I don't give a crap what Noel says. Al is one of the best drummers in rock history, and Mike is a great bass player and was the perfect guy to provide the background vocals to create the complete Van Halen sound. I think they both should get some feature on the show. Anyway, that's my two cents. Ralph Kruger. Ralph, I totally agree with you. You know, those two are so quiet. That's what it is. They kind of stay in the background and do that. I would love to have their techs on. I'm trying to get Doogie, which is Mike's bass tech on. I definitely want to have him on. That's definitely someone I'm trying to pursue. Mike, I'm trying to get Mike on too. Oh my God, that would be phenomenal. You know what I mean? I would love to talk to him. It's not like I would need to get into all kinds of dirt here because he's not going to do that. But I would love to talk to him about so many things people normally don't talk to him about. I'm going to try for that as well. I will see what happens with this whole touring situation. I was hoping maybe, you know, we could get... Sam or Mike on or something like that. That'd be great. Dave, what do you think? I, I mean, and Al, I would love to have Al. Al's like such a mystery though. Oh my God. He's, he's like a mysterious monk, that guy. I, I, he's like hard to get anything on, but I would love to do that. I, I, and maybe we'll try to feature them somehow in, in the future. We'll see. Go ahead, Dave. What do you think? Doogie would be great because he's worked with Mike yeah. for years. So I'm sure that guy has great war stories. Al's tech, JD. I think, is that John Douglas, I think is the guy's name? Mm. I'd love to have him because he has been Alex's tech and he's also been a tech for Sam's solo band and has played as Sam's percussionist in the past, too. Wow. So that guy has been on both sides of the fence. Oh, nice. So I would love to sit down and hear hear what he has to say because... 
like I said, he's been on both sides of the fence, so he right. must have, you know, he said, she said stories right. that would be really interesting to hear. Absolutely. It's, it's all like, you know, like when Eddie Trunk says, you know, people always like, you should have this person on the show, you should have that right, person right, on the right, show. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. But the people have to say yes. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And they have to return phone calls, they have to return emails, they have to return texts. Yeah. I mean, believe me, Dave C is out there all the time. All the time, yeah. Uh-huh. You know, asking people. And and the thing is, if they say no, then it's no, and you right. got to look for somebody else. I know. So, yeah, absolutely. We, we You know, like Doogie, love to have him on in a heartbeat, but he's got to say yes. Yeah, he's got to say yes. That's right. Well, we're always pursuing to get interesting people. We have interesting people now. we got some nice something lined up for next month, we'll, and we always continue going forward. Anyway, letter number 10, Dave, comes from Anonymous. Oh, boy. So this person was ashamed to put their name down. DLR opening for Kiss in Lincoln, Nebraska, February 25th, straight back. And they send a drop box that says, play the clip. Fast forward to a minute and 35 seconds to the start of Running with the Devil. And then minimize or hide the player. Not that you can see much. And then it says, just listen to the audio. You'd swear Michael Anthony was on the stage singing background vocals. Anonymous, Dave. Anonymous is like deep throat. Anonymous. Although, so you're not the deep only person throat. to say that. I mean, it's, I mean, it's been the general consensus that the background vocals sound a lot like the vocals from the original song. Uh, I think that would get them in trouble, though. I mean, I certainly think the background vocals are being pumped in. That's for sure. My question is, I don't know if they're using the originals or not, or you could get people to imitate them and re-record them for sure. Uh, I don't know. I, I got to tell you, I would bet money. Really? That, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I All would. Right. All right. I would. On All at right. least one song. He's doing it at least for the solo songs. I would bet money yeah. that it's on a lot of the songs. I also Van hear solo, yeah, you name it. I also hear him doing his own background vocals too. Well, that's yeah, why yeah, I'm yeah. saying yeah, yeah, yeah. he's right. When you close your eyes and you listen to the background vocals, they are pretty close to as you remember them from the song. You so know what he, does that tell you? I'll tell you what it tells me. You just said he's right. Who's to say it's not a she? It's anonymous. Okay, fair oh, enough. You, you, you never are know. correct, sir. You never know. Okay. Well, we're on to letter number 11, and that comes from Shannon the Dude, Dave. You know you love your Shannon the Dude. So here we go. You got me on my monthly VH kick. Great February pod. I got in my car and I hit shuffle on the Van Hagar mix and all the talk of being jerks to Mike. The placement of Mike just jumps out at me now. It says, although I imagine they are just mimicking this. But even that said, they played a few shows without Ringo, including an entire Australian tour with a replacement drummer. I don't even know what he's talking about here. He's losing. He's talking me. about the Beatles. Oh, yeah, no, the Beatles. Yeah, he just didn't say them, though. I, I got you. Okay, relax. Take it easy. Yeah. So, uh, so, <laughs> so maybe they were just. How many Ringos do you know? For no, no, no. I just, I, I just. All right, relax. I thought he was roughing. All right, whatever. <laughs> so maybe they were just letting Mike know he's Ringo. Number two, did a Quieter Dave really say he held off on buying OU812? That surprises me. I need the. Details. Number three, has anyone put this on your radar? The Star Trek Picard, they met up with a guy named Captain Rios. Rios has his ship La Serena painted like this. 
And then he sent a picture. I don't know. Every month I get a laugh out of hearing the mailbag, and I had forgotten I even emailed. Oh, boy. Shannon the Dude. And he was also, you know what he was talking about? The photo about the Beatles, right, was the, was the cover of OU812. I should have said that. I, I cut the photo out for some reason because I'm a fucking moron. So, yeah, the cover of OU812 is a mimicking them doing Meet the Beatles. So, yeah, Mike is in the Ringo position, which is a little drop down. So, I don't know. I, I never was crazy about that cover. I thought that was kind of, like, stale. Especially for a fucking rock band. I was like, what the fuck, man? I, I didn't get that. What, what did you think of that cover, Dave? And give us some insight on your holding off on buying OU812. That was the album that almost lost me Woo! with the band. It was. I mean, I did not hear, I don't think I heard Black and Blue on the radio, which was their first single, right. but didn't do all that well. Wow. So when you start hearing When It's Love and finish what you started and stuff like that, I was just like, man, where where did my band go? And I just, I had no desire to hear the rest of the album. And when I finally did buy it, I mean, it was like years later. I mean, it was after For Unlawful Carnal Knowledge came out. I remember I got it like a like a sidewalk sale for five bucks or something oh, like wow. that. And like, you know, I think we've discussed this before, like the guitar songs really didn't move me all that much. Yeah. I just, when We Wait One Two came out, I had been a fan of the band for maybe like about four or five years. I joined yeah. the Van Halen bandwagon around 1984. Right. I, I think I, I fell in love with Diver Down. Right. But I, I didn't really know it until 1984. It took me a few years. And then I caught up with all, all their stuff. But I'm telling you, that album, that, that was the one, they almost lost me. If Far Unlawful Carnal Knowledge hadn't come out and been a kick a double S rock album, I, I don't think I'd be doing this podcast with wow. you now. Now, how do you look back on OU812? Do you ever listen to it? Sometimes, but it's, it's not a go-to album for me. So what's your favorite song it, on that album? Uh, that would be a, a no. political blues. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> well, it's true. I mean, because it's just, and I know that I'm probably one of only like a million people who picks uh, that as the favorite song you are nuts. Okay. on the album. But yeah. like to me, like the guitar songs are either like repetitive of their old stuff, the mix is terrible. It's just, uh, just, I, I don't know. The, the album does not do much for me. T to me, it's, their worst album with Sam, easily. And in terms of the whole Van Halen catalog, regardless of who the singer is, that album falls to the bottom for me. That's okay. just my opinion of, of where the album okay, is. Okay, you got it. There you go. You got it, Shannon. It's all right there in a teacup. All right, so letter number 12 comes from Bob Yaroshevsky. And he says, hey, guys, great podcast. I don't know when I started listening, but I started at episode one and have recently caught up. I am now listening to the latest 50 best and worst. I am glad to hear that the David Lee Roth tour with Kiss is getting good reviews. Here is one I read the other day. You probably read it, but here's the link anyway. Keep up the great work. Bob Yaroshevsky. It's amazing to me, Bob, how well David Lee Roth is being reviewed. Not that he's not doing well, he's doing great, but it's amazing. People are really going out of their way to stand up for Dave and really give him props on this tour. Especially maybe because his last tour was the 2015 tour where he was getting slogged, and now he's really getting a lot of great reviews, and he is going on social media and just having a blast. This guy is putting up photos with little 
quips. And Dave, he's kicking higher and higher. It's unbelievable. I have a shot of him with his leg like extended right up. I don't know how he's doing it. He's 65 years old and he's had a lot of back ailments and stuff. I do not know how he's doing it, but I think it's pure adrenaline, and I think he's loving every minute of it, and he is scraping the mustard from the bottom of the jar at this point, I would imagine. What do you think? I don't think he's scraping. I think this is prime mustard. I I think you're right. After the slogging from 2015, he's taking some feedback and taking some advice and working at it, and I just love the fact that he's really getting some good reviews because he was getting beat up all the time, every time. So the fact that people are like, yeah, it sounds decent and it's a good show. I mean, that's awesome for him. I mean, because of the coronavirus, it had to stop a few shows short. Yeah. But the guy's been riding high for like about the past month or two. So I think that's awesome. I'm just, I'm so happy for him. That's cool. Letter number 13 comes from Johnny Booth from Fredericksburg, Virginia. And he says, hey, guys, you might remember me as the guy who incorporated Van Halen into my wedding last summer. The good news, we're still married, even after moving into a new house, turning my basement into my own personal 5150. She hasn't left me. Anyway, enjoying listening to the 50 best slash worst Van Halen moves. One question, didn't Ed not show up for the rock? call induction because he was in rehab i think i recall sam and mike alluding to it in their speeches if so al probably didn't show because of his tight relationship with his brother and maybe their being there without ed didn't feel right i also think ed's nickname for mike was soft soboleski finally i picked up andrew bennett's book Eruption in the Canyon, and I highly recommend it. The stories are great, and the photos are amazing, particularly when Ed goes off about Mike and Sam. Curious if you guys have read it and what your takeaways are. Finally, any plan for Andrew to return? Would love to hear him again. Till next time, boys, stay frosty. Johnny Booth, Fredericksburg, Virginia. Well, Johnny, I I thought he called him Sneaky Soboleski, but I I thought that's what Eddie said. But anyway, we had Andrew on, and we did a whole big splash for his book, and we're happy to promote it and but we have other stuff we want to get to we don't we don't want to just like it's not fair if we do like multiple episodes with the same guy and we also want to keep it fresh and but the book is great it's, it's highly recommended from us he did a great job definitely go out and get it eruption in the canyon for sure any comments dave good book and i've read other positive reviews about it so if uh if you can find it and still get it go for it yeah definitely letter number 14 comes from oh no here we go. Here he is, Dave. He's always somewhere in the middle. Look, up in the sky. It's a bird. It's a plane. It's Midwest fucking Ron. Letter number 14, in case you didn't know. The replacement guitarist is Jake Fawn, and he announced himself as part of the band on January 24th, less than two weeks after we saw them. No idea yet who the new drummer is. And then he said, nice list of VH moves in the last cast, but surprised to see non-existent fan communication missing from your list on the 25 worst moves. Van Halen was way more communicative in the 90s. Just look at the official website. It hasn't been updated for close to five years, and even the Van Halen merch store has been shuttered. Their store, not the Van Halen store run by Jeff Hausman. 
Midwest, fucking Ron. All right, so we got away unscathed on that. Just a little grazing there. <laughs> a little grazing, a little grazing. But Well, uh, you know, he raises a good point. No, he and does. Just like no. one of the earlier listeners that raised a good yeah. point. I mean, we had to narrow it down to 25. We did. Uh, that's for sure. No, <laughs> I will definitely consider that as one of the worst moves. Four. Sure. Yeah, they're definitely uh, piss-poor communication. The website's like a ghost land. How do you just leave your website like that? I mean, it's just amazing to me. It's true. You're right, Ron. As usual, you are right. And I just want you to know, happy 316, Ron. So letter number 15, I had to get my jollies in there. Letter number 15 comes from Josh Coble. He says, hey, guys, Josh here from North Carolina. I was just curious about something. I know that the live Right Here, Right Now album is not fully live, and that has become knowledge to fans since Sammy admitted to basically recording the whole thing. But my question is, do you guys know specifically what was re-recorded as far as songs and parts? The reason I ask is because although the DVD has parts from two different nights, there are obvious parts that aren't live with the music or the vocals you are hearing. There are also parts and songs that are obviously live and they don't match up. All the solos, for example, are definitely live, including the Pleasure Dome. In fact, that during Eddie's solo on the uh, tremolo, picking up a high part on the neck, on Eruption, Eddie makes two mistakes. You can see him shake his head when it happens on the DVD. If it was re-recorded, they obviously would have fixed that. So do you know what was re-recorded, what specifically, what doesn't? Thanks in advance. Love the podcast, Josh Coble. Josh, I don't even think Sammy or anybody in the band knows, to be honest with you. I mean, if you sit down with the album, you could probably, like, pick it out, but it's almost impossible to decipher for a listener. You need to ask Sam, I think, would probably be the best person, because he seems to have the clearest memory in regards to it, but I'm not sure. Do you happen to know Dave specifically? I don't know for a fact, but I I don't know if I would go with Sam as a go-to guy. Really? Okay. Well, he doesn't always get everything right. Well, I think it was traumatic for him, so he might remember. Well, he's a little biased, too. And he's a little older. (laughs) But I will, from what I remember, I mean, this is all from Sam's book. But so Sam had claimed that Ed and Al were re-recording stuff. Right. And since they had re-recorded stuff, Sam had to re-record his vocals so it didn't sound like he was off. Right. So it sounded to me like the only person who didn't re-record was Mike. Right. Because apparently, I guess, they didn't care if he sounded good or not. I guess so. Which which to me is like shooting yourself in the foot in terms of having the band sound good together. But, I I mean, I certainly never noticed anything on the live album. I was like, wow, the bass player is really off from the the rest of the band. I certainly never thought that about Mike. So that's my understanding. If you're asking me which song or which part of the songs, I couldn't even tell you. And like you said, who who knows? I mean, I think Sam said he went in there and and redid the vocals in one shot for the whole show from beginning to end. Yep. I don't know if that's true or not. And even if it is true, who knows if they used all his re-recorded vocals or some of them. Right, that's what I thought, yeah. 
no, no idea. Yeah. Couldn't couldn't tell you. I know. I I that just seems like such a mess. It it upsets me every time I hear it. Letter number sixteen comes from our friend Paul Davis, Dave, and he says, "I hey guys, I really enjoyed your Van Halen top fifty list. Well thought out on a non Van Halen subject." You were talking about Eddie Money, one of my favorites, by the way, and the Unplug It In EP, which is really, really great. I discovered Trinidad from that album. Is there any hope that we'll ever get the entire concert, or is there a bootleg of the concert out there? Best regards, Paul Davis. Well, Paul, this is something that Dave has been searching for forever, right, Dave? Oh, my God. This was my favorite letter by <laughs> far. Paul you and I are on the same page, oh, man. Yeah. Because I will tell you that Dave and I have seen Eddie Money live oh, quite yeah. a few times. A lot. Yeah. And we've actually even met, uh, we met Eddie Money yep. more than once yep. backstage. I mean, oh. Dave, you met him more than I did. But yeah. it, it seemed like every time I went with you, like half the time, we were backstage oh, yeah. hanging out with, with the Money Man. Yep. And I flat out asked him once, hey, why did you only do an EP? And one of my favorite Eddie Money songs is My Friends, My Friends. That's right. The first time I saw Ed yeah. was on the acoustic tour yes. he did for that album. Yeah, then, at the Chestnut Cabaret in Philly. Mm -hmm. Well, there you go. And yeah. so then the next time we saw him, right. or, or sometime after that, I said, hey, how come you didn't put My Friends, My Friends on the acoustic album? I mean, his answer was a very fair answer. He said, you know what? The song itself on the studio album is acoustic already. So really, I'd just be doing the same thing again. Oh. So that's why I, I chose not to put that one on it. And I really couldn't argue with him because, you know, he's Eddie Money. He's the money man. But yes, I have been, uh, not that I've been writing in, but I have been wishing and wishing and wishing that the whole show would come out. I have also been looking for years for a whole show from that tour. And I have never found anything. I have... Back in the day, bought Eddie Money bootlegs, hoping it was the whole acoustic show. It wasn't. I bought a radio show once. It wasn't. So I'm doing my usual. If anybody out there has an Eddie Money live show from the, what did he call that? He didn't call it Unplugged, right? What did he call that album? Unplug thing? It In is the name of the album. Unplug, Unplug It In, in. is yeah, that yeah, what yeah. he called it? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Unplug so It any, In. If anybody has a bootleg of the whole show from that tour. Which is 92, I think, yeah. Somewhere around there, yeah, 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 I think so. Please let me know, because obviously Paul and I are begging to get a copy of that show. Well, Dave, I know where you could get it if you want to know. Uh, listen, uh, I, I know, uh, listen, I know you've been searching for that for a long time and you're always asking about my friends, my friends. Uh, listen, uh, do me a favor because I know Lori is probably running out of money. You know what I'm saying? You know, she goes through that shit like uh, water. Speaking of water, give me some water. Okay, listen, do me a favor. Tell her it's in my sock drawer, my top sock drawer there. I have the whole fucking reel to reel right in my sock drawer. It's the third draw down. I, I've been saving it in case we needed some extra skull. You know what I'm saying, Dave? <laughs> oh, if only it was that easy. My friends, my friends, I love my friends. Oh, listen, I gotta get going. Uh, the Grim Reaper's calling, alright? Okay, thanks. Thanks for stopping by, Ed. Talk to you next month. So, anyway, 
All right. I don't know what happened there. All right. Where are we? Letter number 17. Uh, <laughs> crazy. I get possessed. I, it's letter number 17 comes from John Schiller, and he says, Hi, Dave and Dave. I've been listening since day one, and I've seen Dave on every Van Halen tour from 2007 on. When it comes to vocals in his performance, I've seen the good and the bad. Your latest podcasts have been interesting on how Dave has gotten better. Well, I got to see the Kiss tour when I came to Oakland, and wow, Dave really honed it to a science. Very little talking and a whole lot of rocking. The band was super tight. The guitarist that they had doing more than just the Eddie Flash playing, he definitely knew how to step in front and play the solo and step back, and he didn't wander far from there. What's interesting is Dave kept wanting more cymbals from the drummer. He actually said it right in the middle of a song and held his microphone up to the cymbals. I noticed that the drummer wasn't playing the cymbals with big crashes, more of hitting them but not emphasizing them. And Dave said this more than once over the mic, and the keyboardist, nailed the jump solo. Dave played to the cameras and did a great job on that. Vocally, if he couldn't hit the note for long, he just dropped it instead of trying to hold the note past his reins. So just like Paradise had backing tracks for sure, definitely came from the album because you can hear Dave's own backing vocals uh, from the album. He literally walked off with everyone wanting more, and I wish Dave would have performed like this on the last VH tour. So the reviews from the press that Dave won the night over Kiss was true. Kiss was the best I've ever seen him, but Dave did it even better. John Schiller. Wow, I tell you, man, I'm telling you, they just keep pouring in these reviews for Dave. He's, he's really going for it. He feels like he's got something to prove, I think. That's for sure. What do you think, Dave? That's awesome. Awesome. I hope, I hope he keeps that momentum going when the shows restart, whenever they do. I know, right? Well, we'll see what happens. Letter number 18 comes from Dave Moses, the fourth Dave, and he says, Is Gene Simmons silently coaching Dave, as you mentioned in the previous podcast, regarding the set list and singing and stuff, then encouraging him to add Mike as guest bassist, and then maybe backing or managing Van Halen for a full reunion? Brokering or facilitating this like a brilliant puppet master, and then he can cross that off his bucket list. Well, I tried to sign them back in the day, and now I changed my mind, and now I want to promote them and be responsible for the greatest reunion of all time. Remember who Gene is. Remember the businessman he is and his egos. Your thoughts. Dave and Dave Unchained. Forever hoping for longer six-hour podcast. Oh, my God. Six hours. What are you nuts? <laughs> Fucking crazy. Well, um, we're going to be inside a while, Dave. Yeah, Dave, so. <laughs> you know, Dave can't stay up that long. I think Gene has a full plate, to be honest with you. I don't think Gene has any time to do anything but be Gene at this point. I mean, he's almost 70 or he is 70. I can't remember. I think he's almost. 70 or something like that. Yeah, I, I don't I think he's very busy with Kiss. He's not going to be managing any Van Halen reunion anytime soon. I don't think there's going to be a Van Halen reunion anytime soon, but that ship right. has sailed, that's for sure, but I think you know he's patched things up with Dave. All the pictures seem to indicate there's a lot of chumminess between Dave and Kiss. They're hanging out, they're having a good tour. God bless all of them, man. They're all older rock stars. We're never going to see this again, that's for sure. There's, Billy Joe Armstrong from Green Day eh, is not going to be playing into his 70s at, in arenas. That's not going to happen, but you know, enjoy it while you got it, you know what I'm saying? So hopefully that tour kicks back up and they keep going because they were on a roll for sure. What do you think, Dave? Yep, no, I agree. 
Okay. I agree with you. Cool. Letter number 19 comes from Dean Evangelista. It says, Dave and Dave, this is Dean from Australia, long-time listener and my first-time caller. And if you had a chance to interview Van Halen, but were told to limit your question to 10 questions, what would they be? Oh, man. Short and sweet, just like the other Dave likes it. Keep up the awesome <laughs> podcast, Dean Evangelista. Well, I think we're going into another episode of What If? Now it's time for What If? with Dave and Dave. Shit, what if? What if? Dave Marconi's favorite segment, What If? What if, motherfucker? I don't do what ifs. Oh, wow. Two in one episode. All right, Dean. Well, I already have my list of questions here. Let's see. Number one, what exactly went down in the conversation between Ed and Dave? I want to know the tete-a-tete back and forth because I really feel like there was a misunderstanding there. I don't think it was a clean breakup. I think Dave had the attitude like, hey, I'm going to go do this for a while. We'll come back and reconvene. And I think Ed felt like he was getting dumped from Dave and that he was left holding the ball in the van and then moved forward without him and to go with Sam. I think there was some miscommunication there, and I'd love to clear that up. Number two, why the fuck does everybody piss on Mike? That's what I want to know. Holy shit. Number three, why were there no live albums or bonus tracks throughout the Dave years? And, you know, the Sam years, you could say, to a certain degree. I mean, there's technically there's one live album that's not live, and there's only one bonus track. So, number four, why did you fire Noel? I'm throwing in a question for my buddy Noel. Why the fuck did you <laughs> fire Noel? The hell is wrong with you? You don't fire Noel. And, and number five, what exactly happened at the VMAs that was so abhorrent that caused such a riff in 1996? Number six, I want to know exactly what went down when recording in 2001, or was it 2008, 2000, 2001, somewhere, that recording session or that botched second reunion that tried to happen around the turn of the millennium. Number seven would be how far did you get with recording 5150 songs with Dave? That's what I want to know. And I want to know if any of those recordings exist. And if they do, I want copies. And I want to do a <laughs> podcast on them. All right, yeah. Number eight, how did no one in the whole fucking band not know about the Crazy from the Heat EP? What the I don't understand how the band's producer and the band's record company putting together an entire project that the band has no idea about. That doesn't make any sense to me. Somebody explain that. Number nine, it would be directed to Eddie. Why must you always work with people you hate? What's the deal? <laughs> <laughs> Number ten, what exactly happened the last time Dave and Ed met? Like, they were, I want to know what the conversation was between Dave and Ed. If you remember correctly, there was an interview that Dave did with some online thing where he says, oh, yeah, in a couple of weeks, I'm going to go meet with the brothers and we're going to see what's what. And then somehow that meeting, whatever happened at that meeting, everything broke down and Dave kind of got upset. So I'd like to know about that. And then I'd like to know Alex, electric drums. Really? 
Why? Why did you use electric drums on 5150? And do you regret it? And also, why didn't you change the name of the band when Sam came in the band? Like, what the fuck? Didn't you consider that? It would have made sense. Anyway, those are my questions, Dave. Did you have any ones that you wanted to add? Well, like, a lot of your topics were similar to mine. Right. The one question I'm shocked you didn't want to ask was, what happened in 1996 in terms of who was offered the job and when and things like that? (laughs) Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm really surprised you didn't ask. That's true. Yeah, yeah. You mean like the the, the Gary's in? No, wait a minute. What about Mitch? No, wait a minute. Right, right. That that whole, yeah, yeah, yeah. like what was going on with Dave? Mm Mm-hmm. You know, I'd love to get a, a yeah, straight answer. Yeah, definitely add that. That's for sure. Yeah, sure. Right. I'd love to get a, a straight answer on that. I'd love to ask Ed, like, what drives him to changing his musical styles in terms of writing? Uh-huh. Like, you know, like, around, like, 1988, yeah, when he was, yeah. you know, when he was moving more in, in that direction. Yeah, or, or even with yeah. 5150. Yeah. I mean, you can't just, like, pin that all. Well, Sam joined the band. I mean, that wasn't the case right. at no, all. No, Sam says it in the interview that we did. In, uh, right. Yeah, he says it right there. He said, look, Ed stopped writing those types of songs. Everybody keeps saying it was me. Ed stopped writing those, because Sammy does those songs. Sammy does the hard rockers for sure. But he said that he worked with the music that Ed gave him, and that's the music Ed gave him. And he's right. He's right. 100% right. right. So I'd be curious what drove him on that. Yep. I'd ask him things like, do you ever wish you had more time? on the first five albums to do something else because those things were banged out pretty quick. Oh, yeah, that's true. That's a good question. Here's a great question, Dave. What are you going to do with all these tapes? (laughs) Like, I mean, seriously, like, no, and no joke. I mean, like I said before, like, I mean, he and Ed's super smart. I mean, you know, Ed knows technological stuff and he knows they're going to disintegrate. So, like, what is the plan with these tapes? Like, and you know what? The more I thought about it, Dave, the more I, I thought about it, like, you know, you've said it at some point. But you said, you know, a lot of those things, like, everybody thinks there's, like, full albums in there. They're, like, they're all, like, pieces. They're, like, Lego pieces. Like, loose Lego pieces, like, of music. You know what I mean? Like, it's not like everything is, like, Baluk Ethereum, where it's like, oh, oh, my God, all these you know, piles of incredible jams that, you know, we could release, but not necessarily everything's in releasing order or shape. Right. But I would love to pick his brain and say, look, you know you have live shows or bonus tracks or things like that. Right, right. Like, how come you never release them? What was your thinking? I think it's laziness. They don't want to be bothered. Well, well, but maybe, but, you know, but I would really love to ask, ask him, like, why? I mean, if it's like, I didn't feel like it, Okay. <laughs> if it was something like, hey, I, you know, I didn't think anybody was interested, I would say, but how can you say that? You're one of the most popular bands that ever walked the earth. Right. So many of your contemporaries are doing that. Mm-hmm. I mean, is this like a, a position you're taking where you're like, well, I don't want to rip off the fans? Okay, fine. That's very noble. But people are hungry and starving for this. If you feel people aren't interested, like why is I was just I think he has a unique perspective, and I would just love to sit down with him and understand why he thinks that way. That's true. That's very true. And then say, Ed, with all due respect, you're my favorite guitarist, but you're wrong. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. You're wrong. You're wrong. And then when he throws me out, I could say, that's great. I got to tell Eddie Van Halen what I thought, and he threw me out. Exactly. And that's the truth. 
That's all, folks. Letter number 20 comes from Dave from Pittsburgh, and he says, Enjoying the new podcast as always so far, especially the Gary part. Some new quotes from him about Van Halen and being in touch. Thanks, guys. I do, however, think that no live Dave era material release should be in your top three of worst Van Halen moves. For the simple fact that the best live band of all time has no live album, that's beyond fucked up. Dave from Pittsburgh. Well, Dave, you're absolutely right. I totally agree with that. It deserves to be on the list for sure. How that doesn't happen is a miracle to me. It's amazing to me that Warner Brothers just didn't put it out themselves. The band does have two live albums, just not from the prime years. No, that's what I mean, like the classic years. like Right. Uh, no, I hear yeah. you. Yep. And I tell yep, you, with all of the catalog releases that are out there, like, you know, I don't know who said it, but one of our listeners might have said it or somebody said it. Like, you could get get like Uriah Heap live albums from their like prime years but you can't get any Van Halen ones it's you know look they're out there you just got to get the bootlegs that's for sure no I know again I'd really love to understand yeah why I really love to sit down with whoever makes the decisions in the band which I'm assuming is Ed and ask why exactly and our last letter number 21 comes from Devon Miller Love the podcast, guys. Each episode makes my workday go by so much quicker, and I wanted to shed some light on a few points in this last episode, number 50. Number one, the point about why they use Simmons drums on the 5150 album. I remember reading an interview with Eddie Van Halen back in the early 90s, and I believe Eddie said he wasn't happy with it either. They did it because it was the first album with Sammy, and they wanted to record the band live as much as possible. 5150 Studios did not have a separate drum room to isolate the drums at the time, so they used the Simmons drums to reduce the amount of crosstalk between the microphones. That way, they could play together and record the basic tracks as a group. This was more important for the band to become a tight musical group before they were on stage in front of an audience. And the point of no videos for the 5150 album, I remember reading an interview with Eddie Van Halen in one of the guitar magazines where he said they wanted the public to see the new lineup live in concert and not in a video on MTV. Eddie's feelings toward Michael Anthony. Well, I think Michael Anthony's nice guy and he has a happy attitude drives Eddie nuts. It makes him jealous and a little bit paranoid. Eddie probably doesn't understand how someone could possibly be like that. And I do think that Eddie resents the fact that Michael got writing credit and publishing money when he didn't contribute much of anything to that area. On the point of not using outside writers, wasn't Michael McDonald brought up to write the song I'll Wait? And finally, I, the reason I heard they led with the song You Really Got Me was because before the first album was released, Eddie played a cover of You Really Got Me for one of the members of the band Angel at a party. And Angel then tried to record their own version, get it out ahead of the release of Van Halen 1. But when Warner Brothers and Ted Templeman got wind of what was going on, they rushed You Really Got Me out as a single to beat Angel's version. Uh, I looked for the original sources for these interviews, but I couldn't find them. Anyway, keep up the great podcast. Can't wait for the next episode. And keep the legacy of the mighty Van Halen alive. Devon Miller. The Simmons Drums. 
It's a lazy excuse, if you ask me. I'll yeah, but you know what? I don't buy. I don't buy that reason because Fifty One Fifty Studios were set up for the nineteen eighty four album. Right. And while Al did use Simmons drums on nineteen eighty four, they were not nearly as prominent as they were on Fifty One Fifty. No, no, he definitely didn't use all Simmons drums on that album. No, he didn't use all Simmons drums on nineteen eighty four. Right, right. I'm just saying they were used. But they were not nearly used as much as they were on 5150. Right. So if the reason is, well, we wanted the band to play together and we didn't have a big enough drum room and that's why we used the Simmons drums. Well, you must have had a drum room that was big enough to hold Simmons drums and acoustic drums because that's what you did on 1984. Right. So I really don't buy that excuse. That's true. Well, they're also in the video thing is weird. Like, the, oh, we want, we want you to see the band live. But here's the thing. That's great. You want to see the band live. No problem. But do you have any idea what you're giving up by not giving MTV a video in 1986? You're giving up free promotion from a business standpoint. I can't believe that Warner Brothers didn't make them do videos. I mean, it's like... Well, it's not free. I mean, you got to pay for to make the video. I, of course, you got to pay to make the video, Dave. But in 1986, to not have a video on MTV is insane. I mean, I agree with you. It was a really ballsy especially move. When, and they got away with it. And they got away with it. You're right. But especially when they're a band that is known for putting out some of the best videos. And here's the other thing. Like, MTV would be salivating over the next Van Halen video and probably would play it to death. I mean, look at how many times they played that damn Blue Angels video. I mean, that well, was, that's because there wasn't there wasn't any other video. I, to, I know to that. Play. I know that. But I'm just saying, like, I mean, look, that, that's not even technically a Van Halen video, and they played the hell out of that. You know I mean, like, they were crying for. Then when, like I said before, when Alive Without a Net came out, they actually took that and spliced it up and made their own videos for 5150. I remember when yep. they did that. Yep, yep. So they yep. could have videos from 5150 in rotation. Love Walks In, Best of Both Worlds. Why can't this be Love? They used a different version. They used that other one that they used on the award show or whatever. They right. broadcasted live from an arena on an award show. They used that one. And then Dreams, they used the Blue Angels video. But the way they got away with, like, not doing the videos... And keeping the band name as Van Halen, I mean, they got away with so much. It was amazing. I, you know, it's, it's, I don't know how they pulled it off, but they pulled it off. And, I mean, the album was great, so I guess that was the, the reason why. Anyway, that wraps up our mailbag segment. And we are on to our deep dive discussion on the Balance albums. Followed by our interview with mixer Mike Frazier, and he was the one who helmed the mixing board for the Balance album. We get into a whole discussion with him, and we also interview Glenn Wexler, creator and photographer for the Balance album. So we got a whole basket of balance for you guys, and it's all coming up next. Take a listen. A little bit of the outdoors, It's it's uh, has nothing to do with music. The people that I climb with live out of the backs of their station wagons for $3,000 a year. They're, they're purists, and you don't find a whole lot of that in the music biz, and I take a lot of inspiration from that. keeps me honest. Author Greg Renoff is back with a new book, Ted Templeman, A Platinum Producer's Life and Music. 
the new biography of the record producer Ted Templeman, who went on to produce Van Halen, the Doobie Brothers, Van Morrison, Aerosmith, Sammy Hagar, and more. The book, which runs 1995, is being released on April 21, 2020, and it's currently available for pre-orders at Amazon.com. From the man who brought you Van Halen Rising comes Ted Templeman, a platinum producer's life and music, written by Templeman as told to Greg Renoff. Available for only $19.95 for pre-order at Amazon.com. Order it today. Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Damon Johnson from Brother Kane and Black Star Riders, and you are listening to Dave and Dave Unchained. Crank it up. If you would like to send us a letter asking a question or making a statement or whatever you'd like to say, you can send it to ddunchainedpodcast at gmail.com. You know, there are so many convolutions to what's going on with Van Halen, and we start to get real serious about it, and I think this music's way too important to take so seriously. Okay, Dave. Well, we are celebrating the 25th anniversary of Balance. Believe it or not, it's been 25 years since the last Sammy Hagar-helmed Van Halen album. Sammy's last record and came out in January of 1995. It's hard to believe it was that long ago. In fact, it was exactly the 24th of January. Now, the interesting thing about this album is, as we all know, the band was in inner turmoil at this point. So, let's review... Right around this time, they lost their manager, the guy who helmed everything, Ed Leffler, which was formerly Sammy Hagar's manager and became Van Halen's manager when Sammy entered the band. And boy, did that shake up everything. It kind of let the lock off the gate, if you want to say. And they ended up getting new management which was with Rush's old manager, Ray Daniels. Or I shouldn't say old manager, their manager, I should say. And I believe he also managed Extreme. Hmm, I wonder what that mm. means. <laughs> but anyway... I wonder whatever happened to those yeah. guys. Well, apparently Sammy did not vote for him, and he was voted out. He was outvoted, rather. And they ended up with Ray, and there was issues from the start. We all know that Ed and Al were not doing well physically. Ed was having hip problems. Al was having problems with his neck. They were not in great shape. Well, they took some time off. This was a really big break between Vale and albums. This was a huge break. So the last album came out in the summer of 91. This came out in the winter of 1995. So there was a quite a jump there, three and a half years, I think, in total there. That they You're would, talking about a break between studio albums. So yeah, between studio albums, yes. Well, let's see, one... Right, okay, because they had the live three. album released between those two, no, right? No, no, of course, yeah, but I'm talking about in terms of making new music. The live album was sort of a holdover, and they ended up doing a tour for that, but this was a long time... If you consider the time, nowadays bands wait three and a half years to make an album. It's not that big a deal. Back then, they were sort of on a track. I mean, they came out with something in 84 and 86 and 88 and then 91 and, and then it was 1995. So that's kind of a bigger jump. 
So anyway, they enlisted Bruce Fairburn, who was the kind of the opposite of Andy Johns. Andy Johns was the producer for the uh, for Unlawful Carnal Knowledge album in 1991. They demoed 20 songs, and they started in May of 1994, and it was in the heat of grunge, Dave. They were still survived. Van Halen survived grunge. The working title of this album was called The Club. And it was sort of a nickname for Ed Leffler's house, which they used to call Le Club Le Fleur, uh, as a joke, I guess. And uh, they also had the working title, The Seventh Seal, which is the opening track on the album. But they decided to go with Balance, which apparently was a leftover title from the OU812 session. The album is beyond triple platinum. Now, apparently, Bruce, who is known to work at his studio in Canada, came to 5150 to work with Ed, but then he ended up doing some vocals in Canada. Sammy had to go up there to do the vocals for five songs. It was recorded between May of 94 to September 2nd of 1994, and then I guess they took all that time to prep and, and get ready for the marketing, and at that point, you're either pushing out product for Christmas or you know what let's wait for the new year type of thing and their attitude was let's wait for the new year apparently Warner Brothers had said something along the lines of you know we have good luck with bands who drop albums in the beginning of the of the year uh, that's when 1984 came out so they figured they'd go on that momentum strangely enough they released a single like around Christmas time, which I I never understood that. Don't tell me what love can do, which is kind of strange. But the album was released and hit number one, right to the top of the charts. It was double platinum by the time it was out for two months. By the time we got to late March, it was already double platinum. I believe it was like almost triple platinum by May. It came out on CD and cassette, and they also uh, apparently had a different order, a track listing order from the CD to the cassette. There was some switching around there, which is interesting. Right. Yeah, we all know about the twins on the cover. It was the same kid, and we'll have more detail on that in our interview with the artist, which is coming up. Alex described the cover as a duality of a person, kind of the struggle between good and evil. I sort of realized, believe it or not, Dave, after giving this album a close listen again, that there is a real light and dark back and forth with the tracks. There are dark tracks and there are light tracks, and I guess that sort of goes with the balance theme, but I didn't even realize that until I analyzed it 25 years later. What did you think? Uh, that's interesting. I would say that, yeah, it was four years between their studio albums. And when you think about it, Nirvana had come and gone. Oh, yeah. In oh, yeah. that space of time. Oh, yeah. Just to give everybody, like, a sense of what was going on. Yeah, yeah. Grunge or post-grunge or whatever you want to call it yeah. at that time was in full swing. Right. And bands like Van Halen, quite frankly, yeah. did not have a good shot no. of, of doing well. 95 right? I mean, was a dark Halen, time. Yeah. Right. I mean, the fact that Van Halen's album went to number one oh, yeah. and went multi-platinum mm. is really miraculous when you think about Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Because most of the other bands from the 80s had died a quick death. They couldn't buy themselves out of a paper box. It was like they all hit a wall at once. That's right. Yeah. It was, it was yeah. fast and it was sudden. 
Assassin but Jim. Van Halen somehow, yeah, you know, they they rose above that. Right, absolutely. They were bulletproof, which just goes to show you the band was of a certain caliber. I've always said this. They are never really to be considered in that hair band group. Nothing against that group. I happen to love that group. I love all those bands, but... Van Halen is of another caliber, like ACDC. They are in the classic rock bands. Like, they really are up there with some of the classic rock bands. And, you know, that's what they deserve to be treated as. And sometimes I think people like to push them in that other basket, but they're really not. They're a 70s rock band. They were based in the 70s. They started in late 72. They made their bones in the 70s. And yeah, of course, they were the kings of the 80s, but these guys, they, they weren't the, the 80s hairband guys. Those guys were imitating Van Halen. Van Halen was hands down the most imitated band, and Eddie, for crap's sake, was the most imitated guitarist on the face of the earth. I mean, you know, I mean, don't get me wrong. Hendrix inspired the living hell out of people, and still does. But Eddie, people wanted to be Eddie. People were literally imitating his lick for licks. But no one could really capture his sound because he has such a uniqueness to his playing. Right. I, I don't disagree with you that yeah. they're a 70s band, but I wouldn't. Family. It looks a little different for everyone. For some, it's mom and dad. For others, roommates who feel like family. And for others, it's your significant other, their golfing buddies, your children, a high school soccer team starting lineup, and oh look, they're all taking you up on the offer to stay for dinner, really testing the limits of that phrase, the more the merrier. But no matter where you call home, GEICO makes it easy to bundle and save on home and car insurance. Easier than making three frozen pizzas and assorted frozen veggies into a cohesive meal. Drew and Jonathan Scott here to tell you that with the American Family Insurance Home Quote Tool, you can easily design a customized policy for your dream home right from the comfort of your couch. And fun paint fact, there are over 150 shades of white, like Hello White, Fluffy Bunny, Eggshell. They get it. Explore the AmFam Home Quote Tool at amfam.com slash home to learn more about your policy coverage options. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Products not available in every state. Tag 1972 as a year. Well, they formed they, like late 72. Yeah, but nobody knew who they were no, until they, 78. No, I understand. When the first album came right, out. agreed. But the skeleton and the formation of the band took place in the 70s. So, you know, you yeah, were. but that's like saying Quiet Riot was a 70s band, and no one. Would ever say that, but, but wait they a second. did not hit it big until the until the eighties. And when they hit it big in the eighties, they were a completely different lineup, with the exception of Kevin DeBrow. I mean, you have to realize these four guys were together through the seventies, playing rock shows, writing songs, in and out of clubs, backyard parties, and then by the end of the seventies, hit massive success. And let's give them credit; they were doing it during the disco era. 78 and 79 was when a lot of the other 70s rock bands were hitting the skids. They were crashing. Sabbath was falling apart. Zeppelin was ending. You know what I mean? Like these, these, these bands. No, I hear you. Yeah, they were hangovering at the time. Before, yeah. 
before you start getting on your soapbox again about how they don't get the respect they deserve. All right. You know, I agree with you. Yeah, yeah. So let's focus on 1995 okay. yeah, and yeah. the ballad. Right, that's right. So let's get right into the album. And I think this album starts off with a bang. So just to give you an overview, I, I do feel like this album is overlooked. I happen to really enjoy this album. I think there's a lot of good stuff here, and we'll go through it step by step. There's some mistakes along the way, and there's stuff on this album that shouldn't be here, and I will note that. But I think there's some real gems here. So just to start off, and one of the gems is the opening track, which is the seventh seal. It is a darker tune, and the real, the album starts off with sort of an ominous sound. It's got the Buddhist monks from the Gaitu Tantric University, and they're prayer chanting, and it, it almost feels like a horror movie in the beginning. But this is one badass track. The lyrics here apparently were inspired by the Ingmar Bergman film of the same name about a knight who plays chess with death. It's got really some of the best Van Hagar sound overall. I still like Alex Van Halen's drum sound from the for Unlawful Carnal Knowledge album better, but you can hear Mikey's bass. Ed is crisp and clean. Sammy's never sounded better. He sounds unbelievable on this album. Really strong. <laughs> And there's some really interesting layering to this song. What, what did you make of this one, Dave? Great opening track for the album. Yep. I like it a lot. One of the, I think it's definitely in my top three of songs from this album. Right, sure. St- oh, yeah. start, starts off really good. Mm-hmm. And in my Cliff Clavin moment of the day, courtesy <laughs> of the Van Halen Encyclopedia, Yes. this song was nominated for a Grammy. Absolutely. For a Best Hard Rock Performance. Mm-hmm. And deservedly so. And you're right. I think uh, the lyrics are solid. Wait a second. Sammy, Before you move on, do you know who beat it? I do not know who okay. beat it. Okay. So the, they didn't win, but right. it was beaten by, so this is the best hard rock performance, January 1996, because it's always the next year. Right. And Halen didn't win. They lost to the Smashing Pumpkins' Bullet with Butterfly Wings. Interesting. Yeah. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, that's okay. Oh, see, I'm old now. I forgot where I was. You, were, you said the, <laughs> oh, the, lyrics, the lyrics are good. <laughs> you know, there's definitely some unbalanced lyrics here and there. Oh, we'll get sure. to that later. Yeah, yeah. But I will say this song starts off the serious tone of this album. There's a lot. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of seriousness. Uh-huh. You mentioned a light and a dark. Yep. There's. This is not, I wouldn't call this a party album. No, no. There's no. a lot of seriousness and darkness on this album. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Seven Seal uh, starts off that tone. The pace of the song is like a, I don't know what you would call it. It's not, it's not too fast. It's not too slow. It's got like this. Uh, mid-level grind, yeah. Mid-level mm-hmm. pace going, which, which is the case for quite a few songs on this album. Right. Which does keep it balanced, but can get repetitive after a while. It does but have a still. nice driving riff to it, though. It's kind of cool. You know what I think, yes, uh, I I think you're yes. missing, though, Dave? We're missing a big solo from Ed on this song. There really isn't any here. That would almost make it the grungiest song on on the album. Yeah, yeah. If, if, you, if, you, if you think grunge is something without a solo. 
I guess that's true, but I mean, he certainly makes up for it later with other songs. There's right. no lack of solo. Oh, no, that. no, not at all. I'm talking about just this song. No, I agree. I agree. But you know what? You almost, you really don't miss it because the song is that good. Yeah, that's very true. The song is that good, and there's a lot of interesting things here. The monks return halfway through the song, about two minutes and 46 seconds in. The drums sound great. Sammy called this a prayer to avoid Armageddon. This is definitely a strong track, so definitely a cool way to start the album. Like Dave said, definitely got an edge to it. But here's the funny part. You got a real dark song. We come into song number two, and my God, it couldn't be lighter. I mean, it is as light as light can be, so can't stop loving you. Oh, we should note that Seven Seal was almost the title of the album, and it was the title of the album until, like, towards the end. They ended up, you know, changing it. I don't know why. I thought Seven Seal would have been a cool title, but Balance is fine, too. That's okay. When it comes to album titles, I- I'm just glad it wasn't a number right. or it wasn't goofy uh, yeah. or, an or you know, anything yeah, like yeah. that. It was <laughs> actually yeah. a word. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's <laughs> so, I mean, that was progress. That is true. That's true. So the next tune, like we said, Light as a Feather, Can't Stop Loving You. And boy, is this a light, fluffy pop tune. Oh, it's so radio-friendly, it's almost paint by numbers. And apparently this was a last-minute ad, which I have a feeling was a request from Warner Brothers, the record company, because they wanted a pop single. Maybe they Actually, felt... I think Bruce Fairburn requested that. Yeah, but I, right, and I'm, I'm sure he was the one giving the orders. My guess, I can't speak for anybody, but my guess is very often... When they hand an album in to a record company and they go, uh, this is a little, we need a little something here. We need something to work with. You know what I mean? Right, like, right. They do yeah, that. I, I wouldn't they bet against that. you. Yeah, they do that all the time. And, and, and Bruce is the one to deliver that news, I think. So, yeah, so this is super radio friendly. It's one of the, like I said, the last songs to be recorded. And it was the second single, and apparently it was sung from the perspective of Sammy's ex-wife, Betsy, which is so fucking bizarre to think about. I found that out after researching this album for this podcast, and um, I couldn't believe that. What, what a strange sort of perspective. He was going through the divorce, at, I guess, at the time, and uh, or, or I guess he already had the divorce at that point, but um, I guess he had gone through the whole mud of that. But very much like Dreams, this is sort of a perfectly constructed hit single. It's clean as can be. It's sort of undeniable. It's hard to criticize because it is very, very well done. It's incredibly recorded. It's unbelievably catchy. Funny thing is, Dave, I'll give you a little Cliff Clavin note. I know this is normally your thing, but even this is another thing I found out about this song. He name checks Ray Charles in this song, and I didn't even know he did that. (laughs) 
Oh, yeah, because Ray Charles had a similarly titled song, right? Right, right. He had a song okay. called I Can't Stop Loving You, which is why he, I guess they called this Can't Stop Loving You. And he, at the end, he says, hey, Ray, what you said is true. I can't stop loving you. Now, I didn't even hear him say Ray back in the day. I didn't think he said Ray. I, th- I thought he said just like hey or something like that. It was interesting. So oh, that, that's funny. Yeah, he goes, that's what you say, Ray. He yeah, says that yeah. a couple of times in yeah, the song, I think. Exactly. Yeah. And, and oh, that's pretty isn't that That's weird? Funny. And it's a cover of a Don Gibson song from 1962. And apparently it was a huge hit for Ray Charles. He had sold 2 million copies and went to the top of the charts with the song. So that's sort of interesting. Eddie also plays acoustic electric on this song, and he uses the EBMM. Hit number seven on the Billboard charts, this song. Uh, whoa, whoa. You sure about that, brother? That's what it said. Am I, you think I'm wrong? I thought it only went as high as, like, number 29 or something like that. Oh, okay. Maybe. I'm really surprised it's that high. Ron will correct us. Have oh, no fear. Oh, here we fear. go. And fucking Ron already. I, <laughs> wait, wait, wait. I fucking already heard from him in the mailbag. I had, like, three fucking mailbags this week from Ron. Or, right. I'm going to try and look it up while we keep talking. All right, you look it up while you keep talking. I, I'm so sore as it is for him. This is sort of an undeniable tune. Like, it's a little mushy. It's got sort of a Hallmark vibe to it. You know, but it's it's hard to criticize. It's so well made. And, and I, I mean, I like it. It's just kind of vanilla without the chips. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I hear you exactly. What did you make of this one? So, yeah, it goes from like zero to 60 in terms of dark to light. Right. You're right. I understand why they have the song on the album. But right. I think they should have put it later in the album. Yeah, and yeah. Normally... I don't care where bands play songs on the album, but after listening to this whole album, I'm like, they should have waited later. I mean, it was it would have been like putting Big Bad Bill as the second song on the Diver Down album. It's just too soon to pull that out. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's my opinion anyway. Yeah, but I, yeah, it's it you know it is it's a nice sunny pop song yeah. to put Van Halen back on the charts because they hadn't been there a while and by the way speaking of the charts it looks like it went to number 30 okay if if i'm not wrong maybe i'm thinking it went to number seven on like one of the you know they have those damn all those different charts they 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 have no that could have been like the uh what's the other the the rock yeah i don't know the mainstream rock or something mainstream rock chart or something like that that's probably it but i mean look Either way, it was a top 40 charting yeah, single. Yeah, absolutely. So we can safely say that. Mm-hmm. Van Halen hadn't had one of those in a while, and the song did what it was supposed to do. Yeah. It was a single, and it, it, it put them on the chart, and it lightened up the album a little bit. Totally, totally. And then we get right back into the dark <laughs> with the third song, which technically was the first single from the album, which is Don't Tell Me, uh, and then in parentheses, What Love Can Do. I mean, they have so many titles with love in it, it's unbelievable. This is really a killer guitar track right from the beginning. It's got the intensity, and it builds up to Alex's popping drums. Sammy really goes for it with the vocals here. I mean, by like 38 seconds into the song, the band is just rocking at full tilt. In between mentions of Jesus Christ and heroin, I mean, and this was apparently um, lyrically inspired by uh, the death of Kurt Cobain from uh, Nirvana. You know, the chorus has peaks of light in it here, and lyrics were, you know, kind of dark, but then, you know, there's this, there's a little bit of light in the chorus. I thought this was strange, the way they, re- they released this at the end of 1994, like December 28th, 
Apparently, the video debuted at New Year's Eve in Times Square on MTV. The song is long. This is like five minutes and 56 seconds. This is sort of a long song. And according to this, according to what I read, it was at the top of the Billboard album rock tracks. Now, I never understand what that even means, that chart, the album rock tracks. (laughs) I I, I really, it's for three weeks. It was number one. So, okay. um, Yeah. Another, you know, another chart. Yeah. Another chart. But this is sort of an underrated Van Hagar gem, in my opinion. I think Hagar sounds unbelievable on this song. I would imagine it, it would be hard for him to sing this live because he is pushing his vocals really hard here. It's okay. sounds amazing as well. Eddie has sort of a bluesy sort of low-key solo about two minutes and 23 seconds in, which is different than any kind of Eddie Van Halen solo. It's really extraordinary. You get a second solo at about four minutes and 29 seconds in where Ed and Al are just going nuts. And they they just sound like a big, powerful band. This has almost a similar edge to humans being to me. It's got that real big rock sound, and it's dark, and it's driving, and it's pounding, and it's strong right to the end. What about you, Dave? What do you think of this one? Yes, good comparison. Yeah. This is one of the other top three songs on oh, the album sure, for yeah. me. Yeah. I, Sammy makes it look so easy vocally. Oh, I don't know how he does it. His singing, you're right, is really good on this album. And this is just another example of how he's incredibly underrated. Totally. Totally. Absolutely. Yeah, no, totally. A second song in a row with the word love in it. Oh, yeah. Interestingly, I meant to say this before, but I, I, somebody... 
Apúrate a Mattress Firm. Ahorra hasta 500 dólares cuando compras una cama King a precio Queen o una Queen a precio Twin. Además, obtén una base ajustable gratis con una compra elegible de Sealy, un valor de hasta 499 dólares. O consigue hasta un 60% menos en las mejores marcas, como Sealy Queen desde 279.99 o Sleepies desde 169.99. Disponible entrega rápida solo en Mattress Firm. Se aplican restricciones para más detalles. Consulta en la tienda o en mattressfirm.com. Sometimes life can feel like a pressure cooker. From our work life to our personal lives and relationships, there's so much to balance. It's easy to feel weighed down when you're experiencing anxiety, stress, or sadness. Guess what? You are not alone. Support is all around you. No matter where you are, all you need to do is ask. Let us help you find a community at churchescare.com. Churches are communities of care. Go to churchescare.com to explore the possibilities. Churchescare.com. Com. On, on the links had said once uh, about Can't Stop Loving You that only Sammy Hagar could write a song called Can't Stop Loving You and it would be about himself. You know, that's, <laughs> that, that, that takes cojones. It does. And especially like from your ex-wife's point of view to say, I'm wow. still in love with you. It's kind of like. It's really bald. Dude, you, you must really kiss yourself in the mirror that's anymore. Right, that that's one. right. He, he's right? The man. But I digress. He, I know that's the last that's song. Right, but, that's right. But, but this song. Um, again, like decent lyrics, another mid-tempo rocker, two great solos, and yeah, it's just a big rock sound that, that Van Halen just makes it look easy and does it well. And one of my favorite parts of the song is towards the end when Ed does like this crunchy rip where he's like, chuk, 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 yep, you know? yeah, yeah, and it's, it's just like, oh man, yeah. uh, just really good stuff. Yeah. And makes up for the Sunny Shine Pop song that we had just heard. <laughs> That's right. And they get back to doing what right. they do really well. Absolutely, absolutely. Then we go on to one of the most infamous Van Halen songs, Amsterdam. So now this is a controversial song because of the lyrics we all know about. Well, there's a couple of reasons it's controversial. Number one, it's controversial because people say that Sammy was lazy with these lyrics. Wham, bam, Amsterdam. Everybody makes fun of that, of course. And unfortunately, here's the thing with this song. Now, I think he's absolutely wrong. I don't think the band should have let him use the, the term wham, bam, Amsterdam. I and mean, that just sounds horrific. But... I will say that I think this song is very underrated because of that, you know, lyrical flub by Sammy. I really think this is an incredible song. This is a great tune by Van Halen. Another reason it's controversial is because he's talking about kind of the dark underbelly of the Dutch city, you know, Amsterdam, and the prostitution, the drugs, the tattoos, sort of like. And then I have a feeling, and I read a little bit about it, I don't know all about it, but I heard that kind of the 
Van Halen's were a little insulted because they're Dutch, obviously. And Sammy was, I don't know, looking down upon that a little bit. I don't know. But let me tell you something. There is some real sweet Eddie Van Halen soloing about 2 minutes and 26 seconds in. And it goes for about a minute. Wow. <laughs> Bruce captures Eddie's little nuances perfect here. I love the touch of the tambourine in here, which is kind of cool. The video was banned from MTV, and Sammy went in even to re-record some of the lyrics, and MTV still refused to play it. And the video was banned, and it was, oh, too hot for MTV. And there's really nothing crazy about the video, especially today's standards. Oh, my God. It's practically PG. I mean, they're basically walking around the red light district in, in Amsterdam. And, you know, they, oh, it's where Eddie got his Wolfgang tattoo, his famous Wolfgang tattoo. And apparently this hit number nine on the mainstream rock charts, if that means anything to anybody. But this is really a great song. I, I think the, the Wham Bam lyrics really hurt it. Musically, uh, this is just right in the Van Hagar wheelhouse. It could have been a classic, in my opinion. I really think it was really that good. Uh, it's the third single released in the summer of 1995. Dave, what do you make of Amsterdam? I don't know if it was a classic. I do think it's underrated because... No, no, no. I said it had a, a potential to be, but it didn't become one. I mean, in the sense that like, it was flubbed. Like, the lyrics were off. It couldn't have been a classic. No, I, I understand. But, but even so, even if Sam had wrote better lyrics. Okay. I, I don't know if it was classic okay. material. Okay. I do think it's underrated because I yeah. think musically it's solid. Again, it's got that mid-tempo thump, that mid-tempo beat going. It's almost like they get trapped in that on this album. Well, on the next song, they actually kick it up a notch yeah. finally. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Sam really backs himself into the corner with the lyrics. I think I had made this joke before on the podcast, but uh -huh. can you imagine if Ed went up to Sam and said, Sam, I got these great lyrics. They go, wham, hey, screw the USA. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, right? uh, I mean, come on. Right? I mean, Sammy would have been like, yeah. are you are you kidding me? It's amazing. So, I, again, I think Sam had big cojones writing the lyrics for this. Yeah. And like you, I, I can't believe he got away with it. I think the brothers regretted it later. They almost always have this sort of, I don't know how that happened type of attitude. <laughs> Every time someone brings that up or even discuss that, it's almost like they it got lost in the soup somehow. But um, Yeah, but here's yeah. the thing. like Ed was sober at that time or trying to be sober at that yeah, time. Yeah, so yeah. he was more aware of what stuff was going yeah, on yeah. and the lyrics. So I was just really surprised that it it got past the brothers. Yeah, it but, really did. But either way, it's it's a decent song. Right. I mean, I don't rate it as high as you do musically. Okay. Sam could have had at, at least a, a winner on his hands if he hadn't wham bams. Yeah, that's, that's for sure. That's for sure. Now this next one, big fat money. I actually started uh, learning to appreciate this one uh, a little bit more as time has gone on. This is sort of a meat and potatoes album rocker, kind of like AFU, kind of like Get Up. It's the song that is all Eddie and Alex. Now, Sammy's a little weak on the lyrics here. He's, he's kind of throwing them together. But the song is fun, and it's got great energy. <laughs> Come on, 
about a minute and 50 seconds in, there's a hot solo. It, it's, it's almost got a Clapton-esque feel to it, believe it or not. <laughs> Give Bruce credit for this. Obviously, it's Eddie's solo, but this is the interesting part. Eddie was playing this Gibson ES-335, and Bruce recorded Ed when Ed didn't even know he was being recorded. So that was kind of a cool moment. There's some nice little Richard-style piano nuance in the background to add the intensity of the song. It's just a fun track. Even the end of the song where they have the coin drop and it kind of takes forever to rattle down. They did multiple takes of that, and they used multiple coins on the 5150 console board to get it just right. But the romp and upbeat swing of this song is very tasty, even though it's lyrically light and sort of a throwaway, but Ed and Al really kind of make up for it. What do you think of this one? I don't hear clapping in the solo. It almost sounds jazzy to me. Yeah, It's uh, one I guess of Ed's so, yeah. more unusual solos. Yeah, it's very unusual. Yeah. It is. I, I like it a lot. Yeah. It definitely adds not, not the character, usual to the song. Character, a lot of character, yeah. Sam's lyrics, you know, honestly, I can't make a lot of them out. I know. It's, it's tough to hear, and... And this is a lyrically driven song. Yeah. It's kind of like It's the End of the World as We Know It and I Feel Fine by, right. oh, what's the name of the band that escapes me now? R.E.M. R.E.M., yeah, thank yeah. you. Or Billy Joel's We Didn't Start the Fire. Right. Like a lyrical heavy yeah. song. Like you've really got to make sure people understand the lyrics. Right, right. And I don't know, maybe, maybe it's just because I'm going deaf. <laughs> but <laughs> no, Sam, no, he, he, he rushes through it. It's like he's rushing his way through the song, yeah. I feel like it's that way, and, and to have so many lyrics in there and do that, it, it, it defeats the purpose. Totally, totally. But I, I like the topic about money. I mean, it's kind of related to what I do for a living. Of so course, I, you of know, course. I do like the piano at the end. It kind of reminds me of Led Zeppelin's rock and roll when they have the piano at the end. There's all sorts of little sound things going on in this album. Like, there's the piano... You mentioned the tambourine in the last song. Right, There's yeah. tambourine here and there throughout yeah, the album. Yeah, interesting which, little nuances. Effectively. Little things yeah. that Bruce Fairburn threw in there yeah. that are really nice. Yeah. So, And I like the pace of this song. They mm-hmm. fi- they finally pick up the pace. They finally pick up the tempo mm-hmm. and, and rock out a little bit. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, th- this is where I say the album comes to a grinding halt. <laughs> okay? So we, right, right. Right in the middle, this is a very soft, like messy middle here i'll explain later what i think should have been here but this is unbelievable this really bothers me so strung out it is a hard left turn it kills the album's momentum it's a, it's a dark tune it starts with this horrible non-musical track it is just pure shit to be honest with you there's nothing musical about this i'll tell you how much i hate this song i think how many say i is 10 times better than this because at least uh, How Many Say I has some musical ability to it and, and some singing, nice singing, a little bit. This is another part that was strange. It was recorded in 1983 when Ed was fucking around with this white Yamaha grand piano in Marvin Hamlish's beach house that he rented. And he was tossing everything he could find into the piano. Ping pong balls, batteries, silverware. This is like rock star debauchery captured on tape. 
and it's a complete embarrassment. This could have been on our list of Van Halen's worst moves. This is total shit and is the worst filler for an album I have ever seen. And now think about Eddie Van Halen and all the creativity he has. You have nothing that you could have put in this place, even if you didn't want to do another song and you wanted to do an instrumental or some sort of guitar. Please, why in God's name? I don't understand any of the value of this song. This is not a song. It's obviously just sort of a moment uh, in the album. the worst track I've ever seen included on an album in my life like why is this here what is the reason for it what is the reason for its placement it drives me mad what do you think so you're saying you don't like it I don't like it (laughs) (laughs) so interestingly when I was listening to the album to refresh myself for this podcast I had my daughter in the car with me at the time okay and so this song comes on, and, you know, like 30 seconds into it, she's like, what is this? <laughs> and I'm like, a song we're skipping. Yeah, you exactly. I mean, so exactly. Uh, even, even the youth of today are, are aware that this is just, yeah, this is just like a waste of, like, how long is this painful? Like two minutes or something It's like, like no, it's like a minute and 29 seconds. It feels like five hours. I, it, it, it does. And, like, I don't understand, like, it's him messing around with the inside of a piano, oh. and it sounds like they tried to get some redeeming music out of it by having some strings play in the background. Or it's like, sort of so, it's like some sort of creepy synth. It's just a waste. It's, it's not a cool intro like Intruder is. No, for God, Pretty Woman. are you kidding me? I mean, no. Well, that's, well, yeah, I mean, that's what I'm saying. Like, I just don't understand, like, how this got past Bruce Fairburn, and he was like, and I gotta tell you, this is like, yeah. or maybe he was just like, ah, eh, you know what? For a minute and twenty seconds, I'll humor the guy. But, yeah, maybe you know, it was a bargaining but, chip. Yeah, knows? but I mean, thankfully, it doesn't overstay its welcome. But no. yeah, as far as a musical interlude, it just yeah, it kills the pace of the album. It does set the stage for the next song, right? But that song kills the pace of the album. Oh god! Too, so. Yeah. So you're again. Here you got not enough, which is the seventh song. This is sort of a, a sad ballad, and it slows the album down even more. It's obviously going for sort of the when it's love, but this is more of a sadder version of that. That's more of like an uplifting, you know, falling in love type of song. This is sort of a sad version when when things are not going well in a relationship. The lyrics are. A downer. Don't get me wrong. It's a well-crafted tune. It sounds good, and and it makes you say, though, Jesus Christ, is this fucking Van Halen? Don't get me wrong. It's a beautiful pop ballad in some ways, but it also has no fucking balls. Even a song like Home Sweet Home is a ballad. It's got balls to it, you know. But Sammy sounds great. I'll give him that. He's got a beautiful vocals on here. He sounds beautiful. The backgrounds sound great.
There's one thing that bothers me in this song, Dave, that it drives me mad. And I know it's just a little picadillo, but it's so funny. When Ed goes to solo at 2 minutes and 55 seconds in, Sammy out of nowhere sings on top of his solo and just goes another standing there, which seems so out of place to me. Because it's time for Eddie to solo, and he's actually in the intro to the solo, not mid-solo, but he's sort of in the, you know, in the beginning of the solo, and the standing there comes out of nowhere, and it drives me mad. I never understood why they left that in there. But this song is sort of like a love-hate relationship. And then when the band falls in and they all play together, they sound good, they sound tight. This song cracked the top 40, I believe. It made it to like 39 or something like that. And it was the fourth single from the album. And I remember seeing them play this on Letterman, believe it or not. And I just was like, I remember getting depressed about it. Like, I mean, here you are, you're on Letterman, and which is sort of like kind of an upbeat, kind of hip kind of show. And you're playing this fucking sappy ballad. And it just drove me mad. What did you think of this one? Well, now I know what to play when I want to annoy you. So yeah, thank you for exactly. that tip. No, I appreciate that it, very of course. much. This is a well-done, well-crafted metal ballad. But it's not metal, is it? I mean, well, know. it's not really. It's not really heavy metal, but like, I, it, it's somewhere between like it's a ballad. I mean, yeah, it's somewhere yeah, between like a definitely pop a paint by numbers and, ballad. Yeah, right, a pop ballad and a metal ballad. It has no place on a Van Halen album. No. It's, I mean, any other band could have done this, but what I like about my Van Halen is that they tend not to sound like every other band. Right. And with this song, they sound like every other oh, band. Oh, God, yeah, totally. I mean, this is like something Bon Jovi could have Yeah, played. I know. Uh, and not right? even I like mean, a big one. That would be like sort of a half-baked Bon Jovi song. <laughs> I mean, you know. Yeah, but it's like, yeah. it's, I mean, it's not horrible. It's just right. there, no. but no, it's yeah. like, I expect more from these guys not to sound like everybody else. And, that, and that's what this song does. It sounds like everybody else, and I think it's a really dangerous move. But yeah. I mean, it wouldn't have been out of place on, like, say, OU812, where they were really going pop there. Yeah, that's for um, sure. That's for sure. I mean, it does vary, shake up the album a little bit. Yeah, in, yeah, in yeah. Terms, so it doesn't sound like the same old, same old for everything else. Right. But, man, I'm like you. I don't have much love for the song. It's not bad, but as a Van Halen fan, like, get rid of it. That doesn't have a place on Absolutely. the album. Absolutely. Absolutely. Throw it out the fucking door. So now we are on... The eighth song, which is Aftershock. I thought this could have been a great title. I think this is an underappreciated gem. I fucking love this song. I, I think this is a really strong Van Hagar song. I think it gets the album going again. Ed and Al are insane here. <laughs> Alex sounds so crisp and clear. His drums are fantastic on this song. And I urge everyone to listen to this album with a good set of headphones because, wow, you pick up on a lot in, when you listen to it with a good set of headphones. There's so much nuance and there's so much genius in, in Bruce Fairburn's 
producing, it's incredible what he brings out. So about four minutes and 36 seconds in, there's a late solo from Ed, which is great. Apparently, this song is not about California earthquakes, but about Sam's divorce again. Oh, my God. He doesn't stop talking about this divorce. I thought this song might have had single potential to it. What do you think, Dave? It's interesting you say that because, I mean, lyrically, it doesn't. No, not lyrically, no. I, I know, yeah. I mean, there were earthquakes in, you know, the earthquake in California at the time that it happened previously. So everyone thought it might have been about that. Again, lyrically... It's not an uppity, bright, sunshiny, lyrically song at all. Um, it continues to set the tone of this is not a party album. I mean, lyrics aren't bad. I, I give Sam, you know, credit for writing about something so tough. You know, at least it's not Wham Bam Amsterdam. So. Right, right. But, you know, then again, you know, when Sam sets the bar so low and we go, at least it's not Amsterdam. It's kind of like, you know, give no, a little I know. for everything. I know, I know. Musically, the song's pretty good, but sometimes I wonder... Do we really think the song is that good? Because it's after not enough, and almost anything would be better than that song. So I wonder sometimes if we're overrating Aftershock because of that. Okay. All right. Well, and the next song does not do any wonders either. Doing Time, the Alex solo. Another one. This is filler. I think this is a misstep. Now, here's the thing. I know Alex Van Halen never had a drum solo on the album, and I understand that, but... This is not, like, super impressive, and parts of it sound like Gloria Stefan and the Miami Sound Machine. I mean, it, it's a little bizarre. He, by about 56 seconds in, he switches over. You know, it's it gets a little better, but the last 45 seconds are, are, are pretty impressive. It's not like Moby Dick, you know what I'm saying? Like, if you're going to do a drum solo, you got to have something really cool. I think that this has got to be off the album. This is ridiculous. Well, as we get through the rest of this album, and you'll see what I'm talking about, uh, and I'll give you the whole picture, but this is a waste. Even if you're going to do an Alex drum solo, Alex is so much more capable than this. He could have done something really impressive. Spotlight Alex and have Eddie play guitar on it, but not like heavy, like wildly or flashy, just sort of holding down the background with him and Mike and let Alex take the, the forefront, maybe like Alex's eruption for drums or something, something really fucking cool. Like, like I said, like a Moby Dick, like something like that really stands out, like, wow, that really shows off Alex's drum prowess. But this is not it. What do you think, Dave? Actually, I like it because it doesn't sound like a typical drum solo. Okay. I think, you know, the drum solo have been done by all sorts of people already. I, I mean, literally, well, not literally, but pardon the pun, but like beaten to death. <laughs> you, yeah. you know, in terms of drum solos, I, I give him credit for at least trying something a little different as a drummer. I mean, 
it, it still didn't wow me. I agree with you. If, right. you know, if, if he had taken it off the album, I, I would not have missed it. Right, right. But again, I, I give him credit for at least not trying to do the same old, same old. But yeah, it really doesn't add anything to the album. I don't think. I mean, he had been kind of messing around with this, with his drum solos on tour in, you know, in, in recent years. He'd been kind of doing that thing. I think it was actually Bruce Fairburn and Eddie who were pushing Al to put it on the album. I don't even think he was, he himself wasn't a big proponent of it. I think the other two heard it and were like, oh yeah, let's put this on. So. Yeah, it's a little weird. But if Eddie was also the guy who asked for Strung Out to be on there, I'm not so sure. Yeah, we should have listened to every suggestion that Ed had made. No, of course not. (laughs) Of course not. Now this next one, Balukatherium. I don't even know how to pronounce this, but I think it's Balukatherium. Balukatherium. There you go. I fucking love this song. This is like a killer jam of Ed Allen Mike. It's almost like a fantasy of being in 5150 and watching these guys do a jam or something like that. This is what this sounds like. So this to me is fun. Now, apparently, Stan was too lazy to write lyrics, making this the third song with no Sammy on it, which is unbelievable if you think about it. You kind of wonder if this is a a sign. I remember even when I was listening to this album when it first came out, like, why is he not on three tracks? I thought that was a little weird. So this is sort of a tasty treat for all Van Halen fans who really want to see the band go off. I would love for them to do something like this with Wolf in the sense that, you know, if you're not going to do any more Van Halen stuff, okay, you're not going to want to deal with singers, do stuff like this. This with Ed and Wolf on bass and Al on drums, be the VH trio. This is exactly what I'm talking about, is stuff like this. It would be incredible to put out an album, this type of material. Now, the funny thing is here is Bruce captures the magic of the, of the brothers. I mean, he really, really does. And at the end, Ed gets to do his animal tricks with the guitar and the elephant and all these different sounds. Now, here's the funny thing I did in researching this album, Dave. Ed borrowed the main riff to Trevor Rabin's Eyes of Love from his album Can't Look Away. And this is a clip from Balukatherium. Now, this is the clip of Can't Look Away. You can see the songs sound familiar, the main riff. I don't know what that's all about. I don't know. No one's really even talked about that, which is kind of strange. Valerie named this song, apparently, after the largest prehistoric mammal. It's four times the size of an elephant to match Ed's huge guitar sound. And if you listen carefully, like I said with the earphones, you can hear barking coming from Ed's Dalmatian named Sherman who they was barking because when they taped a hot dog to a microphone to get him to bark, and Ed uh, also apparently had this riff left over from the for unlawful carnal knowledge session. The working title was Heavy Groove. What do you make of this one, Dave? Love it. We really don't get a chance to hear a, a full instrumental song from Van Halen. So this is really a treat. Right. Everybody yeah. sounds good. 
Yep. Mike sounds good. You can really appreciate his bass playing. Totally. I'm, assume it's, I'm assuming it's him playing on it. Uh, everyone always has a rumor that it's, it's uh, you know, some songs it's Ed playing, but I'll, I'll give Mike yeah. credit until somebody proves yeah. me. Yeah, right, right. Otherwise, I think it is unusual to have an instrumental like this without Sam singing. The other two are fine. That that doesn't surprise me at all. I mean, there were other albums in the past with Dave, for example, uh-huh. where, you know, Ed would have a couple of, of solos and Dave was nowhere to be found. And, right. you know, we never blink about that. So the fact that there's actually a couple here in the Sammy era, I mean, yeah, but they're, I mean, they're doing time and they're strung out. They're just like waste of time. I wouldn't call them like songs that Sam didn't sing on. I would call them songs that Sam wisely stayed away from because they were crap. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But this song, again, it's, it still has that mid-tempo groove, but Ed's guitar just soars and shows how, you're right, he could really, oh. he could probably do an instrumental album like this oh. if he wanted to. Totally. Just, uh, It'd be fantastic. Yeah. Sometimes life can feel like a pressure cooker. From our work life to our personal lives and relationships, there's so much to balance. It's easy to feel weighed down when you're experiencing anxiety, stress, or sadness. Guess what? You are not alone. Support is all around you. No matter where you are, all you need to do is ask. Let us help you find a community at churchescare.com. Churches are communities of care. Go to churchescare.com to explore the possibilities. Churchescare.com. From world conflicts to falling financial markets, natural disasters, and more, wish the headlines would just stop. It's not a newsflash that life can feel like a pressure cooker. From managing work to building relationships, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. And for many of us, anxiety and stress are constant companions. But you're not alone. You may not know it, but support is out there, just waiting to meet you. And you can find it through the friendly people at Church's Care. At Church's Care, we know that finding your community can feel intimidating. That's why we do the heavy lifting for you. Church's Care helps connect people like you to churches that can support and serve you. In your new community, you'll find a group of people ready to talk, listen, and help you navigate life through its twists and turns. All you have to do is come as you are. If you're ready to find your community, visit churchescare.com today. That's churchescare.com. C-H-U-R-C-H-E-S care.com We look forward to serving you. Yeah, I mean, just like a really, a, a rare treat to hear the band groove right. without a singer. And, right. and they executed it really well, too. It's yeah. not like, oh my God, not, I can't believe, you know, Sandy couldn't come up with lyrics, so they came up with some kind of BS riff and just jammed for a few minutes as filler. It's right. not that. No. It's, 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 it is well worth listening to as any Van Halen song, but even a bigger treat that it's an instrumental. Oh yeah, this is this is really just a, an awesome gem off this album. I, I love this song, love this song. So, and you wonder, Dave, I almost feel like not album, but albums exist like this. There is probably tons of this stuff already recorded. This is exactly what I'm talking about is I bet you there is tons of this stuff, but somebody's got to cut it. You could probably make box sets of what he has there. Yeah, but I think what he has is lots of riffing 
and not necessarily a completed song. Oh, that's true. Uh, Ed was always like, you know, I've got 10 CDs worth of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Which he probably does. I mean, at yeah. least he's probably got more than that. Right. But it's basically just like him and Al jamming on riffs. Right. And, you know, there's no solo. There's no right. structure. Right, right. You know, it's like, and, and, and is that stuff interesting to you and me? Sure. Yeah, yeah. Can you, can you put an album's worth of that? Never mind a box set yeah. of stuff on that. Yeah. Ooh, that, that might be tough. That might be that tough. Might be That's tough. true. So Sammy finally makes his way back into the fold by the 11th song. Now, the funny thing about this song, take me back, in quotes, deja vu. This song sounds like a Sammy Hagar solo song to me. I swear to God. I love this song. I think it's great, but it's not very Van Halen. Apparently, it was a sort of sequel to Sammy's song Swept Away off his 1984 solo album, VOA. I don't get this one bit. I don't understand how this correlates with that song, but whatever. Apparently, the band remixed this song after it was already released and put it out again with the remix version, but no one can really tell the difference between the two versions. This song was apparently written for Unlawful Carnal Knowledge. The intro is from the Club Days song, No More Waiting. And Ed plays slide guitar on the Musser, which is a South American guitar. And apparently... Bruce made Sammy rewrite the lyrics three times on this one. In fact, Sammy was so frustrated he wanted to take it off the album. But I I think this song sounds fantastic. I think it could have been a single in the sense of that it's got that commerciality to it. Very light. This is sort of a light, fun song. Definitely one of the lighter, you know, brighter tunes. I tell you, it really sounds like a Sammy Hagar solo song. It really, really does. What do you think, Dave? That's interesting. You may be on to something there. Towards the end of the album, things start slowing down. Yeah. I mean, this and feeling. Yeah. I mean, they're more ballady than anything else. Yeah, yeah. It, it really, it really slows things down. I think the song is is okay. Uh-huh. There's, there's a lot of back and forth between, you know, the acoustic, and then they uh, they rock out a little bit. The guitars has some nice crunch, some nice vocal effects when Sam's singing. When he does, he does like the oh, I forget what he says, but it's, you know, it's like one soul, one mind, or, yeah. or one heart, or something like that. Right. It almost sounds like his voice is 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 being run through like. I don't know, like a Leslie speaker or something. Yes, like it's, that. it's it's got like like kind of a echoey effect. Right, right, exactly. A lot of little nuances, yeah. White Castle presents CEO Lisa Ingram. My great-grandfather opened White Castle in 1921, which is why I'm excited to announce the new 1921 slider, inspired by how we made them 100 years ago, with a 100% beef patty topped with cheddar cheese, caramelized onions, tomato, lettuce, and pickles. Come see why originality never goes out of style. I'm Lisa, but you can call me the Slider Queen. White Castle. Long live sliders. Pasteurized processed cheese at participating castles. From world conflicts to falling financial markets, natural disasters, and more, wish the headlines would just stop. 
It's not a newsflash that life can feel like a pressure cooker. From managing work to building relationships, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. And for many of us, anxiety and stress are constant companions. But you're not alone. You may not know it, but support is out there, just waiting to meet you. And you can find it through the friendly people at Church's Care. At Church's Care, we know that finding your community can feel intimidating. That's why we do the heavy lifting for you. Church's Care helps connect people like you to churches that can support and serve you. In your new community, you'll find a group of people ready to talk, listen, and help you navigate life through its twists and turns. All you have to do is come as you are. If you're ready to find your community, visit churchescare.com today. That's churchescare.com. C-H-U-R-C-H-E-S care.com. We look forward to serving you. Yeah. yeah, so it, it's a nice little back and forth, but yeah, again, it it kind of borders on the territory of you know another competent band could have done this song. Yeah, which which, which probably like goes along your way. From world conflicts to falling financial markets, natural disasters, and more, wish the headlines would just stop. It's not a newsflash that life can feel like a pressure cooker. From managing work to building relationships, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. And for many of us, anxiety and stress are constant companions. But you are not alone. Support is out there, just waiting to meet you. And you can find it through friendly people at churchescare.com. At churchescare.com, we know that finding your community can feel intimidating. That's why we do the heavy lifting for you. Churchescare.com helps connect people like you to churches that can support and serve you. In your new community, you'll find a group of people ready to talk, listen, and help you navigate life through its twists and turns. All you have to do is come as you are. If you're ready to find your community, visit churchescare.com today. That's C-H-U-R-C-H-E-S care.com. We look forward to serving you. Sometimes life can feel like a pressure cooker. From our work life to our personal lives and relationships, there's so much to balance. It's easy to feel weighed down when you're experiencing anxiety, stress, or sadness. Guess what? You are not alone. Support is all around you. No matter where you are, all you need to do is ask. Let us help you find a community at churchescare.com. Churches are communities of care. Go to C-H-U-R-C-H-E-S care.com to explore the possibilities. Churchescare.com. Dot com. Of it sounding like a Sammy Hagar song. It really does. Because, really does. I mean, Sammy has some good songs, but like, let's face facts. I mean, he, he does songs well and he, well, he executes them, but there's other people who could do it as well as he can. So yeah. I, I think this song kind of veers into that territory. Yeah, that's for sure. Now we come to the last song of the album and it is Feeling, which is a big sort of opus. This is a very interesting song. I really like this song. This is Sammy's favorite song on the album, believe it or not. How are you? And you with me? I wonder who I'd rather be if I had one wish I They got really cool background vocals. It's very forward-thinking, this song. This is a really strong track. When the band comes in about a minute and 43 seconds, and it breaks open wide, this song. 
And Sammy's lyrics are really good. He put in a real effort on it. About three minutes and five seconds in, the song goes into a hot jam between Ed and Al, taking the song into the stratosphere. minutes and 20 seconds in the song kind of comes back to form this is a highly overlooked song this is six minutes and 35 seconds it's a long song but it really is sort of epic in a way very overlooked very overlooked this is sort of a darker tune the up and down of this album is unbelievable it's all over the place but there's some real genius shit in here you could see like the band you know, breaking into newer territory on this song. We'll talk about that more even next with the, with the next one. This ends the album, unfortunately, but it, it sort of leaves you on a weird note. Sometimes life can feel like a pressure cooker. From our work life to our personal lives and relationships, there's so much to balance. It's easy to feel weighed down when you're experiencing anxiety, stress, or sadness. Guess what? You are not alone. Support is all around you. No matter where you are, all you need to do is ask. Let us help you find a community at churchescare.com. Churches are communities of care. Go to c-h-u-r-c-h-e-s-care.com to explore the possibilities. Churchescare.com. Progressive presents Married to Your Home. I'm disgusting. Oh, house, don't say that. You could live someplace so much better than me. That's not true. Oh, yeah? Look at these uneven stairs. Gross. House, you know I don't care. Ugh, and the squeaky door hinge. I think it's cute. No matter how much you already love your house, you'll love it more knowing you could save big bundling your home and auto with Progressive. Coverage from Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and third-party insurers. Bundle discount not available in all states or situations. But what do you think of this one? It does leave you on on a weird note. When I hear it and I think of it, I I think of the uh, the intro and I think of a ballad. But you're right. It's like it's like three or four songs in one. You know, it's got the slow part, then you got the electric part, then Ed busts into the solo. And then there's there's the whole part at the end, and, and there's almost like a, a cashmere string section yeah, yeah. Uh, in the background going on. So epic is the right word. It's, yeah. it's definitely an epic song. Not something that Van Halen usually does, but I will give him credit for this one, because they're not sounding like every other band on this one. And, and they are stretching themselves a little bit, and I give them credit for ending on a challenging note. Absolutely. Now, here is the weirdest part of this whole Balance album. I don't understand why this happened, but the song Crossing Over, which I know you're a fan of, Dave, is sort of the only Van Halen bonus track, official bonus track, that exists. This was on the Japanese version of the album. It was left off officially on the album the, the song is not on spotify it's 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 not on itunes it's not on the cds or it's not on the, the, the cassette none of that it was on the japanese cd which i had to buy 
which had a different cover because that got banned, and that story comes later on in this podcast. This is a bonus track that really should have been included on this album for sure. I'm going to call it a masterpiece in a way. It shows new growth of the band, an incredible heartfelt song. This is a massive tune. Alex's drums are extraordinary. Sammy's lyrics are incredible. This was, believe it or not, dubbed David's tune because it was a song back from 1983 that Ed wrote about a friend of his who committed suicide. And I believe that the reason they recorded it was because of the death of Ed Leffler. And they felt it was too personal a song to keep on the album, which makes no sense because they released it anyway. I mean, I don't understand what that means. But the production is intense. And if you listen, like I said, in the headphones, it captures all these little double vocals of Sam and the background vocals. And there's some effects on there. It is an absolute crime that this is not on balance. Now, what I really think should be happening here is I think doing time should be removed. I think not enough should be removed. I think strung out should be removed. And I think crossing over should have been on this album. I do not understand how you could let a song this good be lopped off the album. That was another sore point, by the way, with Sammy Hagar. He was furious that this song was not on the album. What do you think of this one, Dave? I'm a huge fan of this song, yeah. which was also the B-side to Can't Stop Loving Right, you. right. So, so, so my whole thing is you're releasing it anyway. So like what? what I, I mean, I, yeah, I know. I mean, talk about two different songs. Yeah, on, oh my God, on, on nice side, day. Right? It's a black and white but cookie. This song, the outro yeah. to this song. I know. Arguably is the best outro Van Halen ever did on a song. Absolutely. I'm sure someone will write in and say, what about this this song? And right. You might, you might be right. I'm probably forgetting about it right now. But this one is definitely in the top three. Oh, I yeah. mean, again, some dark, serious lyrics on this song. Give Sammy credit for writing good lyrics right. that match the music. Ed plays drums on this song with Alex. Right. And uh, Ed does some background vocals. Uh, I don't know if I call them background vocals there's like some his vocals are in there they're kind of in the background right i mean there's lots of really interesting stuff heavy riffs from ed i mean again it's got that mid-tempo 
groove going on, but yeah. it really works for this song. Right. And the fact it's not on the album is uh, a crime, uh, because if it was, yeah. it would easily be one of the best songs on the album. Yep. I totally agree with you with which songs to get rid of yeah. and put this one on. Right. I, the fact it's not on Spotify or anything oh, like that. Oh, it's horrible. Again, another crime. I mean, not only is this song one of the best songs, it's not on the on the U.S. album, but I'm just going to say, not only is it one of the best songs on the album, right. at least on the Japanese album, yeah. it's one of the best songs from the Van Hagar era Absolutely. of the band. Yeah. And I'm even going to go on a limb and say... It's one of the best songs from Van Halen, period. Wow. Wow. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it's not going to, like, knock Unchained off my top ten. No, 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 no. Don't get me wrong. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, for for all the complaints of Van Halen doing When It's Love and stuff like that, which are valid, there's songs like this. Oh, my God. It's hard to believe it's the same band. They still rock when they wanted to. Absolutely. It's hard to believe it's the same band. And I swear to God, I really believe a couple of things. If you remove Not Enough, Strung Out, Doing Time, Ed Crossing Over, Fix the Lyrics on Amsterdam, and maybe retitle this album... And maybe do some different packaging or whatever. I think it could have been a more reputable, stronger effort. I think the back and forth, the zig and the zag of this album really confused people. Here's the thing. The videos of this album were horrendous. They were horrible videos. Real bland, vanilla shit. I didn't like that. Number two, the singles off this album... Like, you know, the uh, the big ones that everybody remembers, like Not Enough and Can't Stop Loving. They didn't properly represent this album. This is, a, this is a much darker album. And let me tell you something. This song, Crossing Over, fits in with that tone that they have going on, that grittier tone. And I'm actually so surprised that they didn't really sort of, you know, kind of go in with that. It certainly captured the mood of what was going on in the band at the time but holy shit crossing over is unbelievable it really is you know if you need to hear it just definitely look it up on youtube it is a must listen if you do not have it get it grab it download it whatever you got to do it is phenomenal like i said it's not on itunes you're not going to find it on amazon you're not going to find it on spotify you got to search for it but it is Definitely so worth getting into. It's got that real dark tone. Now, here's my question to you, Dave. If you had your way, where would you put it on the album? Ooh, that's a good question. You know what? I love the outro to that song so much. I think I might slot it last on the album. But uh, here's the thing. If you do that, I think you got to move feeling, though, because it's almost... I think that there needs to be well, a little more... Well, no, I agree that yeah. you'd have to rearrange some songs on yeah. the album. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That outro, I mean, I don't know how anything else would follow. I know, right. Would follow. So or epic. maybe yeah. like halfway, I mean, because I still think of albums as side one and side two. Right. So maybe like halfway, you have it like halfway through the album, and you end the first half of the album. Right, that's that. what I was thinking. And, but okay. here, here's right. the other thing, here's the other thing. Maybe extend the outro, and really, you know what I mean? Because it's it's a nice thick song, like it, it is. But you know what? It, the, the the I think the brilliant part of that is that the outro does not overstay. Okay, it's welcome. Okay, all right, that's true. 
Now, here's the other thing we should mention with this album. Boy, the band was in bad shape. When they went on tour, they called it the Ambulance Tour because the band had a very aggressive touring schedule. They did 135 shows between January of 95 and November of 95. And these guys were burnt out. Ed's hip was killing him. Alex's neck was killing him. Ed was hobbling around on a cane. Alex had a neck brace. It was really sort of, I think, maligned this album. That and the tension within the band. Dave, if you remember, we saw them April 26th of 1995 at Nassau Coliseum. We're also coming up on the 25th anniversary of that. It's hard to believe. Then we saw I am looking at the picture of us with the band. Oh, Dave, can you do me a favor and take a photo of that and send it to me? <laughs> I don't know if I wanted you posting that on the internet. <laughs> oh, yeah, no. Why? It's us with Van Halen. No, 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 I get it, because we're, we're a lot younger then than we are now. <laughs> no, that's, hey, look, I got yeah. more, more to lose no, from I, that I'm than you do. Like, yeah, but when I look at the picture, you can see, I mean, Ed is like leaning on a cane. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Alex not, is not wearing the neck brace. I think he only wore No, he only wore all he played. But, Right, but I remember when we were waiting to meet the band, yeah. you know, for the meet and greet and the photo op, and I remember uh, their tour manager, uh, what was his name, Scotty? Yeah. I remember Scotty. Scotty Ross. Scotty Ross, right. Mm -hmm. I, re I explicitly remember Scotty saying, don't shake Eddie's hand too hard right. or I'm out of a job. Right. I, I remember that. I remember yeah, him yeah, yeah. saying yeah, that. Yep, yep, I mean, yep. th right? That's how fragile Yeah, he was very fragile. Yeah, absolutely. Crazy. We saw them again in Jones Beach in August. They played the 22nd, 23rd, and 25th. They ended the tour in Hawaii. Believe it or not, they took this tour to Tokyo. They took it to Europe. And in Europe, of course, remember, they pathetically opened for Bon Jovi, believe it or not. Balance showed that the band was really going through a tough time. And they were poorly managed at the time. And things went awry. Who knows what would have happened because musically, man, there is some shit that they did on this album that is unbelievable and really forward thinking. I don't know if they just needed a break or what it was, but, you know, yeah, yeah. it's too yeah, you know, bad. The interesting part was like, you know, when we when we uh, we interview the engineer, yeah. you know, he'll tell you like yeah. friction, like they were, there was no friction when they were making music. Which is interesting because, you know, you listen to some of these songs, you're like, wow, there's like a deep, dark undercurrent going on here, you know? Were these guys angry at something? So, you know, it's kind of surprising that he's like, you know, when they were making music, there, there were no issues. But obviously, as we said, you know, there was, there was stuff going on. But, you know, maybe they were just professional enough that when they were in the studio making music, doing what they loved, that didn't get in the way. It was all the other BS that frustrated them and... And cause tension in the ranks. Absolutely. But, you know, I tell you, it, it really is kind of crazy if you think about it in, in terms of, 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 you know, what this band went through. And, you know, let me tell you something. This band has good bones. They really were unbelievable at this point. They, they were musically superior and they would gel together and perform unbelievably. But, you know, it's just, it really is sad. It's unfortunate that they broke up here because you never know what that next album could have been like. Because there's yeah. there's some real this is this is almost like their fair warning in a way. Like it it, it has sort of a um a, a grittier undertone, and there's some dark stuff here that ended up turning into some incredible 
incredible music. Although it, it gave us a great album. I mean, it's a little unbalanced, I should say. But I think with a couple of tweaks, everything, all the stuff is there. I would have just snipped a few things out, uh, you know, uh, fixed those lyrics in Amsterdam and taking those three tracks out, throwing Crossing Over, and I think you got yourself one hell of a fucking album, that's for sure. Maybe even retitled yeah. it or something, but what would you, what yeah, would you call no, this album? Would you call it The Seventh Seal? Do you think that was a good title or no? I really don't get too hung up. Oh, on, you don't get into that. That's album. right, yeah. No, it's like, you know, I, you know, some, you know, it's it's interesting. People get hung up on what they call the album yeah, or the true. cover art. Yep. You know, and I, I mean, these days, I mean, sadly, I mean, cover art doesn't mean a thing. No, no, like, not that. You, you know, that, because yeah. you're not, you don't sit there looking at the album cover. I mean, you're listening to this, you know, you're streaming the music on your phone. So, I mean, cover art is literally becoming a lost art, which, totally. which makes me sad, yeah. un unfortunately. But, you know, the, I mean, like, a, the cover art wasn't horrible. It, it wasn't the worst thing. No, I mean, not at all. You, they were going for some kind of concept with this album, with yeah. the cover art, with mm -hmm. the music. I mean, they were trying to make a statement. Yeah. It, it, was, it was something a, with a little more meat than for Unlawful Carnal Knowledge. Oh, totally. Yeah, yeah. I do remember when for Unlawful Carnal Knowledge came out, you said, listen, this is the album they're going to make for the next 20 years. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you, you know, or whatever it was. Yeah. And unfortunately, it was only, you know, it was the live album, and then there was this studio album after that. Right. Which this album was a little was a little more serious. I think it had a little more meat to it. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was still a rocker album. Yeah. So from that standpoint, it was basically the same kind of album. Yeah. If they could have gone, I, I always like, you know, what could have, should have been, yeah. you know, if they had, they could have done a few more albums like this. They, they would have at least been halfway decent, but you know, the, the wheels fell off the train yeah. and uh, we just, we'll, we'll never know. Yeah. Yeah. And there were like a, we mentioned before there was supposed to be a DVD from this album from the, the Canada show, which was a pay-per-view special, but never came to be. They never put it out, and that's too bad because they had some really good per live performances on this album, too. There's, there's one incredible bootleg, and I'm sure Mr. Ron will agree with me on this, called Van Halen Rocks the Beer Hall, and that is a tremendous bootleg from this tour in the 1995 tour some really good stuff on there there's quite a few soundboards yeah from this tour out there I, I don't know if it's that one you're talking about i remember there's one that's really good except for the fact that as usual mike's bass is nowhere to be found oh god and it's buried yeah and yeah that that live dvd that should that should have come out but then sam left the band yeah so it was shelved I remember that. That was the pay-per-view item that actually made me spring for pay-per-view. Yeah, and let me tell you something, I mean, folks. That's no easy feat. <laughs> and you know how notoriously frugal I am. That's true. Incredible. So, but that, that was the one that made me bite the bullet and yeah. finally spring for pay-per-view. That's right. That's right. That's too bad. But anyway, that wraps up our balanced discussion, 25th anniversary, and we are on to our interview with Mike Frazier, who was the incredible engineer on the album and it is followed by our interview with glenn wexler who was the balance cover artist and he put that whole cover together and the concept and he shot the cover so we're going to talk to both of them in celebration of the 25th anniversary of balance and we it's all coming up next take a listen 
I like to read. I like to read books. I read comic books. Whenever I used to see the uh, movies, you know, and go with my pop to the movies when I was very young, I didn't want to be an actor. I wanted to really go to Arabia. So now we have the time to do it. Need a laugh? Check out the Funny How Comedy Podcast, which focuses on upbeat conversations with legendary comedians. It's free on Spreaker and iTunes. Check us out on Facebook at Funny How Comedy Podcast, on Twitter at Funny How Podcast, on Instagram at Funny How Comedy Podcast, or email us at Funny How Comedy Podcast at gmail.com. Hey everyone, this is Eddie Trunk, and you're listening to Dave and Dave Unchained. Hi, I'm Jackie Martling. My brand new autobiography, The Joke Man, Bowder Stern, is being released. Go to JackieTheJokeMan.com. Great holiday gifts. Easy to wrap. I guarantee you are going to love this book. <laughs> I really considered myself basically a musician. Basically, I'm an entertainer. I'm song and dance man. Um... There's a lot of storytelling to be told here. There's a lot of magic, a lot of imagery. I'm the one who makes the tiger go away for you, and I'm the one who brings him back out when you least expect it. That's a whole lot more than music. Not better than music, but other than music. Never approached my life as based around music. Edward is a musician. That's what he has based his life around. Ladies and gentlemen, we have a special guest this evening in celebration of Balance's 25th anniversary, which we've themed this entire episode after, is Mike Frazier. He is the mixer of the record who worked with producer Bruce Fairburn. How are you, Mike? I'm doing great. How are you guys tonight? Awesome, man. We are very excited to have you on. We're fans of your work, and we're pleased to have you here to celebrate the 25th anniversary of Balance. Wow, I can't believe it's been 25 years already. It feels like it was yesterday. It's hard to believe, right? So just to start oh, off, man. I wanted to ask you if you could, for our listeners, explain your role at the studio and how you worked with Bruce. Well, you know, this is this record, um, I got called in actually at the demo stage, and I met up with, with Eddie and the boys up at his studio at 5150 in L.A. And that was the first time I met Sammy, too, so that was my introduction to Sammy, and Sure. You know, what a great bunch of guys. So we kind of hung out there for a week or two, you know, going through songs and doing demos of songs and, and, and whatnot. Sure. As we got songs together, they were, they were saying, oh, you know, we're in the process of looking for a, a producer for this. And I said, oh, I should hook you guys up with Bruce. Sure. So I passed on their info to Bruce and put them all together. And then, then away they went and they, uh, they did a record, you know, I guess it was probably a month or two later. Right. And, uh, you know, they, you know, we just all got along so good, and Bruce and I have done many records together. And so they said, "Okay, Mike, you know, above all, we want you to mix this thing when it's when it's done." So that's sort of how it kind of came together. How did you initially get involved with them from the, the demo stage? You know what i I don't remember because it was twenty five years ago. Right. But, you know, possibly through my management. Okay. Sure. They gave them my contact, or maybe they like some records I. Worked on. I was happened to be in LA at the time, uh, working on something else, and they said, "Oh, hey, come by the studio." We all hung out for a bit, and uh, you know, in this business, it's a lot about you know uh, personalities, and if you get along and mm-hmm. and do you know good hangout with with the guys, it's you know for sure you got to be good at your job, but a lot of it is you know how easy is this going to be in the studio because nobody wants to hang out with a with an idiot or an asshole for <laughs> weeks. 
Sun end, you know. <laughs> I can imagine. I so can we all imagine. we all had a great time, and you know, personalities really clicked. So that's uh, that's quite important. So that's how I got involved. Absolutely. So when you were hanging out with the band and getting to know them, what kind of vibe did you get from them? Well, you know, everybody was sober at that point. You know, I guess Eddie's always had a struggle, but at that point he was sober. I think, you know, he might have been sipping on some non-alcoholic beers or whatever, but, you know, he was totally straight sober. Sammy was, you know, in solid with the band. Everybody was happy when people showed up and we work. It was just all, you know, a bunch of laughs, fun. So they're really looking forward to this new record they were coming up with because it was all seemed to be clicking again. And, you know, they've had sort of some their ups and downs with personnel and and whatnot, but you know, it was all just positive, positive, positive. It was, uh, it was a really good vibe. Now, now, the album came out in the winter of 1995. When did you come into the picture with them? Do you remember how early on it was? It could have been 94, 93. Okay. Okay. Somewhere around there. Now, yeah. I would imagine yeah. this is right around when their manager had passed, right? Yes, I yeah. think so. I right. think so, yeah. Right. Or shortly thereafter. Sure. You know? Right, exactly, exactly. Yeah. And so tell me, what was the direction that they were looking for with this project? Did they give you any sort of idea of what type of record they wanted to make? I think they've always just gone for whatever their sound is. Right. And I know Alex and I... You know, Alex had said to me, uh, he says, you know, I've never been happy with my drum sound. And I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> You've got one of the most iconic sounds, you know. Yeah. It's different from a lot of the rock stuff, but, you know. But he had a particular way he wanted his snare drum to sound. He used to tape it all down the hole. He'd put on a new head, tune it, and then he'd tape it just with a couple of layers of duct tape on the top of it. And, you know, which kind of makes it really dead sounding, but... That's what gives it that kind of kunk, kunk sound to right, it, you know? Right, So I know doing the demos and, you know, doing all the stuff, him and I, you know, really tried to get something he was happy with. And he ended up happy, but, he, you know, he was searching for a sound that uh, I don't know where it is. Because, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you, 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 as an engineer, you kind of, you get what you're given. Right. And you kind of work with that and... He ended up being happy with it, but I think he was still searching for something else because, you know, they've got such an iconic drum sound. It's like, why are you messing with this? Right. You know? <laughs> yeah. Alex is always tweaking his drum sound. If you listen to the albums, especially during the Sammy years, every album has a different drum sound. You know, he has kind of a bit of a Bonham obsession. He, he He's a big Bonham Ginger Baker guy. He was always, yep. sur he's like one of those guys that searches and searches for the most perfect drum sound. And obviously, you know, he's a perfectionist, I guess, which is, you know, part of why he's such a great yep. drummer. So, so tell me, in terms of the sound of the album, like what point did Bruce come into the picture? You know, Balance has such a unique sound to it, and, and it sounds like a very fresh sound, and it's actually... I would say of the albums that they did with Sam, it's the best that has held up over time in terms of sound because a lot of the other albums they've done with Sam, like 5150 or U812, are definitely more dated. You could, they sound of that right. time, whereas this sounds right. like it could have been you know, right played today. What is it about achieving yeah. that kind of sound that makes it fresh and it doesn't go stale? Well, you know what, I think... Um 
you know, Bruce and I always, you know, because we kind of grew up together, we always had sort of the same outlook on sound. And we're not there to kind of, you know, create the sound necessarily. What we want is we want a great sound for what the band is. We capture what they're doing, but we're not trying to fit it into the latest 80s craze or the latest 90s craze right. or or do anything crazy with it. Just make a really great sound and rock record with some great songs and try and, I know Bruce always tries to capture as much as he can sort of live and fresh and there might be some warts on it. It's not perfect, right? but it's what the band is. And I think that's what stays. Like ACDC does that too. Like, yeah. you know, leave some of the warts. Like right. we're a rock band. Absolutely. You know? <laughs> Absolutely. You don't want it to sound too clean. Yeah, right? exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Now, you they typically work at 5150. Did most of the album get done there? Because I know Bruce used to like to work in Canada, right? Exactly. Yep. So yep. how did it, how did that whole back and forth happen? Well, I wasn't part of the recording, so I'm not really sure, but I've, I'm pretty sure because, you know, Eddie liked to be at home. He, You know, his studio's on the property, but his house is separate from it. So, you know, right. he'd like to be at home and come to the studio and work. Bruce likes to work up here in Vancouver. Right. But I'm sure Eddie talked Bruce to, to coming down there and, okay. you know, hanging out and doing it because Eddie's studio is great. He's got a really great API board. The, the recording room and the drum room is great. They got all their gear there set up, so it just makes so much more sense to just kind of do there where everybody's comfortable and just, and it sounds great, you know, why not? So I'm sure they did it all there. I think they might have gone up back up to Vancouver maybe to do some of Sammy's vocals. Right. But again, I'm not sure. I wasn't there. And then I was still in L.A. when it came time to mixing it, so we mixed it down in, in L.A. At, at the Record Plant Studios. So, Mike, for people who don't have an appreciation for the difference between a producer, an engineer, and a mixer, what was your role as a mixer for the Balance album? Well, you know, if I could sort of liken it to, say, for movies, in movies, the director is like the producer of a record, mm-hmm. and the cameraman or the lead cameraman or whatever is, is the the one that's doing all the colors of what's going on. So what I do is I ma- manipulate all the sounds to make it sound, you know, for me as, as, as best as I can or suits the band. So I'm the one that does all the, the, the sound work, you know, the, all the audio and stuff. And mixing is a process of, like when you're recording, you record a lot of the in- instruments separate. So the drums may end up on, you know, like uh, 14 or 16 tracks and the bass is a couple of tracks and then there might be, six tracks of guitars and the vocals are spread over a number of tracks. So I balance them all and mix it down to this kind of a two track, you know, stereo mix that can be processed into CDs, MP3s, whatever you want to do. So, you know, I'm responsible for the end of how it sounds. You know, I'm, I'm just more of the sound guy. Right. Producer gets more into song choices keys of the song is this working hey can we shorten this song to get the chorus faster right and he works a lot with the band on that level right so how long did it take you to mix balance 
texting privacy policy in terms and conditions posted at textplan.us. Texting and rules for occurring automated text marketing messages. Message and data rates may apply. Reply stop, opt out. The pandemic has been hard on all our kids. New studies show more than one in three children who started school in the pandemic now need intensive reading help. That's right. Millions of kids in kindergarten through third grade in the United States cannot read at grade level. Here's the good news. Your child can be reading in just 30 days, guaranteed, with Hooked on Phonics. Even if your child has been struggling, Hooked on Phonics will teach your child to read in just 30 days, guaranteed. And right now, you can get started for just $1. Text the word GRADE to 323232 right now. Hooked on Phonics is highly effective and incredibly fun. And everything can be done right from home and in less than 20 minutes a day. For more than 30 years, Hooked on Phonics has been the proven learn-to-read program that kids love to use. Text GRADE to 323232 and teach your child to read in just 30 days, guaranteed. Text GRADE to 323232 right now and get started for just $1. Text GRADE to 323232 now. Text GRADE to 323232. Finding the right person for the job isn't easy. Just ask someone who hired a karate teacher to trim their hedges. Man, these shrubs are not made of plywood. Don't worry, another few chops should do it. Yeah! Nope! Yeah! Dang! But if you've got an insurance question, you can always count on your local GEICO agent. They can bundle your policies, which could save you hundreds. Oh, this treehouse looks like particle board. Yeah! There we go. I'm starting to doubt myself. For expert help with all your insurance needs, visit geico.com slash local today. And how much was the band involved? Were they looking over your shoulder and you had to tell them to go away? Or you welcomed their input? For me, usually it takes me about a song a day to mix. So usually I'm in the studio, say, you know, eight to ten hours. I do my thing to the song. The band comes in, you know, later on in the evening or whatever I'm ready and has to listen to the song. Sometimes they'll they'll make some changes, like, you know, can the vocal be louder? Can the vocal be a little more wet? Can the drums be drier? Can You know, they'll do a couple little tweaks. We might go back and forth for a bit. And then, you know, by the end of the night, we're printing that mix and I'm going on to the next one. So it's mm-hmm. pretty much a song a day. The band's very much involved, but, you know, they don't look over my shoulder and I, I prefer they don't. I just kind of like to do my thing. If I'm not getting what they want, then you know, we kind of discuss it then. But, you know, so far, so good. Yeah. <laughs> Fingers, you know, crossed. <laughs> Who in the band had the most input to the mixing? Definitely Eddie. You know, Eddie was there and, you know, he's he's all over it. But Alex had a, had a big say as well. So it was definitely the brothers. You know, Sam would have some say. But, you know, after his vocals were done, he's sort of like, okay, you know, it's your band, you do your thing, I did my thing, you know, but it was mostly Eddie, you know, because, you know, I guess he's probably the the most uh, songwriter guy, you know. Right, right. But it was definitely, definitely brothers, <laughs> for in, sure. <laughs> in terms of the demo stages, how long did that process take, and did they ask your opinion on some of the material? Yeah, I think we hung out for... I want to say probably a week. It might have been two weeks. Okay. You know, they'd be, you know, fairly short days, like, you know, maybe six or eight hour days. Sure. But we'd hang out. They'd try out things. You know, they'd ask me my opinion on, on this part, that part. You know, I was a huge fan of theirs right to the beginning, you know, Van Halen 1 or 2. Like, I think that's one of the reasons I'm in this business is because when I heard that, my jaw hit the floor and wow. I don't think I ever lifted it. Nice. You know, but, you know, at at that point, and I can't remember when, but, you know, Eddie's main uh, martial amp had kind of given up the ghost. So that's why he went to this more sort of stereo guitar sound. Okay. So we're still 
kind of dealing with that a bit and trying to get for him his kind of ultimate sound too. He's a bit like Alex where he's, he's definitely a perfectionist. But while we're doing the demos, I, I seem to remember him saying that he had a, uh, an amp tech guy in Holland that was working on his main amp. And while we're doing the demos, we got the amp back. Right. And it was like, holy shit, this is freaking awesome. Wow. But at that point, Eddie was really invested in this, the stereo guitar sound, which was really good. Uh huh. But it wasn't like, you know, his old amp was like the, the older records. And right. Brought, yeah, this is great. Right. And, you know, his new amp is more a thing. But, you know, I think that was part of the sound, you know, he's going for. Like, he kind of went for the keyboard thing at times. So he was kind of, you know, always trying to search and, and better him himself and his sound. And, you know, as an engineer, you kind of go with that and encourage it. You know, you, you want to progress. You don't want to stay stuck in the ruts. Right. Now, it's funny, Balance is known as the album that, obviously, there was a lot of tension in the band. Did you notice any of that? Because they had no, everybody in the band had noticed it, almost like the band title of the album, Balance, was almost a joke. Because ironic. They, they were, yeah, exactly, yeah. ironic, because they were yeah, out exactly. of balance. Yeah, yeah exactly. So, yeah. so did you notice any of that tension? No, again, when we are doing the demo stages, everything was great, everybody was awesome. You know, I'm just trying to think back quickly and see if there was any moment. No, because, you know, Sammy's such a great, bubbly, happy personality. Right. So was, so was Eddie, really. You know, Eddie and I used to go golfing all the time and oh, hang wow. out, you know, even after work. And, and you know, they were just all super nice guys. So, you know, it's just funny, like, years later, and you see all these sort of social media wars going right. on. You're like, well, right. where the hell did that come from? It's, it's pretty you know, wild. There's nothing going on when I was working with them. Yeah. Absolutely. Did so, you ever deal with their manager, Ray Daniels? Not directly, but indirectly for sure. Yeah. You know, my manager would talk to him and stuff. But, you know, at that point, when you're in working with the band, like, you know, you don't really have any any need to for managers like we're doing our thing you know the only time the managers step in is to, to do you know any contracts or or deals or whatever like that i remember ray and and his staff were always you know great and gracious and like i say everybody got along just fabulously incredible so now also in terms of the material was there a wealth of material was there a lot of extra songs that they cut off were they trying to decide what goes on what goes off or well, again, you know, we were at the demo stage when I was, you know, at the recording stage right. with them. So, you know, we're bounced around a lot of different ideas. I don't know if the whole album had been fleshed out then. I don't remember how many songs we kind of worked on. What so, about, like, at the end? Uh, do you remember what, and mixing, did you mix extra then, then we ended up on the album? I don't remember mixing extra, though okay. I, I, we probably did because back in those days, you know, if you're having a, like an 11-song album, sometimes they, you'd mix 12 or 13 because they always wanted bonus tracks to add to a, right. a Japanese release or a European release. Right. We might have mixed extra songs, but there was nothing that has not been released, I would think. Right. You know? It's funny to mention that because there was a song all the fans always felt like should have been on the album called Crossing Over. I don't know if you remember that song. But it's kind of a very different track, very forward-moving for Van Halen. Kind of a darker song, but very cool. And it was a Japanese bonus track, but yep. it wasn't on the, the main album. But there was also yep. you know, instrumentals on there. 
Do, do you first? Do you remember crossing over? Do you remember that tune? Well, that rings a bell. I, I remember the name of the town, but I could not even hum you one okay. bar. <laughs> so. Okay. Now, also, there was some. In, there was a bunch of instrumentals on there. Doing time, which is the drum solo that Alex did. Then there was yep. strung out the older piece that Eddie had. Yep. I think it's from the early '80s. And then also the uh, I, I, I don't know how to pronounce it, but it's that instrumental yeah, yeah. that was really yeah. kind of cool. In terms of doing those, was that sort of like a filler, or did they just not have like lyrics that they were coming up with, or do you know why they did so many of those? You know what? I don't remember at the time. I don't remember missing Balakshirim or whatever it is. Balakatherium. Uh, it remember. was almost. I'll give you a little reminder. It was an instrumental track, and then Eddie started doing animal noises with his guitar. If you remember that, like doing like an elephant huh. and all, you know, do you remember him doing that? Yeah, you know, I, that, that doesn't ring a bell. So okay. that might have okay. been put on okay. after we did the record. I, re- I remember strung out and um, doing time for sure. Yeah, I don't know what the decision was between them and Bruce. You okay. know, they might have done what would have been nine songs or whatever with Sammy. And the album's done. Okay, we need a few more songs. Right, you know, right. We need an extra song for Japan. Mm-hmm. You know, the the brothers might have said, "Oh, we got to you know bring the strung out again." Yeah. Uh, you know, this is all all into sometimes having things on the album that sort of break it apart a bit. So the, there's more of a drum soloy thing. Then you know, Bruce was probably into that too. So you know, and also at that point in in music, like. We're into heavily into CDs now, and you can fit as much music as you can. Yep. So it's like, you know, like a lot of guys are doing 14, 16 track records. Right, right. I thought it was crazy. So you know, maybe they just felt, hey, let's expand the the repertoire yeah. a bit and put these things on. That could be. Was Van Halen like that? Because you know, back in the day when they were with Dave, I mean, none of their albums clocked over like forty minutes. I mean, you were lucky yeah. to hit the thirty-five mark. So it's just yep. wondering, by the time you were working with them, if they were of that attitude where we're like, we're going to stick as much music as we can on this disc. Well, you know, the biggest driving factor of that was, you know, back of the day, it was like what you, you could fit comfortably on a vinyl. You know, I think that always topped out at about 35 minutes and you could stretch to, to say 38, but then you couldn't cut it as loud because you had more grooves and you know, there's a lot of reasons for that. And I think as the CDs came out, or initially, I think bands were quite excited. Hey, we could add more material and, and put more on for the fans. And, you know, more fans will buy this because there's more to the, more bang for the buck. But, you know, as that progressed, then they're realizing that, you know, with their deals with the labels, they're only still getting paid basically for 10 songs. So the band is sort of donating the, the extra songs. And right. Not really getting paid for them. Right. Exactly. Oh, that's so, interesting. That's right. Okay. I never and thought of and that. it extended the time for the recording sessions because now instead of doing nine songs or eight songs, now you're doing you know fourteen and sixteen songs. Well, it's taking you longer, but the budgets started shrinking then, and now they're making you do 14 or 18 songs for less money than it would take you to do nine songs before, and you're not getting paid for them. So it just became this weird, what the hell are we doing? Right. That's funny. That's funny. So now, in terms of 
the song Amsterdam. Do you remember the song Amsterdam? Does that ring a bell? Oh, yeah. Okay. So yeah, now, Bam, Bam. Yeah, exactly. So the funny thing... Everybody remembers that line. Yeah, everybody remembers yeah. that line. Like Dave just said, it's a, it's a controversial line in the Van Halen uh, community with all the fans because... The lyrics, wham, bam, oh, Amsterdam, you know, was that a bone of contention? Was Do you remember any of that, like some sort of discussion about that or wanting to fix that or any sort of tug of war over that song? Oh, not at all. No, really? it, was a, it was a great hook, and, you know, Bruce is all about getting any hook he could right. on anything because that's what drew people in. I never heard that it was a controversy while we're doing it. So. Okay. You know, it was just awesome, and that one always stuck in my head, just, you know, with the guitar riff, and, right. uh, wham, bang, you know, right, it was awesome. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. So now, the song Not Enough, which was the ballad, kind yeah. of a different song for Van Halen. I don't know if you can shed any light on this. That, that was sort of added in later in the process. Do you remember anything about that, that a ballad was added sort of later in the process? I don't, but again, you know, that could fit well into Bruce's Bruce's okay. thing because he always like records to have a flow and right. you know you gotta kind of you know speed it up slow it down and it might say hey we don't have a another ballad you know ballads were usually really great songs for radio and stuff so you know that could have been thrown in late at the game would looked at what they had and you know Bruce might have said hey guys you know we need another uh, another slow song so. So now, does Bruce, is he back and forth with you on the mixes, or is kind of his job done, or does he still get involved, or how does that work? He's still totally there. He would come in again, you know, with the band guys, and they'd all listen to it, and then we'd all kind of discuss it. You know, Bruce would maybe have his requests or changes or say, hey, I think this sounds great. The band might say, oh, this and that. Sometimes, you know, Bruce would, would back back them up and say, yeah, yeah, no, I feel that the drums need to be louder in this song or whatever. Right. Or sometimes Bruce would say, no, no, I, I disagree. You know, the vocal needs to be this loud or the guitars need to do this, you know. So we'd all work on it together. But, you know, Bruce at that point was always still very much involved, for sure. So when you were mixing this album, is there anything unique about mixing a Van Halen album or any particular challenges you had with Van Halen sound that you didn't have with other artists? No, I don't remember that. So I do remember that, you know, I was sitting there and there was 15-year-old me sitting there going, holy fuck, I can't believe I'm mixing Van Halen right now. <laughs> <laughs> That's incredible. I do remember at the, the, the beginning of the mixing process and I sort of, on you know, the first song, and I can't remember now what the first song we mixed was, I remember Eddie coming in and he thought the drums were too wet. He wanted a drier sound on the drums. Okay. So I remember, you know, tweaking that a bit. And then once you figure out the direction the band's wanting it to go or the band and Bruce, then you dial it down. But I do remember that because I kind of done my thing and Eddie goes, oh, yeah, no, the drums are too wet. I'm like, ah, oh, and I, you know, like I put 100% in and, you know, when somebody says something like that, I get a little bit crushed. But, you know, yeah. it was all, uh, it was all good. Now, did Al come in the next day and say, hey, they're too dry? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> then him and Eddie would go off in the back room and duke it out for a bit, and uh, it was all good. <laughs> oh, yeah. Is that, was that a common practice? No, not at all. Uh, but, you know, just sometimes with the brother things. I've done a few records with brothers. And, right. And, you know, 
sometimes that could be, well, it's just a brother thing. Let them go off to the back room and talk about it. But no, it was all good on this one. That's funny. <laughs> and in terms of the record company, was the record company involved much? Did they call you up and say, hey, we want this one for a single. We want you to, you know, make this a little, put a little more polish on this. Was there any involvement in their end? No, you know, most of the records I've done, the label is not very much involved. Bruce and the band would probably take more of the brunt of that okay. you know, through the management. But, sure. but while we're in the studio, they just kind of let us do our thing. And then when the record's done, they present it. And I'm sure if there was anything the label was lacking, like, you know, oh, we need another ballad or we don't hear the radio hit, that's when they would say something. But, you know, that wasn't the case on this record. Sure, sure. Now, was Sammy and Mike sort of like one camp and the brothers another? Did you, did it seem like there was some sort of two different sort of sides? Well, at my stage, everybody was a big band of brothers. Okay. You know, obviously Alex and Eddie were there at the studio most of the time because, right. you know, Eddie lived there. Right. I remember Sammy would come in when it's time to do vocals. And right. And then when he was sort of done, he'd kind of leave. Okay. And similar with Mikey. Right. But, you know, Mikey was around, you know, maybe a bit more than Sammy. But it was all it was all one happy camp. There wasn't any one side or the other. And, you know, again, I'm just meeting these guys, too. So, I, you know, I'm just sort of catching up on the hierarchy and, you know, who's here and who's there and who's around. But, you know, it was all... It was all high fives and fist bumps and all that. The sure, whole sure. So this is happening in 1994. Grunge <laughs> is king. Yeah. Was there any desire or any pressure to get a quote-unquote grunge sound on this album? Meaning, what? Uh, I'm not sure what you're asking. Well, so you know, there's a Seattle Nirvana grunge sound that you know, oh, I see. was oh, the current trend sound. at the time. And I'm just wondering if anybody from the record company or anybody in the band or anybody was like, hey, I want that sound, or somebody else was shooting it down and saying, there's no way we're going for that sound. We're just doing what we're doing. Right, right. Yeah, I thought you said one sound. I didn't hear grunge. Oh, sorry. It's it's, uh, it's, it's yeah. the United States accent. I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> so good, my brother. No, that never even came into the equation at all because... You know, especially with an established band like Van Halen, you know, nobody's chasing the popular sound, hopefully. And and also, you know, at the demo stage, we're just running things out and making it sound as good. Because I think, you know, at that stage, too, we were recording everything, but, you know, impossible. Hey, maybe this could make the record. So, you know, I don't even know how much of my recordings were, were used on the record. But, you know, as we're going through them, that was sort of the idea you know, hey, this is great, and we'll get all these, you know, how many ever songs we get down, get a producer in, and then, you know, go from there was kind of the idea. But, it, you know, it was never like, hey, let's sound like this, or hey, let's do this. It's like, you know, like I said, you know, Alex and I worked hard on getting the drum sound that Alex wanted, you know, obviously influenced on their past drum sounds. Like, yeah, but, you know, this was great on that record. And, you know, so him and I kind of did our thing on, on the drum sound, and, you know, worked hard with Eddie on his sound, which uh, isn't really a lot of work because, you know, he just touches the guitar and it just freaking sounds awesome. Right, exactly. Uh, but, you know, it's down to getting, getting them happy so that when they're performing, they're not thinking about the sound and, oh, I'm not hearing this and, oh, I don't like this. You want them happy and that's how you get your best performances when they're, like, 
totally into it and just get lost in what they're playing, then that's when you get the best stuff. So that's sort of what I try to do with them. And in terms of the end result, when you handed in the mixes, was there anything they had to go back in and re-record or, hey, we want to change that or we need this redone or, like, was any sort of nips and talks like that? No. Uh, sometimes when you're mixing, though, uh, and I can't remember on this one, but sometimes when you're mixing, and by the time you get through the, the 11 or 12 songs or whatever it was, then you go, oh, you know what, we've got a way better vibe now. Let's go back and remix the first song or the first two songs. Oh. Uh, so sometimes you'll do that. Okay. But just to kind of pull it, you've got more of a handle on where this record is going because, you know, you just make a song sound as good as you can and then the next song and then maybe later on you've got sort of a better vibe for where the drums and the bass kind of sit and where the guitars sit. And it's like, oh, yeah, on the first one, those those drums aren't slamming as much as they need to or something like that. So then you just quickly go back and it's 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 basically a quick fix, but it's not a a rewrite or a redo or anything. It's just sort of a, a an adjustment, you know. What about in terms of the tracking order? Is that do you put it in a tracking order that you think works? Do they tell you what the tracking order is? How does that work? That's more um, um more of a producer and a band thing. Okay, okay. Uh and at that point, especially back in those days, you know, when it really mattered on on vinyl as you know, and I guess CDs and cassettes, it really matters kind of tracking order because it's what leads the listener. So there'd be a lot of probably more input from management, the label, the band's got a good idea, the producer's got a great idea. You know, I just sit there and do what they tell me at that point. Yeah. <laughs> but right, right. You know, right. nowadays, nowadays where it's more streaming and everybody just grabs a song here and grabs a song there, it's a little less important for tracking order. Right. Because you're as a listener you're not forced to to listen to the record in a certain order. So Sure, sure. Absolutely. Do you think that's better or worse? You know what? Just because I'm from back then, uh I used to love having a new record, bring it home, put it on the turntable, you know, hear the needle drop and the hiss and crackle and then, you know, the song and then you just sit there and go on the journey that the band is trying to present you, you know. Again, if you liken it to a movie, you know, you sit down and watch the whole movie. Well, how would you like to go in and go, I'm just going to look at all my favorite scenes. And they're completely out of order. And, yeah, they're great. Oh, that was awesome. Oh, I love when the car fell off the cliff. But, you know, what's the point? So, you know, when these artistic creators are creating a soundscape for you and want you to listen to, you know, for me it's nice to listen to what the artist was trying to present. And then you go back and listen to your favorite songs. But, you know, I don't know. I like, for my first listen, I like listening from song one all the way to the, the end and see the journey, you know. Absolutely. And in terms of comparing working with Van Halen to working with other bands, how would you compare the process? Was it similar, different, or? Oh, totally similar. You know, the one different thing for me, you know, at the beginning, because it was all in, in uh, the band's, studio so you know having to go to their house every day and and all that that was a bit different because usually you're sort of in neutral ground right. so to speak right. you know uh, in another studio and we all meet up there right you know you sort of meet up there and eddie's still in his dressing gown and got his coffee going <laughs> oh, I'll, be back. I'll, I'll come out in a minute i still gotta have a shower and all that you know right. <laughs> like, okay i'll just hang out here <laughs> right, you know, right. kind of thing. but um but you know it was the same thing it's like you know all us guys are just, you know, focused on getting the best song 
recorded and done and created. So it's it's, it's very similar. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, when you were working with Eddie, did had he cut his hair at that point? Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, he had shorter hair then. Right. He had the short hair. So did he have like a different vibe yeah. because he was sober and he had the short hair and everything? I guess I hadn't met him previous. Okay. But, you know, okay. I just remember the short hair and the goatee. I know sort of his tech guys and stuff were saying, oh, yeah, you know, Eddie's been straight for, you know, I don't know how long it was. And, you know, he'd show up with a with a non-alcoholic beer and all that. And he just seemed, you know, really bright and focused. And, okay. you know, I've just known Eddie, like, you know, most of the fans just from right. what you see. Right. In the magazines. Right. Exactly. And in terms of working together again, was there ever any talk of working together again? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, there was, you know, it's, and I think that's why I, I got to, to work on the mix for sure. Because, you know, like they went off and recorded, basically recorded the record with Bruce. Right. But, you know, hey, we got to do this again. And again, you know, Eddie and I would hang out a fair bit because, you know, he was quite an avid golfer right. back then. And you know, I like kind of hacking away at it. So we, you know, hang out and golf. But sometimes the schedules and things just don't work out. So yeah. uh, we never ended up working together again. Well, they could have used you, that's for sure, yeah. in the last <laughs> album that came after it. They ended up doing the Van Halen 3 album, which desperately needed some mastering and mixing for sure it was a, a little more of a rougher rougher vibe on that hey and mike is great. that how you uh eventually got to work with chicken foot sammy remembered your phone number and gave you yeah a call? well probably you know like joe and i had already done a couple of his records together and mm -hmm. then they did the chicken foot record with was it andy johns and yeah then, yeah you know andy and andy had a lot of Sort of troubles and ended up in the hospital, so they needed it mixed. So Joe says, "Oh, I know a mixer." And then Sammy's like, "Oh yeah, Mike Crazy, yeah, we worked on balance together." And, and me and Mikey just always got along, so it was just this natural fit. That's awesome. So then I ended up recording and mixing the second track of Chicken Foot Record. So awesome. Just a really great kind of reunion from from the balance days in, in a lot of ways, you know. That's fantastic. Those those albums sound really really good. That we were just. Did a whole episode on the first Chicken Foot album, which really just yep. sounds immense. Yep. Really just so fresh. And then, of course, the second album is fantastic as well. Got some great songs. That Bigfoot song, still today, is a monster. Sounds so good. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's yeah, such yeah. a such well, a great, it's great Like with Joe, you know, uh, working with him, and, you know, he's basically the, an instrumental artist. And, you know, he's just so amazing at oh, yeah. recreating the space with a guitar that a vocal kind of takes. It's just amazing what it does. But, you know, he, he said to me over the years, he says, you know, he says, I just really want to be a, a rhythm guitar player in a band and just yeah. be the rhythm guy, you know, <laughs> like with the stones and with you know, all these other things he's filled in as. He right. Says, I just love it. So, so when you go and see him play in chicken foot, yeah. he's just got this big shit eating grin yeah. on his face. Cause he's just like, yeah. Right. I got a singer to take over for me. I could just do my guitar stuff. Exactly, you know? exactly. Well, that's the, that's the, <laughs> you can take that, a break now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Plus, he's around. He's around Chad and Sammy. These guys are high energy dudes, man. I mean, those those guys are like yeah. they bring the party for sure. You know what I mean? So looking yeah, yeah. looking back at the album twenty five years later, how do you feel yep. it holds up, and how do you feel it came out? You know what, I think I, I'm kind of in agreement with you. I think it's it's one of their stellar records that they've done. You know, I think it's probably the best record they've done with Sammy. Yeah. You know, I'm I'm an old 
Van Halen fan, so right. you know I like the the older stuff better. Right. But nothing nothing to do with Sammy. It's just you know right. where the songs are, right. and where they went, and, sure. and whatnot. But I think Balance is definitely the best they've done with Sammy, and you know I'm just kind of proud and honored to be a part of that one. I think we're just a, a from the heart rock and roll band, you know. We well, always try to p- pigeonhole you, you know. Now that there's speed metal and trash metal and all that, yeah. it's not quite so humiliating. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I got stupid there. But you know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> you don't mind it as much. When, it was, when that was like this outrageous, unthought of music, this trash, you know, what they call trash metal now, which I think is great, but I'm saying, but when heavy metal was considered like the unmusic thing, right. it was an insult because this band is very musical. It's probably one of the most musical rock bands around, I think, you know. It's the most musical band I've ever been in. Hey, folks, I'd like to introduce you to the Classic Rock Album by Album Podcast. Welcome to the Classic Rock Album by Album Podcast, where no stone is left unturned in the show's epic quest to review and dissect every single rock album ever made. Join self-proclaimed rock authorities Chris Carson and Lee Bowie on their epic journey to uncover the true classics. You can find the Classic Rock Album by Album Podcast wherever podcasts can be found, including Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. Our website address is classicrockalbumbyalbum.libsyn.com. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N.com. And we can be reached on Facebook at fb.me slash classicrockalbumbyalbum. See you soon from the Classic Rock Album by Album podcast. Hi there, this is Martin Popoff, scribbler of many rock books, and you are listening to Dave and Dave Unchained. In our band, there is constant back and forth, and at the same time, I think everybody's more than old enough now to really uh, to respect what mm. we've been allowed to do. You know, yeah, if we've yeah. made a contribution, that's for you to decide. But we've been allowed to do this job for how many summers in a row? <laughs> Yow. You know? <laughs> it's like uh, we never got kicked out of summer camp. Usually you get too old like Menudo. <laughs> <Are there? laughs> we just kept coming back. Ladies and gentlemen, we have an incredible guest this evening. His name is Glenn Wexler, and he was the creator and photographer of the image on the cover of Van Halen's 1995 Balance album. Glenn, thank you so much for coming today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Awesome. We're celebrating the 25th anniversary of Balance, and it's hard to believe it's been 25 years. But uh, we wanted Tell to... me about it. Yeah, right? It's crazy. So tell me, uh, how did you initially get involved in the project? Um, well, I was invited to do the project by Jerry Hyden, who was the creative director at Warner Brothers. Uh, she commissioned me. During the 90s, the in-house art department at, at Warner Brothers was kind of like the gold standard of the record company. So they just produced one incredible album cover after another. So I had an ongoing relationship with them. 
I had done the previous album cover for Van Halen for Unlawful Carnal Knowledge. Oh, which wow. Was, as you know, that was a photographic logo treatment. I was, I was doing a lot of those back during that time period, but Alex Van Halen was also very involved in the project, both with For Unlawful Carnal Knowledge and, and Balance, so he was very much part of that decision to bring me into the fold for the new project. Both of them were very aware of the kind of fantastical, conceptual-type imagery that I was most known for, and they were totally open to going into that direction for the new album. That's awesome. So just to step back a little bit for the Unlawful Carnal Knowledge album, did they give you direction on that, or or was that just coming up by yourself? What was the background on that one? Oh, no, with that one, quite honestly, Alex had a very, very specific idea for that particular cover. He wanted to feature the logo, but with, with that title, he wanted to create this very kind of organic representation based on the notion of for unlawful carnal knowledge essentially being the spelled out version for fuck. Right. They wanted it to have this kind of very sensual type of kind of vibe, and that's why I worked with the, the leather and gave it that kind of very kind of skin, you know, textural, you know, organic feel. Sure, and to tell me, what was that on the cover that you photographed? Was it a piece of leather? Was it a jacket? Was it a, it looked almost like a basketball or a, like the, qual, the, the quality of like a football or a basketball feel? What we did is we got a bunch of different leather hides, different types of skins. Then I created a, a big stamp of the logo and took it to a guy that professionally did the, the, the stamp into the different hides and we, I tried a number of different versions. That was the one we liked the best. Did you guys do it in different colors? Yeah, we did. Uh, we, I probably did about 20 different versions. Oh, wow. Okay. Just out of curiosity, do you still have all the original product? Good question. I probably <laughs> do somewhere. <laughs> yeah, somewhere. I'm sure they're wrapped up and I'll come across the, eventually. Absolutely. That's cool. Are they large or are they small? They're not very big. I think the, the leather hides were probably, we were still doing tall boxes back then. Right. So they, so I think they were, most of them were probably about 24 inches across, maybe 30 inches, you know, tall. The stamp itself, I think, was somewhere between like 10 and 12 inches. Okay. All right. Excellent. That's great. So tell me, in terms of this particular gig, at what point do you come into the process? Is it after the album's been recorded? Is it before the album's been recorded? What what part do you come in? Typically, when I'm engaged to do a um, album cover project, it's about two or three months out from the actual release. The oh. band, it, it's it's kind of it's coordinated. Usually, when the band's about to finish recording and they're and they're going into mixing and mastering. Okay, so at the time, did they have the title balance when you were going in for balance or no? Actually, it was kind of an interesting process. When we started with the project, the original album title was going to be the Seventh Seal. Right. And I originally worked on concepts to illustrate that title, and one of which involved a composition with a young child, and actually did the casting session in which we found the the kid that we used on the balance cover. Right. But there was a certain point where Alex came back telling us that the band had come to the conclusion that the Seventh Seal was actually too heavy of a title for Van Halen, and okay. and at that juncture they decided they wanted to work with the title Balance. Right, right. Interesting. Was okay. Alex always your main point of contact with the band? Yeah, in terms of the band, Alex was at all the meetings at Warner Brothers and then at a different at 
various points moving forward. It would be Alex that would kind of check in at the studio where we were, you know, to check in and see what we're doing. At one point, he brought Ed in with him. Ed wanted to see what was going on as well. Right. Okay. All right. Cool. What was it like working with him? Alex was great. He, Alex has a really strong appreciation for art and photography, really respectful of the process, gave me the room to do what I needed to do. And he was, he was great to collaborate with. That's cool. And to tell me, how many different ideas did you have, uh, for the seventh seal? What, like, did you actually have covers that were drawn up already? Yeah, we did. We had a really cool cover. Very kind of apocalyptic. It was kind of in a similar vibe as the as where we landed with balance. Okay. Yeah, but again, it was it was a little too dark, a little too heavy for Van Halen. Okay. It was interesting when we got into the process when Alex told me that the the title of the new record was going to be Balance. I asked him what that meant to them, right. and I I got an answer that I really didn't see coming. It was, it was it was a big surprise because you know obviously Van Halen had this reputation and perception as being this kind of fun-loving party band. Right. And what Alex came up with, he, he said, you know, when I asked him specifically, you know, what does this mean to you? Alex said he had this notion of, of exploring the duality of the human psyche. <laughs> and, you know, and I, like I said, I just, I just didn't see that coming. Yeah. So, like I said, it was, it was really unexpected. But, you know, in, in hindsight, you know, at that point, they were 17 years out from their, their first album. Right. And they were going through a lot of turmoil, you know, within the band. Right. You know, that's been obviously well publicized. You know, there's a lot of deeper issues that they were experiencing, including the recent death of Ed Leffler, who was right. the longtime manager. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So I thought they didn't want to go too deep. <laughs> yeah. No, he, they wanted to go deep with this one. And, and that, and like I said, I didn't see that coming, but I appreciated that. And, you know, it was, it was a challenge to, you know, to come up with the, the right idea. I had a number of ideas. I had them sketched out, and we sketched out the image with the conjoined twins, and they loved it. That's interesting. How did you find this kid, and what made you keep him for the balance cover? Because you said you were initially going to use him for the uh, Seven Seal cover, right? Right, yeah. Well, the thing is about this one kid, we, I did kind of a broadcasting call. And I should kind of clear up one thing. There's, there was a popular misconception for a long time that it was um, Wolfie Van Halen, um, right. his son. Right. Which, which clearly it wasn't. Wolfie at that point I think was about two or three years old, and he's always had dark brown hair, and so he he was not the kid on the cover. No, of course, but, yeah. But in any event, I did kind of a broadcasting call. I saw somewhere in the neighborhood of about a hundred kids, and this one kid came in with the with his long hair. He was just had this like kind of beautiful, unique, androgynous quality, and he was just, he just seemed to be the, there was something about him. He was the kid was really unruly, and and I knew he was going to be a challenge to work with. Wow. He had no experience on camera whatsoever. Uh huh. But he just he had a great look, so I thought it'd be worth you know the challenge to 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 try to to try to make him work for the project. So when I had come up with a concept for for balance. Having an androgynous kid, you know, that really represented both the male and female sides of a personality. Right. Seemed to be the right way to go. How much did Alex contribute to that idea? Or was he more like, look, here's a general concept, make it work, and I hope I like it? 
with balance, no, it was more kind of a general idea. Like I said, I presented a few very different approaches to them, but the one that I had always liked the best was the the twins on the seesaw, and that's the one that, that Alex and, and Jerry Hyden both gravitated towards. Absolutely. And, and in terms of the other concepts, what were some of the other alternative versions that you had? Well, there's only one that is still very clear in my mind, and I'm going to kind of keep that under wraps because what I've found over the years is I've had ideas for album covers, and sometimes it takes a decade or two for them to find their home. Oh, so okay, okay, no problem. Yeah, yeah, we've, I've got a really cool idea that will probably surface eventually. I'm still doing a lot of album cover art, and yeah, they'll probably show up one of these days. Awesome, that's cool, that's great. So now, how familiar were you with the band? You know, being from California and growing up with rock and roll, I was very familiar with the band. Okay. And you had mentioned that there was a lot of turmoil going on with the band at the time. How in tune were you with what was going on with the band at that time? Not really. Not so much. You know, my relationship at that point was really just kind of on an art level with Alex. So the turmoil that he would mention to me was was more just, you know, just kind of off the cuff. And then, you know, other than that, it was just kind of, you know, the rumors were out there and the press was out there that there was always, you know, those kind of difficult relationships within Van Halen. Did they let you hear the album for inspiration? No. No, they didn't. I, they didn't give me any advanced recording on the album. And for me, that's usually very much part of the process because when I'm designing and conceiving an album cover, first and foremost, the art is not about me. It's about the band, and it's an extension of the music. It's the visual representation of what, what the music is about. So in this particular case, this was based entirely on the conversations and direction that I was given by Alex. Okay. Now, also, in terms of the whole seesaw image, if you could explain the image, the the seesaw, and kind of what the child is going through in, on the cover, how would you explain it? I think, first and foremost, it's the expression of dualities. And within the idea, what I wanted to do was also present a number of kind of ironies that would be contained within the image. So the obvious thing is the expression of the inseparable male and female characteristics. But then, you know, like I said, you kind of, I wanted to focus in on a number of ironies. There's, of course, the impossibility of the conjoined twins actually operating the seesaw. There's no one else to play with in this kind of desolate post-apocalyptic setting. And the only usable playground equipment is the seesaw. It's the only object that you see in sight. One of the other things we wanted to address was kind of the deception of appearances. You know, for example, the calm twin is actually the aggressive one. He's pulling the hair of the sibling to create the appearance of an aggressive child. And finally, one of the things that was really kind of interesting in designing the, the cover and designing the configuration of the child is that I wanted to do kind of a loose interpretation of what would appear to be the Van Halen logo. So that's what the V shape is, is all about. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah, and I, I, I noticed that. And now, the kid is naked. Is that supposed to sh show, like, he's primal? Well, yeah, it's supposed to feel very primal. He's, you know, he actually wasn't naked on the set. He was no, of course not. Yeah, yeah, bathing yeah. Suit. But, yeah, but no, the idea was just to give it kind of a primal, raw vibe, yeah. Gotcha. Okay. Okay, cool. And in terms of the post-apocalyptic setting, is that something you discussed with Alex or something he wanted, or how did that whole thing come into play? 
you know, it was kind of an extension of where we were with the whole seventh seal, that kind of dark, kind of end of the world type vibe. You right. know, we're in strange times, and you know, it was it was starting to feel strange around you know around the '90s for sure. And, sure. You know, it was just you know it was just kind of the vibe that felt right culturally and was in in a way kind of indicative of the environment around the band. So now, in terms of the child, did he pose in like a million different? positions and expressions for you to capture what you captured no not not really the way that that i work is once i create the sketch that was then approved by alex and and the label that sketch basically becomes the blueprint for moving forward so at that point it's really a matter of kind of reverse engineering what i'd have in the sketch which is fully pre-visualized to then figure out how I'm going to make that become a photographic reality. So my process is very much about, you know, breaking down that design or that sketch into manageable photographic elements. So I basically knew at that point I needed two photographs of the child to make him work. I needed the calm one and and, and the aggressive one. How long did it take you to obtain that? It took about two hours. The aggressive one was really super easy. Uh, like I said, the kid was a little unruly. But it was it was a super low key shoot, and when I was shooting that particular element with with the kid, I had my set designer build the, the seesaw, and we had created a, a kind of a little landscape foreground set in my, my studio. It was just sod, dirt, and some weeds, and just, I wanted to keep the shoot really quiet and, and low key. It was it was just me, my wife. I had my five year old daughter with me an assistant and then we had a, a social worker to observe the shoot that's a kind of a california law thing where you, when you work with minors you got to have a sure someone, um observing, observing the shoot so it's pretty low that's all pretty low-key the the kid's dad we kept him in the uh, reception area of the studio because he was kind of a distraction for the kid right. but in any event the first shot with the kid yelling he had fun with that. I told him to roar like Simba from The Lion King, and he just went for it. Oh. You know, we, I got that shot in a matter of minutes. Wow. The other part of the shot, to get the kind of calm, kind of kind of intense stare, that was more challenging to get him to really settle down. But I had, the reason my five-year-old daughter was there is because I needed the third hand to be pulling the kid's hair. Right. So she was like a year, about a year, year and a half older than kid, and just her presence was kind of calming for him. And you know, at a certain point, he settled down, and and I, I got a number of exposures. But you know, it's it's a it's a process working with kids. I've shot like tons of animals and all kinds of people, and I would say young kids are probably the most challenging. How old was that young man? He was four at the time, I believe. Wow. Okay. And and here's an interesting fact here. I don't know if you've ever took notice of this. The last Van Halen album with David Lee Roth had a mischievous child on the cover. And the last album with Sammy Hagar had a mischievous child on the cover. <laughs> I don't know if you're familiar with the 1984 cover, but it's the one of the baby smoking, the angel baby smoking the cigarette. So it's interesting so that it's like some sort of symbolism that things are coming to a close. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, you know, young kids come up a lot in rock and roll imagery. It's symbolic of, you know, youth going sideways, I think. Sure. So now how did the band react to the whole cover? Oh, they were great. They loved it. The band, the label, they were thrilled. Yeah, I've got, I, 
they were really happy, and yeah, it was, it was good all the way around. I should say up until a point, until some of my outside groups got involved. Oh, what happened there? Yeah, what happened there? Well, there was one point, it was, it was pretty well publicized. There was some conservative religious group on the East Coast shortly after the release of the album. They, for some reason, felt it was pornographic. They tried to get it banned from different stores like Walmart and, and so forth. But at the end of the day, I was really happy to see that the label and the band responded to it in a very positive way. They they stood by the album and said, no, we're not going to change it. Oh, that's cool. That's cool. But so there the, was a change to the Japanese version of the album, yeah, correct? Yeah. Yeah, and there, there was a lot of bullshit that went, went um that was kind of circulated with that, that that pretty much started with with MTV when they they ran an, a a fake news story saying that the um, the cover was banned in Japan, or which which it wasn't. We got a heads up really early on from the um, Warner Brothers marketing department that using as the conjoined twin in Japan would probably not play out well in, in Japanese media is just just for cultural reasons so we knew well in advance that we were going to do a separate cover for japan with a, with a single child and you know because the label was already aware of the potential blowback they acted proactively and we created this 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 alternative cover and it was really a non-story until they until mtv and other press made it a story probably the, the ironic thing about that whole scenario is because of all the attention that the different cover got in Japan, it created a huge demand for the American import in Japan. So it, it, it worked well for the band and Warner Brothers at the end of the day to have two versions. So just for purposes of clarification, what was the cultural issue in Japan with the conjoined twins? You know, I'm not an expert on this, but, you know, what I understand just, you know, from the advertising world is that there's just a there's a sensitivity in terms of showing human deformities. You know, it was just as simple as that. Interesting enough also, I don't know if you're familiar with this, but a lot of the Americans bought the Japanese version not only for the the separate cover, but there's an extra song on the Japanese album that is not included on the American version called Crossing Over which happens to be right. in, an incredible song, which I we were all shocked that it was left off the original American album because it really is a very unique, incredible song. But also wanted to ask you, from an artistic standpoint, did that upset you because it kind of throws off your whole concept? Not really. No, no, it didn't at all. You know, it's like, you know, you know I want to be respectful to different cultures with the work. It, you know, it was the right thing to do. I still think it's a very arresting image. You know, the concept still works because, you know, in terms of it's still the single child on the seesaw and he has no one to play with. He's still in a position of, you know, not being able to, you know, do anything in that environment. So so the only thing we really lost was that duality between the, the, the male and the female and the, the aggressive and the calm. Absolutely. The other thing I wanted to ask you was, the color of the covers, this orange-reddish tinge. And I was just curious what your decision was to go with that coloring. I was working initially with the image in, in full color, and it didn't feel quite right to me. I had shown it, the label had seen it, and Alex had seen it, and no one had really said anything, but it wasn't sitting quite right with me, and I did a few color variations, and I, I came up with that kind of monochrome kind of reddish brown tone and felt that that was the way to go 
Absolutely. It's also the highest concept cover that Van Halen's ever done. Van Halen's not known for having very high concept covers. This one happens to be one, and it's very striking. So what was it like to see it on posters and T-shirts and buttons and all that stuff? Oh, it was cool. You know, it was really cool. You know, like I said, I was surprised when Alex explained his notion of balance. So for me, that was just so cool to, to kind of do something that just went in such a different direction for them. But yeah, no, I was really happy with that one. And it was great to see it in posters and T-shirts. We even did a, um, a small video piece for them to, to end their show with. Oh, really? What, what was that including? It's not a piece that I feel turned out particularly well because it was very ambitious for the technology at the time. But Alex had approached me right before the band was going on tour to create a video clip where the album cover comes to life and the twins separate and run off to the horizon. Oh, like it's two separate bodies? Yeah. Wow. Oh, wait a minute. I remember that now that you say that. That's funny. I don't yeah, they concluded the, the balance the show, for that. Right? It was at the very end of the show, right? Very end of the show. They closed the show with that, yeah. Wow. Interesting. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Wow. That's interesting. Okay. How did that come about? The turnaround on that must have been pretty quick if it was right before the tour, right? Oh, it was ridiculous. Alex hit me up for doing that about two to three weeks before they were going down the wow. road. So I had to bring it to their first show in Dallas. I don't know. I don't know if it's actually the first show. It was one of the first shows, but I met up with them in Dallas, and they they ran it that night, and it was still a little rough, but they wanted to kind of get it into the mix. And then I went out to a few of the other shows. We were we were in Vegas and San Diego, and kind of we were tweaking it, and we got to a point that they were happy with it. It's one of those pieces I would love to do now with current technology. Because sure, it would, it would be amazing. But I look at it, you know, to me. Back in those days, digital tools were enough to do what I wanted to do to complete my vision, but film motion tools were really challenging and really expensive back then. So now, what kind of public feedback did you get from the cover? Was was there any sort of feedback you got from the fans? So it was all positive, you know, and I tell limited edition, fine art prints. It's one of the prints I get the most demand for. Wow. It's an important piece for a lot of Van Halen fans and a lot of music fans. So the feedback I've gotten has been really good. You know, of course, you know, there are people that have told me they've been weirded out by it. And, you know, I've, I've seen online posts where, you know, people think it's, it's obscene or it's creepy, you know, and, right. I, and I get it. But, right. you know, it is what it is. You know, right. the, the notion was is that we wanted to challenge people and, and push buttons. Yeah, it's striking. It's a striking image. So now, in terms of album art, how many album covers have you done? Oh, God. Well... I shot my first album cover when I was a student at Art Center. So when I was 21, I, I met the guy who was running Quincy Jones Productions. And a few months later, he had asked me to shoot an, an album cover for one of Quincy's bands, um, the Brothers Johnson. Okay. They were a multi-platinum selling act. And what that did for me, it was like, it was like, say, an open sesame to the, the doors of the recording industry. And wow. that, that got me inside. And at that point, I dropped out of school, hit the ground running, and I shot or designed about 100 album covers before I turned 30. I kind of segue into a lot of advertising work in the late 80s, early 90s. That was a market I never thought I would work in. There was a lot of money flowing in advertising back then. Concepts were getting weirder, and stuff was really kind of influenced by album cover art. So I started to get some great opportunities there. There was a point around 91, 92 
where there's this kind of legendary madman-type advertising figure that developed the original Maxell Blown Away campaign, and he wanted to do a reboot of that campaign. Oh, wow. And they commissioned me for that, and it was really cool. They had the billboards up in Times Square. Wow. But at the end of the day, that kind of launched me into, like, the international advertising world. So that became a lot of my focus for many, many years, but... All along, I, I was still doing a lot of album cover art, and it's been interesting because I've kind of come full circle, and that's mostly what I do again now. Wow. And what are the, some of the most famous album covers that you've done other than the Van Halen? I did Reunion for Black Sabbath, Greatest Hits for ZZ Top, Hold Your Fire for Rush, Stick It to You for Slaughter. Wow. Spring Session M for Missing Persons. And then there's been a lot of them. I've worked for Kansas, Whitesnake, uh, Shaka Khan, Michael Jackson, Chick Corea. Wow. Which MJ cover did you do? Well, most of the work I did with him is was portraiture, and I did a lot of advertising projects with him. But okay. I did do some images for the history project. So, what? yeah, it's been, a, it's been an interesting, really interesting range of, of projects and artists. I, I even did a, an album cover for Shaquille O'Neal. <laughs> oh, uh, you know, when you mentioned the reunion album, the first thing I thought of was another mischievous child. Yeah, that's right, cover, right. That's and, a and, great and, and, cover. And I, I use the I use the same technique, though. It was it was funny with with that particular cover. I knew the girl that I wanted, the little girl that I wanted for her. She was a she was a family friend, and that one was really easy to shoot, but. Did the same trick. I had her scream like Simba from The Lion King. They ain't broken. Don't fix it. Yeah, I was going to say. Do, exactly. Do you own the rights to the album covers or does the record company own those? In most cases, I maintain the ownership of the art. What I've typically done with, in fact, all but one project is that I've licensed the work to the, to the record company. So the artwork itself that I've created, I, I technically own the copyrights too. Now, for unlawful carnal knowledge, I remember, didn't they alter the lettering on the bottom for a second pressing or something? Because I have the first pressing of the CD, and it looks different from the one they sell now. Do you know what I'm saying? You know, I don't know. I uh, haven't seen it. Yeah, yeah, I have no idea. Yeah, your, your yeah. Mind, I think the first, wasn't the first pressing embossed, you know, like it felt like, yes. a, you know, like a leather cover? Yes. And then after that, they didn't do that anymore? Right. For some reason... If you buy one today, it looks like computer lettering layered on top of the photo because I have the original, which looks like the imprinted, you know, stamp that Glenn was talking about. And I'm sure you have the same, Dave. But then if you look at it today, it's got this like silvery kind of font that is like looks like was like layered on top. I know what you're talking about. I don't, it definitely yeah, there's I don't, a slight difference. I yeah. don't know why that is. That's kind of strange. Does your daughter remember this whole thing with the hand and everything? Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> what did yeah. you do? Photograph her hand and Photoshop it in the middle or something? No, with a shot of the, the screaming kid, Yeah, I just had her standing from the side with her hand pulling on his hair. Oh, okay, gotcha, gotcha. Okay, cool. There was no Photoshop in 1995. <laughs> we did it the old-fashioned way. <laughs> well, you know, you know, actually there was Photoshop back then. Yeah. But oh, there was? I, what, yeah, but, um, Photoshop actually appeared, I think, about 89 or 90. But it really wasn't, for me, a usable tool until about 94 or so. I had full in-house um, digital at my studio starting from 92. Wow. But at that point, we were working primarily with an image editing program called Painter. 
And the reason that we were using Painter is that it had what they called floaters, which was essentially the same as layers in Photoshop. So I'd be able to stack images and combine that way. Photoshop at that point didn't have that capability. Did you work directly with MJ? Uh, yeah, I, I worked with him. Um, yeah, I did work directly with him. Because he, he's very involved with the whole creative visual of everything. So was he very specific like Alex? He was specific about certain things. The biggest project I should say that I worked on with him was, was a campaign for Yamaha. And we did two very involved posters, one for their audio equipment and the other one for their um, professional gear. So those layouts were, were pretty much predetermined ahead of time. So, you know, Michael was there with his brothers um, for that particular shoot. But that was my first introduction to Michael. And then at that point, he had asked me to do portraits with him. And, it, yeah, and it was interesting. When I, did a, when I did the first portraits of Michael, he did specifically say, that he liked to be shot from a certain angle, you know, and that was the first time I think an artist had ever said that to me. What was the angle? Higher angle, you know, just a higher, which is, which is typical. It tends to be more flattering on, on people to, to shoot slightly down on, on them, but, but Michael knew that angle was fun on him, and he actually requested that. Now, did you do any of the inner artwork for the album? For Balance? Yeah. No, I didn't. They actually asked me to do the portrait session with a band, which I would have loved to have done because I've never shot the band. Right. But I had booked a family trip to Hawaii over the, the week that they had wanted to shoot, so I wasn't available. I believe it was Randy St. Nicholas did, okay. that, did okay. that portrait session with us. Did you do the cover for the live album, too? No, I didn't. Okay, okay. All right, cool. Unless they, sometimes they pick up artwork um, and, and use it, but um, I don't know if I've seen the cover to the live album, so I, I don't think so. Yeah, it's the it's a cover that has two houses, and one is completely destroyed, and the other one is intact, and the one intact has a Jesus statue on the front lawn. It's sort of a, a thinky sort oh, of... Oh, I know, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I know that one. No, I, no, I had nothing to yeah. do with okay. that. Okay, all right, cool. Excellent. Yeah. Did you yeah, ever try and work with the band again after Balance? You know, I would have loved to. I was kind of hoping they were going to call me for, for the last one, but I know David was kind of running the show on that one, and I know that David did go back to Jerry Hyden, who was now has her own company in, in Hollywood, separate from Warner Brothers. David and, and Jerry worked on that project together. But I believe that one's an illustration for, uh, for a different kind of trip. Totally, yeah, that's a total illustration. And also, what about the Van Halen 3 album? Was there any involvement with that one, or the, the next no. One after Sammy? No, I just no, I just did the two. Yeah, and that was kind of that. I've you know I've, I've run into Alex off and on um, over the years. It was funny about God. It was it was several years later. I reconnected with Ed. It was just pure coincidence. But my son and Wolfie were in grade school together ah. and became very close friends. So you know Ed and I just kind of you know hung out and, and knew each other as friends. You know down the road later. Oh, that's... In fact, Ed gave my son his first electric guitar. Oh, my God. <laughs> that's awesome. That's incredible. Does your son play? Kind of, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He's, a, he's a really talented kid. But it's, it's, it's such a different world. It's, it's really funny. At one point, my wife had mentioned to my son that he should really get Ed to, to sign the guitar, and he just, like, looked at it and goes, why would I get Wolfie's dad to sign my guitar? <laughs> It's all perspective. It is all perspective, yeah. yeah. Whoa! How about that, Variety Video Music fans? Live all day, all night. We know what you need. Only right here on Dave TV. Check.
check us out on Facebook at Dave and Dave Unchained Van Halen Podcast, on Twitter at DD Unchained, on Instagram at DD Unchained Podcast, and you can email us at DD Unchained Podcast at gmail.com. Hello? Hey, how are you? Oh my God, you threw me off. You're on time. Uh, can you believe it? No, I'm still eating. <laughs> oh, jeez. I'm like, ah, I got ten minutes. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Finishing your last gulp there? <laughs> I am. <laughs> <laughs> All right, tell me when you're ready. All right, just give me a minute. This is what happens when you're prompt, I'm not ready. I don't yeah. understand the no children thing, though. What do you mean, the no children like, thing? Kids can't get it. How is that possible? Uh, well, I think they can get it, but from what I've heard, like they're less apt to really get sick or die from it, like the elderly are, or or you and me, in other words, right, or, right. Or, <laughs> or or you know someone who's sick already. Right, right, of course. Of but course. yeah, for some reason, it's not knocking out younger people. Right. So right. I guess it's good to be young. That's true. I guess so. That's not us, right. unfortunately. You ready? No, not anymore. <laughs> not anymore. Not since, Fe- not since February. That ship has sailed. <laughs> That's right. Sail on sailor. Texting privacy policy and terms and conditions posted at textplan.us. Texting rules for recurring automated text marketing messages. Message and data rates may apply. Reply stop, opt out. The pandemic has been hard on all our kids. New studies show more than one in three children who started school in the pandemic now need intensive reading help. That's right. Millions of kids in kindergarten through third grade in the United States cannot read at grade level. Here's the good news. Your child can be reading in just 30 days, guaranteed, with Hooked on Phonics. Even if your child has been struggling, Hooked on Phonics will teach your child to read in just 30 days, guaranteed. And right now, you can get started for just one dollar. Text the word grade to 323232 right now. Hooked on Phonics is highly effective and incredibly fun. And everything can be done right from home and in less than 20 minutes a day. For more than 30 years, Hooked on Phonics has been the proven learn-to-read program that kids love to use. Text grade to 323232 and teach your child to read in just 30 days, guaranteed. Text grade to 323232 right now and get started for just one dollar. Text grade to 323232 now. Text grade to 323232. Texting privacy policy in terms and conditions posted at textplan.us. Texting rules for recurring automated text marketing messages. Message and data rates may apply. Reply stop, opt out. The pandemic has been hard on all our kids. New studies show more than one in three children who started school in the pandemic now need intensive reading help. That's right. Millions of kids in kindergarten through third grade in the United States cannot read at grade level. Here's the good news. Your child can be reading in just 30 days, guaranteed, with Hooked on Phonics. Even if your child has been struggling, Hooked on Phonics will teach your child to read in just 30 days, guaranteed. And right now, you can get started for just $1. Text the word GRADE to 323232 right now. Hooked on Phonics is highly effective and incredibly fun. And everything can be done right from home and in less than 20 minutes a day. For more than 30 years, Hooked on Phonics has been the proven learn-to-read program that kids love to use. Text GRADE to 323232 and teach your child to read in just 30 days, guaranteed. Text GRADE to 323232 right now and get started for just $1. Text GRADE to 323232 now. Text GRADE to 323232.